10. Dante didn't really expect for her to tell them that. This turned out to be a wise mindset, because he turned out to be exactly right. You need me to tell you how to be sorcerers? Era said, three of you are sorcerers. More like two and a half, Blaze said, or two and a quarter. Actually, what's the smallest fraction more than two? Dante tapped his chin. Why don't you ask your penis? Gladix stuttered with unintended laughter. Blaze shook his head at them both. Since our mentor insists on being as helpful as a hemorrhoid, why don't we just try to grab the stream? He closed his eyes and clenched his face. They were nearing midday, and it was hot enough for a bead of sweat to appear on his temple. He opened his eyes, breathing hard. Nothing. And if I bear down any harder, I'll need to change my jabat. Dante examined the two bits of gold that had appeared next to him. They were already shrinking, dimming. He extended his mind toward them. He could see them. But it was as if there was nothing there for his mind to sense. An idea presented itself to him. Before he could think about all the ways it wouldn't work, he summoned the nether and wrapped it around the two dots of stream. The spark seemed to brighten for a moment, but remained invisible to his inner eye. He shook his head. It's like trying to move a limb I don't have. Now I understand, Blaze said. Not having one would explain why you think they can talk. Gladig seated himself cross-legged and scowled up at the two flecks of gold. Volo walked in a circle around Dante. Mouth twisted to the side. A part of him expected her to unlock the secret right away, as she'd done with the glimpse. Yet the sparks didn't show any sign of being affected. The four of them spent the next minute in near silence. Without warning, the two pieces of stream winked away, nowhere to be found. Did someone do that? Dante said. Gladick lifted an eyebrow. If we had, would that not be proof of the talent to move them, and hence a favorable outcome? We can stare at the stream all day without getting anywhere. How do we actually wield it? What if we're getting ahead of ourselves? Blaze rubbed the back of his arm. When I was at Pocket Cove, they broke our training with the nether into several sections. First, they taught us to see the nether. Second, to touch it, and lastly, to grasp it. Right now, we're trying to skip straight to the grand finale. But maybe we should try to learn how to touch the stream first. That's inefficient, Dante said. When I learned the nether, I went straight to using it. I didn't even have to see it first. You seem to be forgetting that you had the original cycle lending you a hand and that you turned out to be one of the greatest nethermancers of our generation. These people don't even have a broadsheet calling the Emperor a wanker, let alone a holy book that teaches you how to wield the stream's power without you knowing that you're being taught. 
I'd say that baby steps are all we've got. Agreed, Gladick said. Many of the acolytes within the Malice Church show little potential, but even modest talent in the ether is too valuable to be thrown away. Those who are strong may leap to the top of their studies in a handful of bounds, but those who are weaker, more steps are needed to convey them to the heights. As they spoke, two dabs of stream returned from nowhere, circulating in the air between them. Dante let out a huff of air. Fine. We'll try to learn to touch it. How'd they teach you to do that at Pocket Cove? Uh... Blaze tipped back his head. I don't wholly remember. I think it involved a lot of naked swimming and searching for exotic sea snails. We'll just find where the Odosein keep their ocean, then. How can you not remember learning to shadow walk? Because unlike the rest of you who get into these things, I'm not an obsessive moon calf about it. I'd tell you to loon Nack to ask Min what she taught me, except she's over in Pocket Cove right now, isn't she? I think the process involved breathing. Breathing? Like with your lungs? That sounds like an arcane process, to be sure. Blaze paced about the grass. Hang on. Part of the reason I'm having a tough time remembering is because I ripped through it like used cheesecloth. He snapped his fingers. That was it. I employed my waves-a-muscle technique. And once my head was all calmed down, I swooped in on the nether from the side. Caught it completely off guard. Waves-a-muscle? I veto this discussion. The name more or less describes exactly what it is. The technique's a way to train yourself to be able to murder your foes at maximum efficiency, but it's also a good way to get your brain to shut up and let you think. What you do is isolate a group of muscles, the ones around your ears and eyes, say, then tense them hard when breathing out. Then, as you inhale, you relax them. On the next breath, you move down to the next set of muscles, the ones in your jaw and neck, and repeat the process all until you get down to your feet. Dante found that he was already flexing the muscles on his face and ears. He made himself stop. What does any of this have to do with learning sorcery? Beats the hell out of me. And Min. All I know is that I did it, then came at the nether like a big, sexy hawk, and it worked. Dante glanced at Era, expecting to see her rolling her eyes or drooling with scornful laughter, but she was presently looking uncharacteristically non-judgmental, which only happened on the rare occasions they were saying something she found unbelievably stupid. This seems dumb. Dante said. But it also seems like it'll only take a few minutes to test out. You might as well go first. Blaze rolled his shoulders. The women present might want to avert their eyes to avoid a sudden loss of consciousness. Volo giggled. Era's expression reverted to its natural state of 
witnessing unbelievable stupidity. Blaze inhaled deeply through his nose, then cocked his head. I've spotted a flaw in this plan. I can't seem to see any of the stream. That's because you're bad at... Dante trailed off, turning in a confused circle. Hold on. Where did it go? Volo and Gladick looked about, but they too couldn't see a single golden speck. This makes no sense, Dante said. We're all able to see it. We've taught ourselves that much. So why can't we see any of it right now? Volo quirked her mouth. Maybe it's gone. Gone where? The nether's all around us. So is the ether. Once you know how to see them, they're always there. So where is the stream? Perhaps our skills remain weak, Gladick said. Hence it is only when we actively focus that we can see it. And all four of us are exactly as bad at seeing it. So it disappears from all four of us at exactly the same time. When phrased as such, it does not seem likely. Dante rubbed the corners of his eyes. Then is it disappearing somewhere? Hiding? Blaze stretched his arms over his head. I know one way to get it to show its face. Show it a pretty mind forest. While he was still mid-sentence, a little golden firefly appeared behind his head, circled to his side, and drifted in irregular loops. Now, that's strange, isn't it? I hadn't even thought of a single tree yet. You didn't need to, because you were just inspired. Gladick's mouth fell open. He tilted back his head at the blue of the sky, like he was being granted a vision from the gods. You're suggesting that, unlike ether and nether, the stream isn't permanent? Rather, it is created? That's not what I'm suggesting at all, Dante said. That's impossible. Why so? Because the elements that we are familiar with do not act in the same fashion? You yourself stated that the key to seeing the stream was to think deeply and in detail about the forest. What is this but a focused way to find inspiration? All right, that's plausible. And if the stream is constantly fading away, that's another reason that nobody else even knows it exists. Most of the time, it isn't there. Look! Volo pointed above their heads. There, a dozen slivers of gold had sprung into existence, tossing gently in slow circles. You guys just made those, while you were talking. While we were debating. Feeling lightheaded, Dante gawked at Era. That's why you invented Danakide, isn't it? To turn your entire society into an ongoing source of the stream for you to use. Close enough, she said. Close enough to be given the truth. In practice, 
The golden stream fades away much too fast for us to get any use out of what the people spark up while they're arguing away with each other. But what this custom does accomplish is to train every single citizen to be a potential knight of Odosein. As with your warlock degeneracy, most of them show little talent for it. Through Danakide, those who are good at it become very easy to spot. Blaze scratched the back of his head. That's a bit manipulative, tricking your whole society into arguing all day long just to make your job a little easier. The concept of Danakide is wrong, then. When they reason their way to a better premise and share that new idea with those around them, they aren't making themselves and their people wiser and stronger. That part sounds noble enough. It's the part where you're totally deceiving them that feels deceptive. Era laughed in derision. So what if we lie to them? We improve their lives with Danakide, while also using it to prevent them from being turned into the blighted, or from being eaten alive by them. How horrible! How shameful! Your brilliant foreign logic has lifted the blinders from my eyes. We'll go serve our citizens up to the Aiden Rane at once. Blaze held up his hands. All right, goodness, for someone who thinks arguing is so great, you sure hate to be disagreed with. Your arguments stink like fish carcasses. You're not angry at me when you make a bad one. You're embarrassed at yourself for having made them. She swept a strand of hair from her brow. If you're done condemning the Odosein for preserving our people against a threat that would have destroyed any of your worthless countries centuries ago, I'd like to congratulate you. It only took you a week to discover what it took us fifty years to work out. That's how long it took to found the Odosein, Dante said. Does that mean we're ready to learn your story? Just how much do you think you've actually accomplished here? So you've worked out a few facts we've known about for hundreds of years? Get back to work. The flickers of stream they'd generated earlier were nearly all gone. Blaze started in on his flexing and relaxation routine. Dante refused to even think of it by name. But before he could finish and swoop in on the golden dots, the last of them vanished. Unless we get extremely lucky, we're going to need a steady source of the stream, Dante said. Bolo, you're the best at generating it consistently. Mind dreaming up a few forests for us? Yeah, she said, but I'll do it anyway. She smoothed out her mat, took a seat, and closed her eyes. Blaze resumed his routine. Era watched him for a moment, but grew bored of the sight almost immediately, which Dante found gratifying. It will be some minutes before the girl has assembled her inner world in enough detail to begin generating sparks, Gladick said. In the meantime, shall we take up the Garnasses of Ohelian? Dante looked at him, as if Gladick had suggested they disrobe for a wrestling match. 
The Garnasses was a historic debate between two Malish scholars named Holowick the Stout and Bordrang the Black. Dating back four hundred years and concerning the trials of a man named Tarlan, who is repeatedly wronged and seeks a variety of revenges on his foes, it was primarily used to provide a framework within which neophyte scholars could debate the nature of moral action, particularly whether it was absolute or influenced by the context around it. Oh, Dante said, you want to see if we can create some stream of our own. Do you want the position of Holowick or Bordrang? Bordrang. Gladick sounded like he was tasting the word and finding it to his liking. I've always chosen Holwick. It is time to try a different course. They set to arguing, with Dante going first. He'd usually found Holwick the stout to be safe and predictable, but Gladick made his counterpoint so fiendishly that Dante fought to keep himself on tenable ground. As Gladick argued that Tarlan's vigilante killing of the man who'd stolen his flock was a fully appropriate response to an attack on Tarlan's ability to clothe and feed himself, a glimmer of gold appeared between them. Blazer's eyes darted to it. He exhaled in a rush, scrunching up his brow. Blaze inhaled and exhaled again. Dante and Gladick resumed the debate. A minute later, the glimmer dwindled away. Blaze shook his head. Nothing. Dante broke off mid-argument with Gladick. You swooped. I swooped. Then I swerved. And for good measure, I tried a flying backwards triple somersault. Still couldn't touch it. Volo's exercise produced her first blot of stream. In almost no time at all, she was putting out a slow but steady flow of the substance. By contrast, Dante and Gladick's production was sporadic and spotty. Twenty minutes in, Blaze straightened and stretched back his neck. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Anyone else want to take a shot? Dante took his place, while Blaze started up a raucous argument with Gladick. Performing the wave of muscles felt ridiculous, but it was oddly relaxing. Regardless, Dante was soon so wrapped up in trying to reach the golden stream that he forgot about how ridiculous he might look. One attempt after the other came to failure. It wasn't even like he was bouncing off the moats or sliding across them. It was more like they weren't there at all all. He deployed every trick he'd learned in his lifelong efforts to not be terrible with the ether, but none bore fruit. When he grew frustrated, he switched out for Gladick, who switched out in turn for Volo. They lunched, then spent the remainder of the afternoon beating their heads against the wall of the stream. At last, the setting sun informed them it was time to call it quits. It's no wonder the stream has such limited use, Dante said. You can barely gin up enough of it to see it. 
and a speck of it barely lasts long enough for you to get mad at it before it fades away. Blaze clapped him on the shoulder. You make it sound like we spent the day failing so badly, our mothers don't know whether to disown us or blow our inheritance on hemlock. I say we made a lot of progress today. A few more steps forward like this, and we'll be ready to go bash the lich's big white head in. Dante wasn't too sure about the last part, but he was heartened by the rest. He'd let himself get dragged down by nothing. Just like always, the elation of success had been as short-lived as a mayfly. For today's success became tomorrow's normal. And when failure rose over your head like cold water, the memory of your last successful gasp of air was no comfort at all. He was asleep and enjoying it very much when something twitched in his ear. This startled him so violently that he fell halfway from his wicker bed. The pulse came a second time. A loon. He touched his ear. Yes? My lord? Most likely. Who's this? Why, it's Jonah, sir. Still drunk on sleep, it took Dante a moment to place the name. Naren's mate from the Sod of the South. The room in the tower was utterly dark except for a band of moonlight slicing through the gauzy curtains. The others were snoring, but if Dante kept up his conversation, they wouldn't be for long. Dante slipped out the door and into the stairwell that connected the two rooms comprising that floor of the tower. Jonah, he said. I understand that the Colin Basin is far away from here, but I'll assure you that it's the middle of the night in Tanaritain as well. Oh, most sincere and severe apologies for waking you. But I bring news from Erisosis. Erisosis? How? Well, being that that's where I am, sir. I thought you were in the Colin Basin, Jonah. Yes, I was. Right up until I wasn't. Your presence there was a way to keep us in contact with the entire region. Who authorized your departure? Why, Captain Naren did, Lord. How? He couldn't possibly have made it to Colin already. He's authorized me now, you see. Now that you're in Erisosis, he authorized you retroactively? Indeed. It's a mariner thing, you see. Wouldn't expect a man of your stature to be bothered with our customs, crude as they can be. Try me, Jonah. Why did you feel you could leave Colin without my authorization? Well, Captain Naren is my captain, my lord. And you're just some lord. I suppose there's no arguing with that. Dante frowned down the dim stairwell. You're right. You're not my subject, Jonah, and I'm grateful for your help over these last few months, even though you owed me nothing. Naren made it to Erisosis all right, then. Why are you two still there? Looking for passage out? That would be somewhat redundant, I'd think, since we have the Sword of the South right here. 
The crew snuck back into port some time ago to search for the captain. I was worried Naren might never see a ship again. Thanks for letting me know. You're welcome, Lord. But I didn't wake you at hell's own hour of the night to let you know that everything is well and good. There's been an attack on Erisosis. By the monsoon. They were part of it, to be sure. Along with a horde of ghouls. Dante had been pacing about the stairwell. Hearing this, he stopped short. The blighted. Was the white lit with them? Jonah repeated the question, voice faint. In the background, Naren's voice answered, too indistinct for Dante to make out. Jonah said, Captain doesn't think so, but there was certainly a lesser lich at hand. I don't know what such a thing as that might be, but I'm guessing the both of you do. It was an ugly night, very ugly. Even after we turned the tide and were driving the ghouls from the city, they were carrying captives off with them, young and old alike. Don't think I'll forget their screams for some time. How were the defenders able to drive off the lesser lich? Were there sorcerers present? Oh, it was quite a scene, my lord. The lich and his ghouls seized the outer districts with hardly a loss. The fighting in the city proper was as vicious as you'll ever see, yet one by one the towers fell. The Tenarians retreated to make their last stand on Turtleback Island. They knocked down the only bridge to it, but the ghouls waded through the water like they had no need for air at all. With the lich at their backs, casting his sorcery about, they broke the front ranks of the defenders. But. Just as they were set to break through and capture the whole port, two knights in scaled armor, charged with blazing purple swords. Gods, it was a sight. The lich's foul magic stopped dead. One of the knights was dragged down by the ghoulish hordes, but the second cut the lich clear in twain. After that, the ghouls fought like the demons they are, looked ready to die to the last of them. But just like that, they turned and retreated from the city in a great mass, snatching up whoever they could grab along the way. Dante's mouth had gone dry. You said one of the Odosain, the knights, died in battle. What about the other one? Why, he's being showered with meat and ale as we speak, Lord. I need you and Naren to find him. You can't let him leave the city. He may be our only hope of victory. The captain had similar thoughts. You see, sir, the Tenarians might have won this battle, but they suffered most horrible losses, and the Drake Bane's already drawn off most of the city's best soldiers in his boats. Captain Naren thinks that if the devils muster a second attack, the entire city will fall. The slaughter that would come after would make what happened in the Colin Basin look like a slap fight. Tens of thousands of people, sir. Captain Naren thinks you're the only one who can stop that from coming to pass. If the next attack is led by another lesser lich, he may be right. But if it's headed by the Aiden Rani, we'll all die. But we're in the middle of learning to use the Odosain ourselves. 
We can't afford to abandon our training right now. Yes, the captain thought you'd say something like that. Then I assume he also knows why we can't go. Jonah chuckled. As a matter of fact, he's got a theory, the crafty devil. He figured you'd say that even if 20,000 souls are lost in Erisosis, breaking away from your training would guarantee the loss of infinitely more. That's exactly what we're looking at. No matter how gruesome things become in the short term, we have to think about what will save us all in the long term. Captain Aaron understands that. Surely he does. But he also asks if you might not find a way to continue your most important training and stop the city from falling to liches and ghouls. Dante puffed his cheeks with a sigh. To have any hope of that, you have to enlist the surviving knight of Odosein to our side. Do you understand me? Quite clearly, my lord. Good. Let me know if and when you've got him. I'll see what I can come up with on my end. He closed the connection to the loon. The stars indicated he had three hours until dawn. Judging that the situation wasn't quite an emergency, Dante went back to bed. But he didn't get much sleep. He finally dropped off, only to be shaken awake what felt like minutes later. His eyes were dry and scratchy, but he was lost in a pleasant stupor until he wandered out to the stairwell and remembered that everything had been upended. The others were already at breakfast. He ran down to join them, casting a glance about for lurking servants, before explaining everything that Jonah had told him. Shit, Lay said, after Dante finished. Rains of it. Hoist the shields high and don't come out until the splatter stops. There's no way we can go to Aerososis. Dante gave him a puzzled look. If we made it through the hills once, there's nothing to stop us from doing it again. Aerososis is only a few days from here. Yes, and if we make that journey, we might as well find a planet-sized knife to cut the world's throat with. I thought we were here to learn how to stop the White Lich ourselves. We are pathetic acolytes, and the gods only know how long it'll take for one of us to gain real skill. Meanwhile, there's a fully trained Odosein who might be willing to help us. One person, who we've never met before, and who might be willing to help, and who might not get targeted by the White Lich's advance agents— or exposed in a gambit by a lesser lich, or any number of other plans the big fellow will devise in response to the Odosain thwarting his first attack on the city. Aren't you normally the one who wants to try to save every last man, woman, child, dog, rodent, and cockroach that comes into harm's way? Sure, Blay said. But I've also never run into an enemy who might qualify for godhood. Before, no matter what we were up against, I always thought we stood a chance. You don't now. This is the first time I'm not sure what we do. I fear that we have no choice. Gladick dabbed his mouth with a napkin. By using his pet sorcerers as proxies, 
The Aedan Rani has found a way to move more aggressively than we anticipated. If he swallows Aerososis, he'll have an army of no less than twenty thousand blighted. With a force like that, he will absorb the rest of Tanaratain as fast as he is able to move his troops. Blaze shrugged. So, we bide our time until we're ready. Then ambush him. Impossible. He'll keep himself in the middle of an entire horde of blighted. We will have no way to get close to him. Then I'll shadow walk through the horde. Or Dante will tunnel in beneath the lich. Or we'll deploy any of the thousands of other ways we've learned to kill people over the years. You forget that, as his army grows, his personal strength swells as well. It is likely he will reach a point where he is immune to the effects of Odosein, or even to sorcery as a whole. It's likely, is it? And what are you basing that on? A long personal friendship with the White Lich? Or was it just the first thing you found when you inserted your head up your ass to search for ideas? Gladig's white eyebrows knitted together. I am reporting to you the same information that I have heard from the Drakebane, his mystics, and his historians. I suppose your expertise is superior. What have you actually done for us, though? Told us about the prime body, which plenty of other people seem to have known about. I got you here. The place which you now believe is vital to our enterprise. All you did was threaten an old man and his grandchildren. I'm reasonably sure I could have done that much, assuming I could stop vomiting at the thought of it. Dante noted with mild irony that their increasingly acrimonious discussion was causing a few stray bits of stream to drift above the low-slung breakfast table. Gladick pounded his open palm on the table, drawing a look from a servant mopping the other side of the chamber. I have proven my loyalty to our cause time and time again. Now is not the time for division. Maybe that's exactly what it's time for, Blay said. If you think you can go to Erisosis and put down the lich, nobody's stopping you. I think my efforts are best spent learning to become the only thing that can make him weak enough to stand up to. Gladick drew back from the table. A perfectly reasonable suggestion. Who then will go, and who shall stay? Dante saw two paths opening before him, and he was afraid which one he would take. He planted his hands on the table. Think this through, you fools. The choice doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't even have to be made right now. First of all, unless Naren can convince the knight to join us, the whole thing is moot, and we'll stay here. Second, the White Lich might not press the attack until he's had time to regroup in the swamps and add to his ranks. There's no need for us to go anywhere until we know there's going to be another assault on Erisosis. Until both those conditions are met, we'll continue to train at the spires. Blaze scratched his thumb against his upper lip. And what do we do if they are met? We get to Erisosis as fast as possible. 
We stand against the White Lich or whoever he sends in his stead. If we die, we die. If we kill the Aedan Rane, we throw ourselves a party and we won't stop that party until the Tenarians get sick of us and throw us out. But if we only push him into retreat, then we'll come back to the Silent Spires and continue our work. A couple of golden motes were tumbling near his head. Suddenly annoyed with them, he tried to swat them away, but he couldn't touch them with his hand any more than he could with his mind. Sounds smart to me, Volo said. But you guys never care what I have to say. Dante wanted to assure her that that wasn't true. Except it was. Blaze watched Gladick, waiting for the old man to make his move. Then swore. Yes, righto. A plan that accounts for all our concerns and contingencies. Only a complete jackass could say no. Gladick smirked. Heavens forbid that after all I've seen and done that I be labeled a jackass. I will agree as well. On the condition that Naren liaises with the Tenarians to ensure that enough scouts are deployed to detect a second strike well in advance. I'll tell Era our plans. Dante stood. If she gets mad about it, try to collect at least part of me to return to Narashtavik. He stepped out of the dining hall and bumped right into Era, who'd been steaming toward it to drag them off to the day's practice. He quickly explained what he'd heard was happening in Erisosis, as well as their plans to deal with it. Era narrowed her eyes. If we'd had any interlopers show up to bring us this news, I think I'd have heard them screaming under our knives by now. How did you get this information? Through wicked sorcery. I guessed as much. Though you would have surmised that I would guess as much, and fed me a lie you knew I would happily swallow. Be aware that if you've smuggled another of your people into the spires, we will kill you and feed you to our crops. Or maybe we'll eat you ourselves. It's been a very long time since we tasted meat. Dante called on the nether and swept his right hand in a long oval pattern. Beside him, the shadows took on a human shape. He gestured more broadly, more out of show than of need. The figure clarified into a tall woman, dark-haired, lean but strong, capable of swinging a sword or running for an hour straight. Gesturing and working more subtly, Dante added another layer of refinement to his work, honing the woman's eyes and nose and chin. Era's eyes had gone wide. With the illusion complete, a smile spread across her face. For once it wasn't wry or mocking. It was the simple joy of being caught off guard by something delightful. Hesitantly, she reached toward the vision. That's how you see me. It's not how I see you. It's how you are. If I can duplicate you like this, 
You can trust that I'm more than powerful enough to speak with people from a distance, and don't have any need to sneak people into your sanctuary. Era kept her eyes on the vision. It's a good plan. If and when the time comes, we'll help you get back to the swamps. You don't mind interrupting our training? You're the ones who forced your way into our home and demanded to learn our secrets. But let me make this clear. Even if you go to Eris Osis and slay the Aedan Rane himself, that doesn't absolve you of your promise to us. You will teach us to capture our history in books so we can add an eighth spire to this place, the Library of Tanaratain. Running out an ordeal never crossed my mind. Even if we were victorious, do you really think I wouldn't come back to finish learning to use the stream? Era smiled, half mockingly. In that case, maybe I'd rather you die in Eris Osis. She led them back to the half-wild forest that stood at the edge of the dead blasted hills. They picked up where they'd left off the day before, with three of them generating flecks of the stream, while the fourth one tried to access it. After a full round of failure, Dante folded his arms, tapping his elbow. Bell Era, will you touch the stream for us? Surely. Don't be discouraged by how easy I make it look. She lowered her chin. The slowly swirling chips of gold assembled into a loose spiral. It looked something like a clock spring, but it looked less like something hammered into shape by a human hand, and more like something made orderly by nature itself like the smooth, flat roundness of pebbles in a rushing stream. Era let the power hang there a moment, then flicked her hand, shattering it back into discreet pieces. And a second time. Give me a moment first. Dante reached out for a strand of nether from within himself, grabbed another from Era, and melded the two together. She snapped her head about to stare at him. What are you doing? Watching the process for myself, like you told us to. I didn't tell you to use your black magic. That's cheating. You're supposed to observe and reason it out on your own. That's exactly what I'm about to do. To accomplish this, I'm using a perspective none of you have access to. You should appreciate that as it can only add a new dimension to your knowledge of the Odosein. Eric grimaced. I don't know what I hate worse, when you are ignorant, or when you're able to twist your logic that far without breaking it. Go on, then. Subvert your learning with your shadows. It's always worked for me before. He checked the link between them to ensure it was secure, then nodded. Era reached out for the stream. Through the nether, Dante loomed forward as closely as he could. There was a brief moment of friction between Era and the sparks. Something seemed to rotate, then to clunk into place. This achieved, the stream came to Era's hand, waiting to be used. Would you do that again? 
Dante said. Slower this time. While I'm at it, why don't I just tell you exactly what I'm doing? It would make this go a lot faster. But I agree that it's more important to preserve your traditions than life as we know it. She gave him a long look. The corner of her mouth twitched. She turned away and moved her mind toward the stream. This time, she slowed herself tenfold. Like the first time she made contact with the golden matter, there was a straining, a kind of friction. To Dante's complete shock, Era reached out to three different sections of the stream at the same time. After a moment of intellectual panic, he focused on one section, watching as she turned the fleck of gold this way and that. Her motions had a logical flow to them, like a mathematical formula or a piece of good music. Before he could forget their sequence, he darted out to the stream himself. At first he couldn't so much as feel it. But as he began to repeat the sequence, it resisted, as if trying to pull back. He quickly repeated the process several times, etching it into his mind. He asked Era to show him again. She obliged. This time, he observed the second sequence. Practicing both it and the first until he had them memorized. He had Era move on to the final sequence. He repeated it eight times before he was positive he had it down. Taking a deep breath, he held the third sequence in place, then manipulated the stream with the first and the second. The stream held fast, refusing to be unlocked. Dante backed off, then tried again, progressing from the first sequence to the second to the third. The stream didn't seem to notice. He swore. I've been able to watch what you're doing, he told Era. But I must have got one of the sequences wrong. She stared back at him. Sequences? The way you have to interact with the stream three times to get it to open up to you. I must have made an error somewhere. Can I see you do it again? If he didn't know better, he would have said she was hiding a smile. She accessed the stream anew, keeping her motions deliberate and slow. Watching the first sequence, Dante saw that he was right about one thing. The sequence was different from what he was doing. But not in the sense that he'd made a small error that could be solved with a tweak or two. Rather, it was completely different, from start to finish. And it was different from his memorization of the second and third sequences, too. With a sinking stomach, Dante asked Era to access the stream yet again. The first sequence was radically different from both other times he'd watched her execute it. He banged his fist against his thigh. Son of a bitch! You have to change your approach to the stream every single time you want to use it. Era relaxed her hold on the stream. This comes as a surprise to you? 
When you summon Nether, it's like channeling a stream of water. Ether is more like emptying yourself and then allowing yourself to be filled with light. In both cases, the general process is the same every time. Well, apparently that's not true of the stream. Deal with it. He weighed the option of launching into an angry tirade versus getting to work. The tirade would provide immediate short-term satisfaction, but it would only delay the greater and long-term satisfaction of actually knowing how to use the God's damned golden stream. Also, error would only mock him for it. With the grim self-congratulation of doing the responsible thing, Dante moved toward a small gob of stream, turning it about at random. As he fumbled with the patterns of gold, Gladic extended an ethereal link to Era, observing the process for himself. Blaze shadow-walked to see if he could spot any clues from within the netherworld, but soon declared this an utter failure. Volo worked quietly on her own pursuits. Dante accessed one of the sparks. As soon as he attempted to wield it, it pushed back. The tension he'd seen in Era's efforts. After some fumbling around, he released the spark to see if he'd have an easier time with one of the others. It was just as impenetrable as the first. Several attempts later, he'd concluded every one of the golden sparks was unique, resisting his efforts with differing pressures and vectors. In each case, the pushback held a logical suggestion about how to negate that push and delve deeper into the spark's lock. The process of mapping this out felt like fitting pieces into a puzzle, or indeed like tripping the tumblers of a lock. Yet it was far more abstract than that. Once he realized this, Dante was able to make rapid progress through the sequence of responses necessary to access the spark. Sometimes it slipped away from him, obliging him to start over. But as their midday break approached, he completed his first sequence. Grinning, he gave himself a moment to admire his work, but only a moment. He moved on to the second sequence. Advancing carefully from one tumbler, or note, he wasn't sure what best described it, to the next. He was still working on the third note of the sequence, when the two he'd previously worked out changed shape, expelling him. Rattling off a stream of salty oaths, he switched back to the first sequence, and found that the lock which he'd thought he was all done with, had also expelled his previous work. He'd have to work through a completely new sequence to begin to open the stream. He pushed his palms against his face. This is ridiculous. It's like trying to pick a lock, right? You have to trip the tumblers in the right order— only the lock keeps changing shape while you're working on it, and after you've already opened it. That's correct, Eris said. What are you so pleased about? This is a huge setback. But it's not impossible, is it? 
or else we wouldn't be having this conversation, because I wouldn't be Odosain, since it wouldn't exist. And if there were no Odosain, then we wouldn't be able to talk in the first place, as the lich would have slaughtered our ancestors before they could have us. Look on the bright side, Blaze put in. At least this time she actually told you that you were right about something. Not knowing whether to laugh or throw things around, Dante resumed his practice. He'd gotten one sequence finished and was trying to zip through a second before the first one could change when his loon throbbed. He hopped to his feet and walked away from the others, particularly Gladick and Era, then activated the loon. Yes? Is that you, Jonna? Hope I haven't woken you again, sir. It's the middle of the afternoon. Oh, yes, I've noticed. But I wouldn't know nothing about how a nethermancer structures his days. I'd imagine you'd have to stay up awful late to get to talk with the imps and demons. Imps and demons don't exist, Dante said, and the ones that do are up and running about during the daytime as well. I must say I find that most unsettling, sir. Then let's stop talking about it and start talking about why you looned me. Well, we've found the Knight of the Odosain, Lord. In fact, Captain Naren's speaking to him in the other room right now. Dante clenched his fist in triumph. And has he agreed to help us? That's the exact matter I need to ask you about. The good knight is most interested in destroying the white lich. I'd go so far as to say he's fanatical. Thing is, he doesn't believe in the slightest that the Odosain at the Silent Spires would ever agree to work with a bunch of dirty outlanders, such as yourselves. We came to an agreement with them. I was in the middle of our training when you looned me. Oh, I'll just tell him that, then. He didn't believe me the other times I told him as much, but I'm sure this time will be different. Dante scowled into the distance. Tell him that Belle Era is as beautiful as a sunrise, but her dedication to fighting the Aiden Rane has made her nearly as terrifying as he is. Jonah chuffed with laughter. One moment, Lord. The loon went dead. Dante sat there, idling with the pathetic helplessness that was so specific to waiting for someone to reopen a loon connection. It was only a minute before it pulsed again. Well, the good knight says that if you think Bell Era is bad, you should try being trained by five. He would be honored to give his life fighting the lich by your side. Dante clenched his fist again, punching the air for good measure. You have to keep him safe in the meantime. Don't even let him be seen in public. Suppose we'll cancel the knife-swallowing contest, then. One more thing, Jonah. We're planning to stay here until we know that the White Lich plans to attack again. That means we have to know the instant he starts marching on Erisosis. That means you need plenty of scouts, and some way for them to relay information back to you in as little time as possible. Signal fires or the like. Captain Naren had that same exact thought, sir.
He's already got Tenarians ripping about in their canoes. If you hadn't noticed, they make top-notch watermen. Would love to get a few of them signed up to our crew. Even if we deposed the main threat, the Tenarians will still have to deal with the righteous monsoon. I'm sure you could find a few sailors who'd be happy to get out of the country for a while. Dante gave a thumbs up to the others. I need to return to my work. Let me know the instant you see signs of war from the Lich, even if it means interrupting me in the middle of the demon impregnation ritual. It will be done, Jonah said. I'm glad to know my lord takes the matter so seriously. Dante shut down the loon and returned to the others. Our friends in Erisosis have secured the help of the surviving knight of Odosain, Bellera. If the Lich makes a move, we're going to need to be able to leave at a moment's notice. It's already taken care of. Do you think we're stupid? She looked him up and down. Do you suppose the Aiden Rane will make a second attack on the city? I thought you guys were the experts on him. What with your entire existence being devoted to stopping him? As far as I know... You four are the only people currently alive who've squared off against him and survived. If I were an expert on the Aiden Rane and wanted to maintain that expertise as time went on, I might want to go to sources such as yourself for more current information. Despite having a conversation or two with him, I don't know much about him. Most of our talk centered on things like how I would join him or die. He was a bit one-note on that front, but it's clear he's smart and that, while he's far from reckless, he's willing to make limited gambles. That's a dangerous opponent. Furthermore, he knows that we're a dangerous opponent. I expect we've come closer to killing him than anyone has in a long, long time. You sound so proud of yourself. Shouldn't I be? Did I say it was criticism? Dante gave her a skeptical look. My point is that he can't be confident that he can simply bide his time, slowly grow his power, and stick to the safety of the deep swamps until he's sure he's invincible. Not as long as we're still out there. He moved on Eris Osis because he thought it would make him strong enough to slam the door on us. He knows the city can't withstand a second assault. He'll be back to finish the job. She nodded thoughtfully. Then you're not likely to have enough time to learn the Odosain. We'll see about that. If there's one thing I've learned about sorcery... It's that it doesn't work on the timeline you want it to, for good and for ill. They broke for lunch. Dante hurried through it, returning to the golden stream as fast as he could. But his haste was in vain. Hard as he tried, he couldn't get through the second sequence before the first one changed shape on him, obsoleting his work. Often he couldn't even complete the first one before it unraveled. The key to the stream seemed to be to pursue all three sequences at once, 
and to finish them in no more than a few moments. But doing that felt like trying to simultaneously pick three logs with two hands. He went to bed that night, afraid that error might be right after all. He woke much too early, but knew within moments he wouldn't be able to fall back asleep. Instead, he put himself through the paces of the forest, producing a speckling of stream, then reached out to it. When he was halfway through his first sequence, Blaze opened one eye, directing a filthy look at the faintly glowing pieces of gold. That's disgusting. Can't you at least do that under the covers? Dante moved his mind into the nether in the thin rope running from the upper wall to the outer corner of Blaze's bed frame. The rope severed with a crisp snip. A frame jerked downward, thumping Blaze onto the floor. Damn Tenarian rope, Dante said. It's the finest I've ever seen, and yet it will still fall apart on you at the worst possible time. When Era brought them to the field at the edge of the living land, the grass smelled of sunlight on dew. Dante's optimism for his progress was as bright as the skies. Yet that day, and the three that followed it, passed with a dismal lack of concrete steps forward. Blaze, at least, had finally got to the point where he was able to grapple with the stream, meaning that he was also able to join the others in the immensely frustrating business of participating in an activity very much like trying to build a sandcastle as it was being washed away. Even Era, who was usually happy to laugh at and casually insult them for their stupidity, grew brooding and removed. Her lack of liveliness only made Dante feel less likely to succeed. He found himself working mechanically, trying the same methods over and over, making no real efforts to vary them. He told himself he was slowly growing his skills, but he didn't know if that was true. Dante checked in with Jonah every evening, but the sailor had nothing of particular interest. But on the fifth day, after hearing that the knight of Odosein had agreed to help them, Jonah looned Dante during breakfast. Dante stood from the low table and walked to the edge of the room. Go ahead, Jonah. We've just had a report from the swamps, the sailor said. The white lich is moving his forces to the east. The scouts believe he's on his way to a town by the name of Uragal, that's several days away from us, but still a mite closer to Erisosis. It goes without saying to keep your eyes peeled for any signs of a ruse. Is it possible to evacuate Uragal? That won't be an easy thing to do, Lord. If Erisosis extends its lines to bring people down from Uragal, it will make them a very soft target. Too soft for the enemy to ignore, methinks. I didn't mean to send Erisosis's troops to the town. I meant to get Uragal's people to flee to the north. But, Lord, that's the dead opposite direction from Erisosis. That's a funny way to get them to safety. If the White Lich goes after them, it'd buy us another week to prepare.
Small price to pay to save the rest of the country. Jonah made a thoughtful noise. I suppose that's an easy decision to make when it's not your people on the chopping block. As a matter of fact, it is an easy decision, Jonah. Furthermore, if Uragal heads north, and the White Lich heads for Erisosis instead, then we've exposed his ruse and removed the people of Uragal from harm's way. Something to think about, as you're galloping around on your high horse. I was only thinking, sir. Well, that tends to be a mistake, don't it? Have the scouts gotten an estimate on the number of blighted? Hard to say, given that they like to travel beneath the water, and also to rip apart anyone who gets close enough to count them. But they say it can't be anything less than five thousand. Perhaps twice that. Dante swore. That was not the news I wanted. Should I go back and change it, Lord? It's all right. Raw numbers don't really matter. All that matters is the lich, and we still have a way to hit him. He ended the conversation, then informed Era and the others that they'd soon know whether there was an impending attack on Eris Osus. The idea that things were coming to a head helped Dante pursue the stream with renewed vigor, but by the day's end, he still couldn't get two of the three sequences to stay open at the same time. That night, long after they'd snuffed the candle and rolled into bed, the door to the room slipped open. Dante snapped open his eyes. A tall silhouette stood in the doorway. Get up. Era said softly. Don't make any noise. No lights, either. Dante disengaged himself from the wicker frame, which was happy to dump you from it if you moved too fast. Blaze and Gladick were already stirring, but Volo was sleeping with typical teen vigorousness and had to be rousted with a good shake. Era wasn't carrying a lantern, and the stairwell was so dim they had to feel their way down until their eyes adjusted. Reaching the ground floor, she stopped to listen, then continued to the doorway. Dante had spent very little time outside the towers after dark. A gentle wind blew in the heat of the captured sunlight that continued to be released from the mostly black hills. The wind was blowing out of the northwest, and Era led them in the exact opposite direction, stopping at the line of trees before the ground gave way to the warped nakedness of the hills. I always think they look spooky at night, she said, like anything could come out of them. Blaze squinted into the darkness, the wind ruffling his blonde hair. I hadn't had that thought, but thank you for infecting me with it. Sit down, all of you, and get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. Dante lowered himself to the grass. It was dewy and cool. What's this about? Now we need to practice in our sleep, too. 
If you're going to get mad about this, you'll have to curse yourself, you dunce. I'm giving you exactly what you asked for. The first history of the Odosaine. Era plucked annoyedly at her robe. We never revealed this until the night before a student is to be knighted and bestowed with their sword. But you're about to fight for us, and you might be about to die for us. And there's a small chance you might even win for us. So it stands to reason that you deserve to know who we are and what you have become a part of. She lifted her eyebrows. Although it goes without saying that if you tell any of the other bells that I told you this, it'll be a race to see whether they can kill you before I get to. Julie noted, Lay said. The story that most people know is that the Odo Sain were founded to put down the sorcerers and warlocks who were attempting to overthrow our rulers. But this is only partly true. It's like pointing to the base of a tree and saying that it grew from its roots. In a limited way, that's so. But you're forgetting all about the seed. Our seed dropped a few hundred years before the Aedan Rane. We're not sure exactly how long, because we didn't, and still don't, have physical records, and there's lots that's been lost in the chaos. What's important is that among the Usain, there was a man named Sean Wei. As a boy, he heard tales of the Arnard, fierce nomads of what are now the Alabolgian prairies. The Arnad had disappeared a century before Shan's birth. Nobody knew why or where they'd gone. This, along with their prowess in battle, made Shan obsessed. He pestered all the adults he knew for stories of the Arnad. And when he played with his friends, he made them play as the barbarian nomads. Most childhood interests fall aside with age. Shans didn't. As soon as he was old enough, he descended from the hills and into the prairies, visiting the villages the Arnard had burned, raped, and defiled over the years. There he collected more stories of the Arnard, as many as he could. Where there were books or scrolls, he got those too, buying what he could and stealing the rest. His studies went on for years. He used to earn money by going to squares and inns to tell the best stories he'd found. Soon he was composing his own historical works on the Arnad. His interest in them was him. Still, despite everything he'd learned, he still hadn't figured out why the people of his obsession had disappeared. Finally, long after any sane man would have given up, he heard a story that the Arnad had disappeared into the Hitchcrag Mountains for reasons unknown. He set out on a pilgrimage into the mountains. Alone, because he was crazy. As he traveled, he imagined the path the Arnad had taken all the reasons they might have left the plains, what he'd say to them 
if he found them. Within a few days he'd gotten lost. As he tried to find a path back out, he stumbled into a shaded valley. Bones littered the ground, half buried and covered in moss. Most of the clothes had rotted away, but Shan recognized their long knives at once. He had found the Arnard. Puzzled as to what had slaughtered such mighty warriors, he examined countless skeletons, searched their effects for scrolls, especially those with orders from their chiefs or communications from afar. Picked his way across the valley, assembling the pieces like a mosaic, he put together a theory. The Arnad's shaman had had a vision that if they stayed on the prairie, their people would be wiped out. Not being fans of extinction, they headed into the Hitchcrags, seeking sanctuary. Instead, they found death. Why? Shan ran through one possibility after another, envisioning how the Arnad must have been taken by surprise, pushed to one side of the valley, induced to make their last stand and die. In the middle of his imagining this, something remarkable happened. Shan was given a glimpse. He was there as the Arnad entered the valley. He watched as they were ambushed by a combined army of furious plains dwellers. He saw the last of the Arnad fall, and he witnessed as a shaman in wolf furs hiked up a ridge to receive the rewards of his betrayal. Three pouches of silver and the hand of the firstborn daughter of the enemy king. Seated in the grass, Era tipped back her head and gazed up at the stars. Shan was gobsmacked by what he'd seen, understanding at once how and why he'd been granted the glimpse. He remained in the valley, trying to attain another sip of the nectar of the past. Two weeks later, his wish was finally granted. But the glimpse wasn't of the Arnard, or of their foes. It was of a man and his pregnant wife, crossing the valley in winter. They were dressed in buckskins, and though the stitching was skillful, the style looked older than anything Shan had seen. As the two of them climbed a ridge, the woman slipped in the snow. The man grabbed her hand and pulled her to safety, but lost his balance, tumbling down the slope to his death. Knowing there was nothing she could do, the woman trudged on. Sean didn't see whether she'd made it before the vision ended. Sean had finally found the Arnard, but he left the valley with a much deeper revelation. The past could be had again. Finding it became his new obsession. As he traveled and studied and practiced, he found that he didn't need to know everything about a people to catch a glimpse of them. He only needed to think so fully about who they might have been that a gaze would open to show them as they truly were. Sean saw the people who had become the Osain, 
as war pushed them from the Alabolgian coast and into the hills. He saw the Tracians, who built intricate earthen mounds, only to pull them down a dozen years later, as if disgusted with their own work. He saw the Natchians, the forge masters who brought us iron from the rusty hills. Each sight let Shan envision what led up to that sight, letting him skip further and further back. He was now seeing people who had been completely forgotten, people he'd never heard of before. He saw people who rode horses without saddles. Then others who didn't seem to know how to farm, following the herds and streams with the seasons. Then others who wore furs and chipped arrowheads from rocks. At one glimpse, he saw a young boy summon a sphere of darkness. As he looked at it in wonder, the others of his tribe ran up behind him with rocks and beat him to death. Then something changed. Before the cities had been gone, but people were still plentiful. Now there were almost none of them at all. The few Shan could find hid high in the mountains or in the deepest forests, living in the crudest savagery imaginable. He felt himself skipping more and more years with each glimpse, but he had no idea how much time was passing, only that, at night, the stars were no longer where they should be, and that beasts who roamed the prairies were bigger and more terrible than anything he'd ever seen. Then came a jump much longer than any before, one that made his head spin and his stomach drop. When the glimpse resolved, what Sean saw nearly stopped his heart. Grand castles, towering spires, aqueducts soaring down from the mountains, all of it was bigger and more beautiful than anything Sean had ever imagined. The people were tall and sleek and rode around on proud horses. The streets were so clean they dazzled. Markets sold food and goods that had to have come from every corner of the world. The glimpse expanded further. Sean saw wizards wielding the light and shadow to raise immense monuments and dizzying towers to themselves. Others sat in finished spires reading their tomes. Each one had their own tower, where they studied their art and performed subtle experiments, while hundreds of guards and servants tended to the needs of the tower. They had made the realm, and they had made it great. Era paused to slip a waterskin from her robe and take a long drink. She cleared her throat and resumed. The glimpse moved away from the towers and into a darker mode. Chan watched as thousands of slaves worked the fields outside the city. Women whose minds had been hollowed out by sorcery swept and scrubbed the streets, collecting buckets of shit with grins on their faces. Men hacked blocks of stone from the hills, straining until they collapsed. For every person who lived well, four lived in agony. 
kept in place by the unbreakable power of the warlocks and the twisted creatures they'd shaped to enforce their laws. Sean saw at last that the aching beauty of the realm was only made possible by an even greater horror. The sights afforded him by the vision began to speed up. Grim men and women worked in secret with a gold substance that glimmered on the air, hiding their activities from the wizards. In Sean's next sight, the people marched openly on the fields and quarries, freeing the slaves to join their ranks in rebellion. Time slid forward, and the nether and ether were leaping through the streets of the cities, slaughtering the rebels by the tens of thousands. But those who bore the golden stream wrested the dark powers away from the warlocks. With the sorcerers reduced to mortal men, the rebels rushed in to string them from the rafters by their own guts. The sorcerers resorted to blasting whole neighborhoods into flattened rubble, clearing the way so that the wielders of the stream couldn't sneak up on their towers without being seen. Unchecked fires tore across the cities. Battles raged in the fields, until everything that could be burned was burned. One after another, the sorcerers' towers were ripped down. The sorcerers bludgeoned into meat and fed to the dogs. The glimpse slipped forward again. In one city, half the towers had fallen. Most of its districts lay in ruin. From the bases of the remaining towers, demons and monsters raced forth, carving through the mobs. Another slip, and the demons were dead, but human corpses layered the streets like autumn leaves. The skies were black with ash and the soot of the bodies. What was left of the rebels marched on the towers? Protected by the bearers of the stream, they pulled the warlocks down to earth. Only five towers stood between the people and their freedom. Then four, then three. As the rebels moved to the third to last tower, its door swung open before they could attack it. A pack of abominations bounded out and scythed into the mobs. Not human, not demon, not dead, but some measure of all three. And when they killed you, if they didn't eat you, or jam one claw up your ribs, another down your pelvis, and rip you in half, you became one of them. And when the entire mob lay dead, or stood converted, and every soul in the city had been taken, the beasts returned to the towers, and ate the very sorcerers who'd made them. The abomination spread faster than the news of them. Those places untouched by the war were gutted in a matter of days. Riders raced to rally people against the menace, but the resistance was overwhelmed before it could form. The survivors fled into the high mountains and deep wilderness. Only a few thousand scattered people withdrew far enough to hide. Everyone else was killed or absorbed. 
until the abominations were all that remained on the earth. Even without humans to feed on, it took a long time for them to die. Hundreds of years, perhaps. Although since they built nothing and grew nothing, the glimpse gave Sean little indication of time. Eventually, the last of them passed. Even then, the people huddled in the peaks and jungles. Centuries later, when they finally emerged from their holes to see what had come of the world, the people were dressed in skins and carrying spears tipped with bone and rock. At last, Sean was released from what he would call the long glimpse. He was so horrified by what he'd seen that he didn't move for three days. When he stirred at last, a single thought rang in his mind. Sorcery had destroyed the world. A much better world than his own. And it was only a matter of time until it did so again. Worse yet, someday it would destroy everything. All people, all beasts, all trees and fields and flowers. But he knew a way to fight it. The Golden Stream. Sean spent twenty years searching for it, guided only by what little he'd seen during the nightmare of his long glimpse. He was an old man before he finally found it, and learned to harness it. Before he died, he taught it to three disciples. Three disciples who would watch sorcery spread across Tanaratain and who would found the order of the Odosein to combat it. Era bowed her head. She looked exhausted by the tale, as if the telling had taken a lifetime. The others exchanged a series of glances as complicated as semaphore. Okay, I'll say it, Blay said. Isn't this utterly crazy? Era looked up, a hard glint in her eye. You're calling our history crazy. First off, a man with no otherworldly training whatsoever was so obsessed with a gang of long-dead horsemen that he conjured up a heretofore unknown form of sorcery. Except it wasn't truly unknown, because, as it turns out, thousands of years before that, Another group of anti-sorcerers deployed that same power against their slave masters in a war that destroyed the world. Wrong. It wasn't thousands of years ago. It was tens of thousands. Well, that makes it much more believable. Sean was given glimpses. Unlike people, glimpses don't lie. Was Sean a person? What else would he be? A jumble of cats walking around in a human skin? If Shan was a person, and people lie, then maybe he lied about the glimpses. Era gave him a disgusted look. Do you people use this same scrutiny on your hopelessly complicated religions? Of course not, Gladick said, for they are ours.
If you deny them, the powers that be send people like me to correct you. Dante brushed what he hoped was a beetle from his foot. You may think our beliefs are ridiculous, but I don't see how yours are ironclad. Sean could have made all of it up. Or, more likely, he really did discover the Odosein, and his disciples invented a fabulous history for him in order to lend your order more credence. Gladick nodded once. Even if Sean did see everything that he claimed, that is no proof of its historical veracity. One achieves glimpses through profound expenditure of imagination. One might work oneself into such a fanciful mental state that one visits a delusion upon oneself in the form of a glimpse. In other words, Sean might have imagined the whole thing while genuinely believing he was seeing our long-lost past. Their discussion had generated a sprinkle of the stream. Era waved at the flex, looking simultaneously annoyed, yet amused. No one since Sean has been as talented as he was. We've never been able to go as far back as he did. But some of us have caught glimpses of the more recent past. What we've seen matches up with his story. Dante leaned forward in the grass. What about the great cities he claimed to see? The castles and towers? Why aren't there any ruins around? Most were annihilated in the cataclysm. The rest were eroded over the long passage of years, along with all memory of what had happened. Time annihilates us more totally than we know, priest of the eleven and one gods. It annihilates us more than we want to know. The night was still warm, but a shudder passed over his body. The hell-painted hills were a black sprawl of spiked and gnarled rock. The starkness of the land seemed to threaten that someday everything would be just as empty as it was. I don't know whether what you've told us is true, Dante decided, but I'm glad to have heard it. Absolutely, Lay said. Nothing beats being yanked out of bed in the middle of the night and forced to consider the aching void of eternity and your pathetic insignificance within it. Why torture us, I mean gift us, with this story anyway? We still haven't heard a peep about the lich mounting another assault. Era pulled the collar of her robe tight across her neck. I have a feeling that won't be true for much longer. Don't tell me you can glimpse the future, too. If so, please don't tell me how I die. I'm really looking forward to being surprised by it. The Odosein can't see the future any better than anyone else can. But I am very cynical, which makes me more accurate than most of you. Bell Era, Gladick said. I must ask... No, no more questions. I've told you as much as you deserve. Get back to your beds. 
and don't talk about this again. Dante fell back asleep more easily than he thought he would. When he dreamed, it was of walking through a grassy field, where all people and animals had long since died, and the only voice left was that of the wind. Lord Galland! Jonah's voice, typically musing and slow-paced, was taut and forced. I have a new report for you, sir. Dante was alone for once, out in the fields, taking a walk to clear his head. Go on, Jonah. The people of Uragal were evacuated as ordered. They headed north, fast as they could. For some miles, the Lich and his army kept after them. But then the enemy broke south to make for Aerososis. I'm not paid to decide such things as that, Lord. How long ago was this? It was half a day before we learned from the scouts. I've kept as close to the front as I dared. Dante did some quick mental math. We have to leave now. Otherwise, if he is headed for Aerososis, we won't have time to get there before he sacks the city. Is there anything else? Not yet, sir. Then I have to prepare to leave. Tell me at once if circumstances change. He dashed back toward the seven columns that made up the silent spires. As he entered the plaza between the buildings, he called out to a servant to help him find Bel Era. Hearing Dante shout her name, she appeared on a balcony in her tower. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. The lich is coming to Erisosis. We have to get moving. For a moment, Era looked bleak. Then she smiled, as mean as a falling rock. Then I'd better help you stick a blade through the Aiden Rane's blue heart. Wait there. She disappeared from the balcony. Dante instructed the servant to inform the others they needed to get ready to go at once. The servant jogged off at a speed that was fast enough to indicate respect, but slow enough to indicate that Dante wasn't his master. The door to the tower banged open, spraying servants into the plaza. They dashed off at full tilt, because Era was right behind them, striding down the steps as her light robes fluttered behind her. She stopped above Dante. How soon do you mean to leave? Immediately. We'll barely make it to Aerososis ahead of the lich. We'll need every spare second to prepare the city. I thought you'd say that. I imagine your entire life consists of racing from one place to another at full tilt, trying to save it all. That's why you're here, isn't it? Not exactly. Oh, then how... Did you come to be traveling about in a country where foreigners aren't allowed outside of the port, putting your life on the line to save us from a monster who's one of our own people? A liar on an island pretended to be my dead dad. Era burst into unguarded laughter. I'm deeply regretful that we didn't have time for you to tell me that story. It's a strange one and probably longer than it's worth. But if we make it out of this alive, I'll be happy to tell you the tale. I might like that. She descended two more steps to stand beside him.
You actually think you can kill him, don't you? So far, I haven't met anyone that I couldn't. I'll be honest with you, because it'll be funny. When you first came here, I thought you and your friends were a joke. That you'd exaggerated your encounters with the lich and would be pulverized by him if you met him again. You're right. That's hilarious. If you had no faith in us, why did you agree to train us? You made a very good argument. And that was enough to convince you to waste our time and your own? She looked at him, then away. There are some things that can't be discovered through reason. Maybe I wanted to help you because, even though I didn't believe you could do it, I wanted to think that you could. Blaze strolled into the square, waving at them. Out of deference, he hadn't been carrying his swords around the silent spires, but he was wearing them now. Hello! Are we off to participate in something horrible? It's about time, isn't it? Dante said. I don't think we've committed any war crimes in weeks. Volo and Gladick arrived soon after. Dante filled them in. As he spoke, servants showed up with tightly packed bundles of provisions, blankets, and tools. It looked like more than they needed. As Dante was about to object that it would slow them down, hooves clopped into the plaza. Dante turned in confusion. He hadn't seen any signs of horses the whole time they'd been at the spires, and was utterly baffled by the team of dappled animals brought forth. They were the size of ponies, but they had the horns of goats, and the beards of goats, and the snouts, ears, and eyes of goats. Dante wrinkled his brow. What on earth are those? What do they look like? Hera said. Goats. Really big ones. Congratulations. You didn't need to ask me after all. You should apply this lesson to more of your questions in the future. But what are the really big goats for? Eating your really big piles of trash? Hera sighed. What does it look like? They're wearing saddles, with stirrups. Lyle's balls, we're supposed to ride them. I'm guessing you'll find that much more comfortable than letting them ride you. Gladick wandered forward, waving his left hand about before him. I'd wondered how your knights were able to cross the hell-painted hills without dying. How fast can these beasts travel? Would you rather I tell you? Or would you rather experience the joy of finding out for yourself? Don't tell us! Volo jogged over to a black goat with white ears and chin. This one's mine. What are they called? Lawn Harbor. Strongfoot to you worthless barbarians. Blaze approached one of the animals, a brown-furred giant dappled with white spots. It gave him a sideways glance. Any trick to riding them? Sure, Eris said. Don't fall off. She moved next to one of the lawn harbor and patted its well-groomed flank. Given the circumstances, 
and the fact you've already felt the impact of the hills for yourselves, I doubt I need to tell you not to delay. Fortunately, the animals are as strong as they look. Dante turned to regard the fiery patterns splattered across the hills. They turn you into blighted, don't they? Not a pleasant fate, and not easy to come back from. Much easier to kill you. She flashed a grin. Like I said, don't delay. The servants were already loading the beasts with provisions. There were eight Lon Harbour in all. Four for them, two for their guides, and two spares. As Dante waited for the final preparations, he gave thought to creating a loon linked to himself and Era, both to keep her apprised of what was happening and to continue their training as they traveled. But there were two problems there. First, even at a time like they presently faced, he didn't want to spread the loons to anyone he didn't have complete faith in. Not when they could be used by warlords and corrupt kings to do such harm. And second, making a loon required parts of a dead animal. There were no animals in the silent spires, aside from the Lawn Harbor, which he was confident the Odosain would never let him kill. Although there wasn't any reason that a newly killed human couldn't be used to make a loon, was there? Dante found his gaze resting on one of the older servants as the man shuffled across the plaza. Judging from the short, stuttery steps the man was taking, he wouldn't be useful for much longer anyway. Then why not? Dante shook his head. Hard. As soon as the animals were ready, Blaze jumped into the saddle like he'd been riding giant goats his entire life. Dante brought himself beside one of the beasts, letting it accept his presence. He stuck his foot through the stirrup, pushed off, and swung into the saddle. The lawn harbour was a little lower to the ground than a typical riding horse, but thicker through the middle. It smelled thoroughly goaty. Era moved to stand across from them. Remember our deal. Even if you kill the lich, if you don't come back to found the library of the Silent Spires, we'll make you wish the Aiden Rane had stuck you on his spear instead. Dante laughed. Is that right? You can't even leave this place. How do you think you'd come find us? Our knights would. Yes, I bet they turn against the people who finally killed the monster who was bent on destroying your entire nation. Be seeing you, Bel Era. He nudged the Lawn Harbor's flanks. As the animal turned away, Dante spotted a smile on Era's face. Their two guides were a man and a woman dressed in airy white robes, with masks that could be drawn over their mouths and noses in case the winds got too dusty. Both of them had the stoic and silent bearing of those whose duties endanger their lives on a regular basis. They brought the four outsiders to the southeast perimeter and stepped from the living oasis into the blasted slag of the wasteland.
the goats stepped from rock to rock with total surety. They weren't half as fast as a galloping horse, but the ride was much smoother. And compared to how slow Dante and the others had been on their way to the spires, struggling up inclines, worried about their footing at all times, they were racing along. This won't take us a full day, he said in mild wonder. According to what Jonah told me, even if the White Lich pushes as fast as he can, we'll beat him to Erisosis by as much as a day and a half. Blaze put his fist to his mouth and yawned. What kind of defenses are we looking at mounting? Jonah thinks the Tenarians can field at least three thousand half-decent soldiers, maybe as many as a thousand more, if they can arm some of the people who've been trickling in from the swamps. We'll still be outnumbered, twofold, if not three, but the core of Erisosis is nothing but towers. They'd need ten times as many to dislodge us. Unless, say, they had the help of the world's most powerful sorcerer to act as a siege engine. If he comes close enough to start knocking down towers, he'll be close enough for the knight to shut him down. Then it's just a matter of breaking through to the prime body. Think he'll bring it to a protracted siege instead? I don't think he has a choice. But I'll send in my little flying spies before he's within twenty miles of the city. If he leaves the prime body behind, we'll find it. This was the last significant conversation they had for several hours. Dante kept watch on himself and the others for signs of oncoming blight. But the way the Lawn Harbor was steadily stepping forward, he doubted whether they'd feel any ill effects before they were out of the hills. The direct sunlight was brutal, but it turned out the servants had packed extra traveling robes. As to why they hadn't informed Dante and the others about that to begin with, he could only guess that it came down to the spire's pervasive obsession with making everyone figure everything out for themselves. The guides pushed onward into twilight. When Dante raised concerns about the beasts tripping, the woman grunted something about the Lawn Harbor's superior ability to see in the dark. They didn't call a halt until full darkness lay upon them. They camped in a valley that was deep enough to protect them from the wind, but not so steep to have to worry about rocks falling on them in the night. Sleeping in the hills was never easy, but at least they had proper blankets. Even so, everyone was up before the sun. The guides had them on their way while the eastern crags were still turning gray. Dante passed the time fiddling with the stream. When this grew tiresome, he thought for a long time about the story Era had told them about the founding of the Odosain. He was halfway through blurting out a question about it to Gladic when he remembered Era had sworn them to secrecy, and they were in the presence of two Odosain soldiers with absolutely nothing to do except listen to every word the outsiders said. The thought that he'd almost exposed Era made his back stiffen. With the sun nearing eleven o'clock, they topped a ridge and looked down on a sprawl of green-black trees. Ribbons of water glimmered from the gaps in the canopy. Descending to the boundary, 
The smell of plants and half-stagnant water enveloped them like a mist. There it is. Volo pointed downhill to where her canoe rested upside down on the grass. I was sure someone would take it. I'd steal it if I saw it lying around like that. The guides brought them down to the swamp's edge, crossing into the grass of the living land. They would remain there for a day in order to let the corruption of the hills fade from their bodies before returning to the silent spires. Dante thanked them. They nodded, saying nothing. The four outsiders loaded up the canoe and got on their way, heading southeast toward the coast and Aeris Osis. With Volo paddling, Blaze turned for a last look at the hills. That was a surprisingly uneventful trip, considering that it kills everyone else who passes through it, and your death can only be avoided with the aid of magical giant goats. There was nothing magic about them. Dante said. But they were pretty giant. The canoe coasted along through the trees. Dante felt a fly land on him and smashed it with a scowl. Gladic, I never had the chance to ask you. What's your take on the story Era told us about the founding of the Odosain? I believe, the priest said, that the Odosain have created a grand history for themselves, one which can be used to explain why they are special, and hence why they are justified in committing whatever crimes the Drakebane commands them to enact against his own people. I was actually wondering if you thought Sean could be right about the stream, but wrong about the past. But I suppose that's also an answer. It is not a criticism unique to the Odosain. All of those who proclaim that only they know the truth are guilty of the same sinister motives. Including you and me. If not, then we would be exceptional indeed. Do you need to turn yourself into the malish authorities? Because you're starting to sound like you don't believe in the gods at all. I believe. Gladick said. But I begin to wonder if I should. You know, it's interesting. If you think about it, their story doesn't preclude ours from also being true. The gods could have created the world just as the cycle, or your Bannaden, says they did. And then the Nethermancers might have enslaved four-fifths of the populace, leading to a revolt against them which they tried to stop with a weapon that destroyed all human culture. And then, a long, long time later, after civilization returned, the mortals in the cycle did all the things it says they did. That is logically possible, but it seems more likely that you're deluding yourself. If Shan's story is correct, and everything was destroyed, all knowledge, all records, then how do we still know of the gods? Easy. The gods told their stories to our ancestors, inspiring them to write the cycle. If you'd created the entire world for people to live in, wouldn't you want them to know about that? I would.
And I wouldn't let them stop them from knowing just because a group of morons screwed everything up tens of thousands of years ago. Yet the gods never correct us when we are wrong about them today. Dante swatted at another fly. Maybe it's enough that the story is known by some people. And maybe you rationalize, because it is more comfortable to be swaddled in lies than to face the cold truth with naked skin. That's enough, Blaze said. Of all the atrocious things you've done, by far the worst is making me imagine you naked. Dante frowned. Now that the silent spires were behind them, Era's claims felt flimsier, less authoritative. Yet something about the story of the Odosain remained compelling. Specifically, the idea that it could have happened, or at least that the history of the world could be so ancient, and they'd have no way to know it. Dante knew firsthand how much could be destroyed within a single century. With a thousand years of erosion, entire peoples and disasters were washed from the shores of time. As long as they were, a century and even a millennium were still relatable enough spans of time that people had words to express them. Yet there was no word for a length of ten thousand years. Ten thousand years ago was so distant that not a single name, word, or deed from that time was remembered today. And if, as Era had implied, the time Sean had seen was closer to a hundred thousand years ago, then time was a black pit, bottomless and without end. When your life came to a close, you are flung down that pit, and though your screams might echo to the surface for a while yet, until everyone who had known you died as well, and perhaps a few hundred years beyond that, if you were exceptionally famous, over a long enough period of time, you would be forgotten. Then you would be alone, damned to fall forever in darkness punished eternally for having dared to exist for your flash-brief span of years. This was deeply unsettling, so Dante turned to the purpose of improving their immediate security, which was all he could hope to control. He killed half a dozen dragonflies, sending two ahead, one behind, and three others in the direction of the Lich's armada. Their team passed the remainder of the day swapping between paddling and practicing with the stream. Dante checked in with Jonah that night, and was informed that the White Lich was now heading straight for Aerososis. Even with all the speed of the Blighted, however, it would be two to three days until the enemy arrived at the city. It might even be long enough that Dante would be able to raise strategic ramparts with enough time to fully recover the Nether before the battle. They made camp on an island. After the quiet of the spires, the cacophony of birds and bugs was almost overwhelming. Summer was near and brought the dawn early. They sailed on. 
Dante spent time with the stream, but in the middle of a bout of forest, he found himself thinking of Era. He'd promised to return to the spires, and he hoped he'd be able to keep his word. Otherwise, she was confined there, and he'd never see her again. They were still half a day out from Erisosis when Dante's loon throbbed. Lord Galland, Jonah said, I bring urgent news. News that won't make you look at me with any fondness. The sooner you tell me it, the sooner I can figure out who actually deserves my anger. It's Erisosis, sir. The enemy is much closer than we knew. They'll be upon the city in a matter of hours. That's not possible. Your scouts have been shadowing the lich this whole while. Even if he'd somehow slipped around you, he'd still be at least a day out from Erisosis. You're not wrong, Lord. The problem is that the enemy who's closing on the city isn't the White Lich. It's the righteous monsoon. Eleven. The monsoon. Dante began to get to his feet. The rocking of the canoe reminded him this was extremely bad form. How many are there? Hard to be certain, sir, Jonah said. We've only had one scout come in yet, and she didn't stick around long enough to tally a good count. She claimed the enemy had no fewer than two thousand, but that could easily be much more. Two thousand wouldn't be nearly enough to take the city. Ten thousand might not do it. Aye, Lord Galland. Captain Naren raised the same point and suggested they were lying in wait to attack alongside the ledge. But he also thought the monsoon might strike first. Locking Erisosis's defenders in place, allowing the lich to maneuver freely, and perhaps to identify in advance where it's keeping its most vital defenders, such as any remaining knights of Odosain. That was the captain's thinking. Dante gritted his teeth. How did the city scouts miss the fact there was a second fleet on the way? The swamp is a dark place, Lord. With so many of our eyes on the ledge, we didn't spare enough to watch the rest of the wilds. I'll have eyes of my own on the lich soon enough. I'd like for you and Naren to withdraw to the city. Will you arrive before the monsoon? I doubt it. That's why I need your eyes there. That way you can tell me exactly where to land the hammer blow to break the siege. Dante silenced the loon. The others had heard his side of the conversation, and he needed no more than a few moments to deliver them the rest. The monsoon will attack first, Gladick declared. To the Aedan Rane, they are wholly expendable. Just as Naren suspected, the Lich will deploy them to press for weaknesses and to identify any elements who could pose a threat to the Lich himself. Such as us. Dante said, which raises the question of whether we should intervene against the monsoon at all. Blaze cracked his knuckles. So your daring proposal is to race into Erisosis as fast as we can, then boldly sit on our thumbs while its citizens are slaughtered? 
The White Lich wants us to show our hand. If we hang back, we retain the element of surprise. But we can absolutely demolish the monsoon. We'll shred these guys so bad, there won't be enough of them left to wipe our asses with. Which I would recommend against, as it might turn out you're using a piece of their ass. The priority must remain upon the Lich, Gladick said. If leaving the defenders of Erisosis to fend for themselves enables us to bring the Aedon Rane down, then that's what we must do. When you break the point of a spear, you blunt the weapon. By crushing the monsoon, we can smash the Lich's campaign while saving thousands of lives. Those lives are inconsequential beyond their use against our foe. We have been forced beyond the bounds of conventional morality. Anything and everything may be sacrificed to the cause. I'd say that's been your motto all along. Aerososis is your chance to get a little less in the red on the life ledger. Dante silently commanded one of his forward dragonflies to beeline toward Aerososis and determine how far they had left to travel. I think I have to play this one by ear. If the defenders are holding their own, there's no need to intervene. It would only reveal us. But if Aerososis is in danger of falling to the monsoon before the Lich even gets there, we have to get involved. Otherwise, he'll have the city without exposing himself to us. And that's the end of that. Everyone except Gladick took up the canoe's three paddles, driving themselves forward as fast as they could. When they wore down, Gladick used the nether to remove the weakness from their muscles. Their pace was strong, but the path through the waterway was crooked and winding, fouled with brambles and dead trees. Dante's dragonfly spotted the towers of Aerososis after an hour of flight, implying it was as little as thirty miles away, but he expected it would be six hours until their arrival. The city still bore evidence of the attack led by the lesser lich the week previously. The outlying crops had been torn down and burned, and some of the house-raft neighborhoods had been scattered. Like a furrow left by a great plow, a trail of ash and devastation marked the pathway the lesser lich and his army of blighted had carved across the islands on their way to the city's core. There, the towers of two islands had been knocked into rubble, broken stone jutting from the canals. Several other towers bore damage heavy enough to render them unstable. Repair efforts had been made at their bases, but these had clearly been suspended in the face of the second attack. Their efforts were now being spent to buttress the defenses. Erisosis featured a unique challenge in that regard. Each island was separated from its neighbors by a wide canal and sported two to five towers, rending them difficult to take through conventional means. However, this same separation meant that, if the neighboring islands could be taken, the defenders would be completely cut off, without any means to retreat. Furthermore, that lack of mobility meant that if the enemy could break a hole in the defenses, they could penetrate straight through to the citizen population. 
Not good news when the Lich could convert every captured citizen into a new member of his own army. To work with all these considerations, the people of Aerososis were stacking their defenses on a peninsula of islands that extended into the protected bay of the port. To fend against the blighted, who could bypass the choke point by walking straight through the water, the defenders had piled up dirt and rubble into ramparts on the shores of the island. Wooden stakes thrust outward from the shorelines and the tops of the ramparts. Soldiers drilled in war canoes, maneuvering between the canals and the bay. Laborers extended the hasty earthworks. On the side of the peninsula facing away from the city and out to the ocean, a huge cluster of rafts and canoes bobbed in the gentle currents of the bay. If the defenses were overwhelmed, the people could, hypothetically, strike out to sea. But this struck Dante as a very desperate last resort. Few of the vessels were seaworthy, and he doubted there were enough to carry the thousands of people packed into the towers. Still, it looked like more than enough to deal with the monsoon. Dante ordered the dragonfly to gain elevation and head east-northeast in the direction of the incoming rebels. In less than half an hour of flight, a dozen miles perhaps, his scouts spotted the canoes slicing through the swamps. He lowered it through the canopy to skim over the length of the convoy. Once he was done reviewing their troops, which took longer than he was happy about, he pinged Jonah's loon. I just got a look at the monsoon's ranks. Your scouts must have been observing with one eye closed, because I see closer to four thousand. You'll have to pardon the men, Jonah said as mildly as ever. They weren't expecting to see any armies at all, let alone one of them. The monsoon's traveling with some weird boats, too, bigger than you typically see in the swamps. It could be logistical, but I have a bad feeling it's siege equipment. We're right about to enter the city, my lord. I'll pass your findings along. But I have a question, my lord. Yes? If you can spy on them better than our own scouts, why weren't you doing so from the start? My gods, you're right, Jonah. Why didn't I think of that until right now? This falls under the category of things I don't understand, doesn't it? Even the nether has limits. Expect us in four hours. Until then, I'll be watching over you. He sent another pair of dragonflies toward the city, leaving the first behind to follow the monsoon. Two boring yet strenuous hours later, the monsoon still hadn't deviated course or broken pace. Dante looned Jonah to expect an attack in as little as twenty minutes. Unlike most Tenarian cities, which were ringed by nothing more substantial than two sets of nets, Erisosis was enclosed by a stone wall, the same one Volo had smuggled Dante and Blaze through when they'd first come to Tenaritain in search of Naran. Though the defenders were concentrating the bulk of their forces on the peninsula, they decided to make an initial stand at the wall, deploying four hundred soldiers along it, archers mixed with a few spearmen. 
In the event they were overrun, a long road consisting of both docks and small islands ran directly into the heart of the city, providing a fast means of withdrawal. Other than the soldiers along the wall, the swampward reaches of the city had been emptied out except for a handful of runners. The waters of their canals were so still that Dante could see the ripples of fish breaching. As the first of the monsoon's canoes broke from the tree line, and into the clear outer ring of water on the north end of the city, one of the runners lit an arrow, tilted back his bow, and fired it into the air, leaving a thick band of reddish smoke in its wake. The man hopped into a canoe and paddled like mad toward the interior. The monsoon crossed the waters without resistance, a chevron of over six hundred boats. Most were simple canoes, but one in eight were larger, double-hulled war canoes with a simple bridge, and one in twenty were wide, covered barges that resembled lumbering turtles. Rather than being oar-driven, they were propelled by a pair of objects that resembled mill wheels, one wheel affixed to either side of the hull. The exteriors had been painted black with red lines sectioning the design into plates, furthering the resemblance to a turtle and seemed unusually shiny, as if they'd been lacquered. The armada came to a stop just outside of effective bow range. A lone war canoe detached from the mass. It bore the white flag with the two blue circles of the monsoon. Its captain climbed onto the top of the war canoe's bridge and made the typical demands for the city's defenders to lay down their arms and surrender. The defenders, aware that surrender, in this case, was shorthand for wait for the lich to turn you all into raving blighted, responded with voluminous obscenities. The war canoe returned to its ranks. There was a short pause as orders were relayed via shouting and semaphore. Ten of the turtle boats detached from the armada, wheels churning as they advanced ploddingly on the wall in a loose line. A score of canoes followed tightly in their wake. The defenders loosed arrows that struck the sloped hulls of the turtle boats without dealing any damage at all. Flames lit up along the wall. A hail of burning arrows arced through the air, half landing on the boats while half sizzled into the water. Yet rather than flaring up and spreading to the hull, the oiled rags flickered dimly. The shiny surface of the boats had been applied to stymie this exact tactic. A monsoon officer bawled an order. Slots opened in the front and sides of the turtle boats, Arrows whisked forth, sending men toppling from the walls. The armored boats advanced inexorably, suffering not a single casualty, as they inflicted a dozen on the four hundred soldiers holding the walls. A runner sprinted along the wall, handed a bundle of arrows to an archer, then ran on to deliver a second batch. The first archer knocked one of the new arrows, the tip of which bulged like a sack. As Dante realized it was a sack, 
and that he'd seen the monsoon deploy ones just like them before, the man loosed his missile. It had counterweights at the back to steady its heavy tip, and to compensate, the archer launched it in a steeper arc than the conventional arrows, lofting it into the air before it peaked and swooped down on the closest turtle boat. It struck the ship on the port side. Light flashed. Flame and smoke erupted from the boat, accompanied by a rolling boom. The ship stopped in its tracks. The wheel on its port side had been smashed to pieces and thrown across the water, the hull cracked and smoking. A second arrow flew wide of its mark, but a third landed square, blowing open the nose of a second boat. It foundered, water pouring inside. The surviving ships pressed hard forward, canoes darting from behind them to harry the defenders with arrows. A second contingent of turtle boats detached from the fleet to trundle after the first wave, but there was no need. Lacking more than a few of the explosive arrows, the defenders were only able to stop three of the first ten vessels from reaching the walls. Arrows flew back and forth like hornets, but the defenders soon fell back. Hatches opened atop the turtle boats. As the first attackers raced up ladders to claim their portion of the wall, fellow soldiers scrambled from the canoes to follow them up top. A second wave of canoes was already on its way to reinforce them. Now that the monsoon had emerged from their shelters, they began to lose people as well. But they advanced steadily, pushing the Arisians back under a withering storm of arrows. Within a span of fifteen minutes from when the monsoon had launched their attack, they'd driven the defenders to the center of the wall. The Arisians dashed down the steps to the long roadway, leading back into the city. Dante moved the closest of his dragonflies in for a better angle. As he did so, his connection to it snapped like a dry twig. His heart froze. He sent his second dragonfly on the scene, soaring higher, and pulsed Jonah's loon. Jonah answered with the crisp readiness he displayed while at sea. Yes, Lord? Before you withdrew to the city, were you certain the White Lich was still with his army of Blighted? Yes, sir. How certain? Unless he's got friends, who are also ten feet tall, with skin as white as snow, and eyes of every shade of blue, I am extremely certain he was still there, Lord. You have to get the defenders off the bridge, Dante said. The monsoon has brought... Darkness flashed from atop the wall, streaking over the heads of the Arisians and smashing into a section of dock ahead of them. The wooden planks exploded into splinters, cutting off the defenders' retreat. The monsoon charged forward, archers pelting the Arisians from atop the seized wall. The two sides clashed, corpses tumbling into the waters to both sides of the dock. After a minute of ferocious fighting, the beleaguered Arisians tried to drop back, but constrained by the tightness of the road, their retreat degraded into a chaotic mass. The scrum pushed dozens into the water. As those at the front were gashed down by monsoon spears, other defenders leaped into the water, attempting to swim away. The canoes swooped in to scoop them from the water. 
The monsoon soldiers beat the prisoners into submission and carried them back to the fleet's reserves. Fresh recruits for the blighted. Before the slaughter of the Arisians' front line of defense could be completed, the last hundred men surrendered. You just lost a tenth of your people, Dante said through the still open loon. And they've brought nethermancers. The monsoon had already cranked open the gates. Scores of canoes patrolled into the city, followed by the wallowing turtle boats. Do you have orders? Jonah prompted. We're nearly there, but you have to delay them as much as possible. If they bring their nethermancers to bear on the towers, they can topple your entire defense within minutes. We'll do as we can, sir. The monsoon took several minutes to regroup, ferrying more captives to the back while the turtle ships moved to the front. As soon as they renewed their advance, small teams of defenders popped up on both sides of the canal and fired a volley of arrows from their compact Tenarian bows. As soon as the arrows were in flight, they turned and ran, scampering across the narrow stone bridges leading to the next islands. The enemy's return fire landed on empty ground. The city's islands and bridges, so quiet before, erupted into activity. While archers harried the monsoon's advance, including with the occasional explosive arrow, teams assembled further down the canal to dump barrels, furniture, and anything else that would float into the waters. Others pulled rafts together to clog the way forward. With the monsoon slowed to a crawl, Erisians rushed from the south to seize the choke points, provoking hot spots of gruesome urban warfare. Inflicting heavy losses on the monsoon, the defenders might have been able to hold these positions for hours, if not indefinitely. But each time the advance stalled out, shadows streaked from the monsoon nethermancers, murdering the defenders a dozen at a time. Each minute gained was to be celebrated, but the outcome was inevitable. With Dante and the others still four miles from the city, the Arisians withdrew their battered squadrons to the crescent of islands that marked the entrance to the peninsula. Their last defense. The monsoon regrouped again, sending scouts into the islands surrounding the point of entrance. Soldiers in white uniforms gathered across from the outermost of the defended towers. Arrows jabbed back and forth. A ball of nether looped from behind a short tower and crashed into the base of the defender's outpost. It was followed by a second. Chunks of stone spun through the air. Erisians sallied from the tower, presumably so that they wouldn't fall to their dooms when it was knocked down, and took cover behind whatever they could find. A few flung themselves into the water, followed by a trickle of them, and then a stream. A fourth ball of nether rocked the tower, making it lean like a man trying to see the soles of his boots without lifting his feet. The sixth sent it crashing down. Stone blocks slammed into the water, jetting spray dozens of feet into the air.
Other parts landed on the island with rattling thuds. Dust spewed inland, aloft on the coastal breeze. As it settled, a woman emerged from the monsoon-held island. She wore a jabat long enough to be a dress, the white cloth emblazoned with circles of two different shades of blue. She looked on her work and smiled. Three canoes shot from around the island where the tower had fallen, fighting their way through the still choppy waters. They loosed arrows, but the turbulence sent the missiles flying wide of the sorcerer. She snarled and summoned two gobs of shadows to her hands. She thrust forth her palms at the oncoming boats. Before she could deliver it, the nether dropped from her hands as if it had died. She blinked in surprise. A man in gleaming black-scale armor arose from the neighboring island. He drew a long sword, the blade crackling purple as he pointed it at the sorcerer. Death to the defiler! Death to the servant of the Aedan Rane! The monsoon's archers fired on the canoes and the revealed knight of Odo Sain. But the defender's boats rushed onward, joined by others. The sorcerer turned and ran. An arrow pierced her right shoulder. She dropped, struggling to get up. The Erysians made landfall, hurling spears at the Nethermancer, ignoring the incoming arrows even as the soldiers around them fell bleeding. As a monsoon soldier helped the woman to her feet, a spear lanced through her chest, slamming her to the ground. What, Dante said, is the knight doing in the middle of the battle? Had no choice, lord, Jonah said. You said yourself that if the sorcerers brought their might against the towers, all the city was doomed. Okay, extreme circumstances and all, but why is he wearing his armor? And you can see that sword from Malin. He's too obvious a target. At least show some sense. Would you like me to? Jonah cut off mid-sentence. The ambient noise from his side was gone too. After a moment of shock, Dante understood. Absorbed by the events of the battle, he'd left the loon open all the while. It had used the last of the nether bonding the two pieces together, and was now dead for good. Swearing violently, he tore the loon from his ear and hurled it into the swamp. He watched through the dragonfly as a pitched battle erupted between the two contested islands. The Odosain attempted to withdraw, but a new blast of shadows forced him to remain at the island's edge. He raised his shield, deflecting an arrow. Dante's last dragonfly went dark, struck down by a monsoon sorcerer, or possibly by the Odosain, knocking down every scrap of nether in the area. He cursed again, startling a possum hanging from a tree. Acutely aware that it was chipping away at his reserve of shadows, he killed and reanimated a single passing dragonfly, sending it whirring toward the city. With Blaze and Volo paddling as hard as they could, Dante recapped everything he'd seen, briefing them on what they could hope to expect. It will be our job to neutralize any remaining nethermancers. 
If they're removed from the picture, the Arisians are more than capable of holding off the soldiers. Volo, is there another way into the city besides the front gates? She shook her head, black hair swaying. Nope, not that they ever told me. The monsoon's still got a reserve force outside the gates. We'll need a disguise to get past them. Gladick made a murmuring noise. And if they see through it? Then we'll need a crew of frighteningly effective murderers. Does anyone know where we can find such a thing? Blaze blinked sweat from his eyes. Sure, we could disguise ourselves as fellow monsooners who just happened to fall behind, and who totally shouldn't need to answer any questions about that, and definitely shouldn't be punished for it. Or you could just open a hole in the wall for us to sail through. I have a better idea. We do exactly what you just said. Volo corrected course to bring them toward the western arm of the wall, closest to where the battle for the peninsula was unfolding. Dante's dragonfly arrived at the city two minutes later. He sent it hundreds of feet into the air, too high to draw notice from enemy nethermancers or get cut up in the Odosain's sphere of negation. The western wall was quiet, but a massive brawl was ongoing at the entrance to the peninsula. There, a second tower had fallen into the canal, forming an uneven bridge between two islands. Arrows zipped about, though less heavily than before. Both sides were running low, resulting in clashes of spearmen battling for control of the bridge of rubble. On the water, squadrons of canoes hurtled toward each other, soldiers stabbing out as their boats clipped past each other. Nether flickered on the eastern fringe, slaying a team of Arician archers who'd been punishing any monsoon canoe that tried to enter the canal there. To the west and center, there was no sign of sorcery. At that very moment, the knight of Odosain, obvious in his demonic black armor, charged toward the eastern flank. Before their canoe, the trees thinned, then vanished. They were spat into the brackish waters surrounding Erisosis. Three monsoon canoes were stationed near the wall, a half mile to the north, but if they took any notice of Vola's canoe, they didn't show it. They skimmed toward the looming wall. A pair of Erician sentries stood from their posts, drawing bows. Stay back or be fired upon. We're friends, Blaze hollered. Trust me, you really like us. I said stay where you are. Volo glanced at Dante in confusion, still paddling. On the wall, the sentries sighted down their arrows. Gladick flicked his left hand. White light shot toward the wall. Both men fell from sight. Blaze gawked. Did you just kill them? They were about to attempt to do the same to us, Gladick said. However, as a man of superior morals, I did not stoop to their level. I merely disabled them. They rushed toward the wall, the wind whooshing over their faces. As they neared, Dante nicked his arm, then reached into the stone barrier. He softened it and drew it back, opening a hole there.
one that, in the interest of preserving shadows, only ran a foot below the waterline, and was a mere three feet in width and height. Floating shit, Volo squeaked. We'll be smashed. She pulled in her paddle. Everyone ducked. They shot through the passage without a scrape. Volo laughed wildly, paddling hard. Dante guided her east, keeping two rows of islands between themselves and the fighting. Bodies bobbed everywhere, along with splintered wood, obliging Volo to weave through the flotsam like a shuttle on the loom. Dante lowered his dragonfly closer to the eastern fighting. It was such a mess of tussling bodies that his search felt hopeless. Yet he spotted Naren and Jonah in moments, their foreign dress and features standing out from the Tenarians like a stain on a clean shirt. They stood on the southern face of an island connected to its northern neighbor by an arched stone bridge. At that moment, the knight of Odo Sain stood on the southern foot of the bridge, rallying the defenders to retake control from the monsoon. At a glance, five hundred soldiers were involved in the melee for the two islands, with reinforcements pouring in from both sides. Volo slipped into a canal, only to find the approach to the southern island blocked by an irregular line of stone rubble and shattered rafts. She craned her neck, hunting for a way around it. Dante shook his head. Faster for us to continue on foot. Volo, stay here with the canoe. She tipped back her chin. But I can help you. If the flank collapses, we'll need to get out of here in a hurry. Watch the boat and stay ready to go. Sparing no more time for her arguments, he climbed out onto the broken rock of a fallen tower. Blaze jogged behind him, not yet drawing his Odosain swords. Gladick brought up the rear. Spotting them, Jonah lifted his hand. Dante ran to meet them. Neren grinned, clasping his hand. I wasn't sure that I would see you again. His gaze moved to Gladick. In your case, I hoped that I wouldn't. We can resume internal hostilities after we finish the external ones, Dante said. Right now, our job is to get the Odyssein off the front lines. Neren drew him close and lowered his voice. The man in the armor is not the same man who earned it. He's merely a decoy, and a highly effective one at that. The monsoon is throwing away countless lives in their effort to kill him. You dressed a soldier in the knight's armor. What happens when a nethermancer comes for him and he can't stop them? The true Odosain remains close enough to neutralize their sorcery. That, Dante said, is extraordinarily clever. He took a moment to absorb the scene. The false knight was providing a rallying point for the defenders, but he was also hanging behind the front lines. If a nethermancer came at him, it would be at grave personal risk. Dante was tempted to wade in and start blasting the monsoon to shreds, but with their nethermancers neutralized, they seemed to be doing a pretty good job shredding themselves against the city's defenders. I say we watch and wait, he said. There might not be any call to reveal ourselves today. For now, our single priority is to keep the real knight safe. <laughs>
Where is he? Secure on the previous island we seized. Naren turned to the west and nodded to the glob of land on the other side of the rubble they'd crossed on the way in. His eyes flew wide. Mother of storms! That island, Blaze pointed, the one in the process of being completely overrun by the monsoon? Naren nodded, stone-faced. On the southwest shore of the island, which was separated from them by a couple hundred feet of open water, and most of the island itself, a horde of white-uniformed monsoon were cutting their way through the Erisians, pushing toward a pillar of a man dressed in lacquer armor and laying about himself with a stout spear and a tall rectangular shield. Cut off from the shore, the knight of Odosain bellowed for aid. To him! Dante took off at a run. To the knight! He sprinted toward the debris, calling the nether to his hands. Before he could release it, the power of the Odosain clamped down on him. Hopping onto the broken rubble, he yelled to the knight, but the man was fighting for his life, lost in the helter-skelter of weapons and armor colliding, and soldiers screaming in rage and pain. Dante retreated past the spot where the power had afflicted him, but the nether remained inert. Gladic cursed, the cords of his neck straining against his wrinkled skin as he fought to bring either the shadows or light to bear. Blaze ran ahead of them toward the canoe, skidding to a halt on the pebble-strewn rubble. Staring at the spot where they'd left Volo, the canoe was gone. Almost halfway to the other island, Volo paddled with everything she had, meaning to snatch the Odosain up and ferry him away to safety. Dante made his way to the edge of the debris field, standing on a column of broken tower. Naren waved his hands over his head and yelled to a friendly canoe past the southern end of the rubble, convincing them to swing about. On the western island, most of the Odosain's fellow soldiers had been knocked to the ground to bleed away their last. Catching a glimpse of Volo's canoe streaming toward him, the knight lashed about with redoubled vigor, fighting his way toward the shoreline. Volo cruised onward, reaching the shallows where reeds and grass grew. Around and behind her, dark shapes broke the surface of the water. At first, their rounded tops resembled the backs of an army of turtles. But they continued to rise, the shapes flaring out like hideous pale mushrooms. Shoulders and arms emerged from the depths. With their upper bodies freed from the water, the blighted stampeded toward the island. Volo froze, retracting her paddle from the water. The wake of the Blighted's frenzied charge rocked her side to side. They ignored her for the moment, bent on the destruction of the Odosain. Seeing their gnashing faces, the knight pushed his way back up the slope, enemy spears knocking against his broadshield. The first row of Blighted hauled themselves to dry ground. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. Drop the Odosain! Drop it now, for the love of the silent spires. Unhearing, the knight tried to bull his way onward. 
A spear slipped around his shield and pierced his right side. He fell to one knee, planting his spear hand in the muck. Two blighted flung themselves at him from behind, yanking at his armor to expose his back and sinking their teeth into his skin. The nether unlocked. In the blink of an eye, Gladick punched his hand forward. A sheet of ether streaked away from him, expanding as it went until the glare on the water was so bright Dante had to shield his eyes. The ether sliced into the backs of the rearmost blighted, exploding more dazzlingly than the Tenarian's special arrows. Dante blinked, clearing the spots from his eyes. Dozens of half-corpses sloshed about in the water, cut across the hips, gut, or ribs, depending on how far each blighted had managed to climb from the water before being hit by the light. There was no sign of Volo. Her canoe bumped into a torso, stopping ten feet from the island. On the island, the blighted lay dead. So did many of the monsoon soldiers. But the knight of Odosain stirred, pulling himself away from the remainder. His shield arm dragged behind him, broken. Did you kill her? Blay said. Did you kill Volo? Gladick worked his throat. Before he could answer, Nether forked from the island they'd left behind, plowing into the Erisians at the center of the bridge and toppling them into the water. Save the night, Gladick barked at Dante. I will wreak our hell on those who wage war on the world. The canoe Naren had hailed swung up to the ruins. Dante rolled over the gunwale, accompanied by Naren and Jonah. The oarsmen shoved off toward the western island. There, a few of the surviving monsoon soldiers were shaking off their days. As they moved to pick up their dropped spears, Dante brought the nether to him. The triumph of its presence felt like standing from bed after a long illness. He drew it into killing bolts, hurling them over the water. The monsoon soldiers converging on the wounded Odosain didn't so much as look up as the shadows punched through their torsos in cloudbursts of blood. Dante sent a second volley behind the first, aiming them at a squadron of monsoon charging in from the ruins. Seeking the black missiles, the soldiers scattered, throwing themselves toward cover. Dante guided the nether after them, ripping through their skulls and ribs. Later, the joy of the wrath he felt at finally being able to act would be shameful. For now, it burned inside him like sweet liquor. Behind him, men screamed. People had been screaming for some time now, but this was something new. The shrieks of people seeing a death far worse than they'd imagined would take them. On the southern of the two contested islands, a pair of Andrak loped toward the bridge, twice the height of a man, long claws extended from their sides. The Arisians scrambled away as well, tripping over rocks. Sometimes they dropped their weapons and left them behind. The monsoon soldiers who'd taken the bridge shook off their paralysis and turned to run. Too late. 
The two Andrak overtook them in great bounds, slashing them into thick slabs of meat. Naren grabbed the gunnel. I feel sickened. I possess a simple solution, Dante said. Quit looking. That is my paradox. I don't want to look away. The deaths of these traitors to humanity gives me more pleasure than starting or ending a long voyage. If you expect me to say that such feelings don't reflect your true self or something else meant to reassure you of your basic civility, you're going to be disappointed. We're not a very good species, Naren. We're violent, and we want to see our enemies fall. In good times, we can pretend to be better than that, but good times rarely last for long. The Andrak continued their wholesale slaughter of the monsoon. Nether flickered from the North Island, crashing into the bridge. It gave way with a groan and clack of rock, landing with thunderous gouts of water. The two demons dumped into the canal with it. Blaze, a purple sword snapping in each hand, sprinted past the ruins and vaulted far over the canal separating the two islands. As he cleared the apex of his jump, he disappeared from sight. There was no splash. A pale torso spun in the current to Dante's right. He turned about, scanning the waters, as the canoe passed through the bobbing carcasses. They passed Volo's black boat, which was dinged up but intact. It was empty. The canoe scraped to a soft halt in the grass and mud at the edge of the island. Dante threw himself out, sandals squelching. Naren leaped out behind him. To Dante's right, a slim body lay on the shore. Volo's eyes were closed, and her soaked hair clung to the side of her face. Her blood had trickled into the silt, and he couldn't tell at a glance whether she was alive. He hesitated, aware that Naren was staring at him, then ran on toward the night of Odosain. The man lay on his belly. His left arm was bent at the forearm, broken by his own shield when the blast of ether had knocked him over. Yet he showed only a few surface burns of the bluish variety caused by hostile exposure to the light. Somehow, Gladick had managed to almost entirely avoid hitting the man with the ether straight on. Even so, where his lacquered armor had been ripped away, the man's ragged jabat was stained red. Blood leaked from spear wounds and bites deep enough to have torn away flesh. More than one looked potentially fatal. Though the bites were more viscerally disturbing, Dante homed in on the nastiest of the spear wounds, a deep slit on his upper chest that had likely punctured a lung. Nether poured from his hands into the wound, sinking into its depths and sealing severed tissue back together. Pink, bubbly blood, the sign of lung trauma, though the Nether had already confirmed that for Dante, was forced outward, dribbling down the man's chest like a clutch of frog's eggs. As soon as that wound was treated, he moved to the next. Naren stood between him and the top of a low hill, wary for another attack. Dante finished the second wound and shifted to the third, a jab to the liver that would have killed the man in twenty minutes. The knight gasped, eyes popping open. Warlock! 
He grabbed the front of Dante's jabat. Golden sparks lit the man's face, spinning in tight patterns around his hands. The nether slammed closed. Let me go! You stop it with the Odosein. I'm trying to help you, you ass-brained moron! The man struggled to drag himself away. As he planted the palm of his broken arm against the ground, he gasped again. His eyes rolled back, face paling to nearly the same shade as the Aiden Rani. He collapsed. The knight's power fell away, releasing the nether. Muttering curses, Dante drew the shadows back to him. The remaining stab wounds didn't look overly serious, so he turned to the bites taken from the flesh, which were gruesome and bleeding badly. Stilling his mind to an empty chamber, he waited for the ether to fill him, then directed it to the largest bite, which filled with a semi-opaque substance. It sealed over with new skin that was a perfect replacement of the old. With that single action depleting almost half of the ether he could bring to bear, Dante opted to reserve the rest for the time being, patching the other bites with nether. Not as elegant, and it might leave scarring. Dante was rushing it. But the man would live. That left a broken arm as the only serious wound. Sensing some serious triage in his future, Dante was tempted to leave it be. But with the white lich close enough to fall upon the city in as little as a day, they'd need the night at full strength. Dante knitted his bones back together, then closed all but the most superficial of his remaining cuts. He shot to his feet and motioned to Naren. Watch over him. Only then did he turn and sprint back to Volo, turf flying from his feet. She lay in the same position as when he'd first seen her. She was still alive, but a deep gouges in her back. The fringes of her skin blew with ether. The shallow angle of entry suggested she'd ducked as the light ripped over her, or even that she'd attempted to fling herself into the water. She had bites taken out of her too, mostly the arms and shoulders. One had also been inflicted on the right side of her jaw, the skin dangling in a flap. Dante placed the nether on the ethereal slices in her back. If you didn't know what you were doing, Damage caused by ether could be hard to undo. But Dante had treated countless cases over the years. First, he used the nether to snuff out the light remaining in Volo's wounds, and only then closed them up. He did the best he could to smooth out the skin on her jaw without leaving any marks behind. With the other bites, he filled in the flesh and covered them with new skin, but did little to deal with the cosmetics. She would have scars, big and strange ones. But she'd be all right. He wasn't yet sure the same could be said of Erisosis. He got to his feet and looked around him for the first time in several minutes. There was some skirmishing going on to the northwest, but it looked to mostly be an interference action. 
The real battle was unfolding on the northern of the two islands Blaze and Gladick had gone to assault. There, shadows and light crashed together in storms of black-and-white moats. Men hurled spears back and forth. One of the Andrak was staggering back from the north shore, bleeding nether like a smoking chimney. For a moment, Dante was taken aback that the enemy had found a way to hurt the demon so quickly, yet it shouldn't have been much of a surprise. The demons had first been created in Tanara Tain. Its sorcerers would also know how to destroy them. The battle looked far from decided, and he itched to join it. Yet the first priority was to remove the knight from harm's way. Could send him deep into the peninsula, but he'd have to accompany them all the way to safeguard against ambushes, such as the one sprung by the blighted. That would prevent him from joining the battle for at least fifteen minutes. He took a quick look around, confirming there were no enemies nearby, then reached out to the nether on all sides. Didn't seem to be anything lurking or spying. He picked Volo up and slung her over his shoulder, grateful that the Tenarians were lightly built, and brought her over to a chunk of broken wall close to the night. Help me carry him. Dante grabbed the knight's feet while Neron took the shoulders. Dante guided them toward Volo and set the knight beside her. Neron set his hand on his hip. Have you forgotten that the canoe is over there, in the water? No time. Dante sank the ground beneath the two wounded, hollowing out a pit, then liquefied the stone wall and drew it over them, concealing them within a space the size of a small room. He left an air hole open on one side, slanting it so no one could see or shoot into the space. There. That should do it until we get back. And if you die in the field, then you'd better make sure you don't. Dante scratched an X in the dirt with his sandal. You're a pirate, aren't you? This should be fun for you. I am an honest merchant. I am only a pirate when a dishonest government declares me one. Dante was already running for the canoe. He got in and ordered the sailor to make for the southern shore of the northern island. The crewman slung out his lower jaw. You mean the island being smashed to bits by sorcery and demons? Yes, that's the one. Just checking. The man shoved off, cutting across the waterway. Dante probed the nether beneath the surface, hunting for blighted, but he didn't feel anything bigger than fish. To the north, two fleets of canoes rammed into each other, the sailors stabbing at each other with spears. Under normal circumstances, the peculiar naval action would have been exciting. On the northern island, however, the wounded Andrak had gone as translucent as mist. The nether in its body streamed toward the northern shore, gathering around the hands of a man dressed in a piece of clothing that was difficult to correctly identify, as it had recently been on fire. The nethermancer formed the shadows into slender spears and whipped them into the front line of the Arician defenders. 
a low stone wall blew apart, five soldiers tumbling away in pieces. Gladik was watching the man from forty yards away, light and darkness orbiting his left hand. Yet he did nothing as the enemy Nethermancer lashed out at the Arisians a second time. The half-burned man raised his hands high in anger, sucking the last of the Nether from the dying Andrak, and fired it at Gladik in a shuddering wave. Gladik met it with a torrent of shadows and a column of light, hazing the field with black and white sparks. The air shimmered behind the Nethermancer. Two rods of light blazed in the air, purple and black. The figure holding them coalesced the next instant. Blaze drove one spear through the Nethermancer's back and the other into the base of his neck, then yanked the upper blade to the right and the lower one to the left. Then ethereal weapons shredded the man like wilted cabbage. Arrows zipped toward Blaze. He disappeared from sight. Gladix strode forward, spraying the nether into the monsoon archers. The canoe hit the shore. Dante vaulted over the prow and onto dry land with such skill, he was annoyed that Neron and the crewmen were the only ones to see it. He drew his Odosain blade, as did Naren, and ran up the low incline. With the nethermancer dead, the Arisians stood and charged. They hammered into the monsoon lines with the clunk of spears on shields. Dante was fifty feet from the front lines when Blaze reappeared next to him, causing Dante to nearly dampen the front of his jabat. Did you find her? Blaze said. She's alive, but she's unconscious. She got hit hard. I saw. What about the knight? Same with him. So everything's in order? Hard as it is to believe, I'd say yes. Imagine that. Want to go to win a battle, then? They joined the front lines, laying about with their Odosain weapons while Gladic pounded the attackers with both darkness and light. In less than a minute, the monsoon began to fall back in an orderly retreat, taking to their canoes as others hunkered behind cover loosing their remaining arrows to prevent the Arisians from overwhelming them. The surrendered field bore as many as three hundred bodies, a mix of dead from both sides. Gladix struck out at the archers, only to be met by a wall of shadows cast from somewhere out in the water. At a command from an officer, half of the Arisian defenders got up and ran south. Dante was about to shout at them not to be cowards when he realized they were going for their own canoes. Gladic limped over to meet them, his face covered in sweat and ash. We should join the pursuit. Their monsoon is broken, Naren said. The city has already lost more people than it can afford. Perhaps it's better to let them run. They have taken hundreds of captives. If we do not reclaim them, the next time we face the Lich, we'll be fighting them as blighted instead. The Arisians can't do this themselves, Blaise said. Not as long as the monsoon's got another sorcerer out there. He slammed his sword into its sheath. We're bringing the prisoners home. 
He turned and ran for the boat. At the shore, Neren grabbed two paddles left behind there. The four of them piled into the canoe that had brought Dante and Neren to the island and joined the swarm of Verician vessels giving chase to the monsoon. The three of them that still had two arms took up paddles and thrashed the water for all they were worth. Aided heavily by their crewmen, who was fresh-armed while most of the others had recently been in battle, they slowly moved to the front of the chase. Watching the enemy fleet, Neren counted under his breath, stopping after ten seconds. We're not gaining quickly enough. They're leading us away from our defenses and toward their reserves. If we extend ourselves all the way to the gates, they will rejoin the remainder of their force and smash us. Dante had lost track of his dragonfly during the intensity of the healing and fighting. Discovering that it was still flying in slow circles over the southern portion of the city, he brought it speeding forward. Through its eyes, he scouted the route ahead. He tapped the sailor on the shoulder. Get us as close as you can. Gladick, watch for their nethermancer. He sent a burst of nether into the crewman's muscles. The man grunted and paddled harder. They were outpacing the rest of the Erisians, entering the open gap of water between them and the monsoon. A few arrows sailed toward them, splooshing into the water. Gladick used a prong of ether to deflect one that appeared to be coming too close. The monsoon's armada had initially been strung out in a long line, but had condensed its formation on the move. They were presently streaming through a district of mixed islands and long public docks of merchant stalls. Dante watched closely as they skimmed past one of the docks and entered a watery square where two canals intersected. They paddled through it, entering a tight strait between two islands. He felt down through the water and into the ground beneath it. A hearty layer of silt rested on top of a bed of clay. Dante moved into the clay, drawing it upwards in a great sweep. It broke the surface of the strait and rose to a height of four feet, cutting off the fraction of monsoon vessels that had already cruised past it from the bulk of the boats behind them. Canoes rammed into the wall with hollow thuds. Others backpedaled hard, showering the air with spray. Officers yelled out contradicting orders. One third of the fleet broke to starboard, while the larger portion swerved to port. Dante reached into the clay again, ready to block the monsoon a second time. But the city's defenders were already pouring into the intersection before the strait. They tore into the confused enemy before the monsoon could escape. The fight was short but brutal. Though the monsoon were fellow countrymen, some of whom most likely had even grown up in this very city, the Arisians showed them no quarter skewering them on spears and stabbing them over and over, faces contorted with an anger as red-hot as that of the blighted. The crime the defenders were punishing them for was much more than rebellion against an emperor. Instead, it was for the treason of selling themselves to a conqueror 
who would not only take the land, but consume its people. The handful of prisoners taken were beaten hard, tossed in the bottom of war canoes, and hauled off for interrogation. The Arician captives were shuttled south toward the peninsula. The defenders regrouped and headed for the gates. Dante and the others accompanied them, but the monsoon had already departed north into the woods, taking with them hundreds of citizens and soldiers captured earlier in the fighting. A heated argument broke out between the defenders about whether to give chase. Dante turned their canoe about and directed them back through the damaged city to the rubble-strewn island where he'd left Volo and the Odosain. Except for the dead, the island was deserted. Dante jogged to the smooth rock he'd shaped earlier. Anetha was markedly slow to answer his call, lagging resentfully as he used it to open a passage in the side of the rock. Volo was still unconscious, breathing deeply and slowly, twitching with occasional shudders. The night moaned as they picked him up and carried him to the canoe. Rather than climbing in with the others, Blaze got in Volo's black canoe, which had come to rest a short ways down the shore, and followed them to a tower made of bright orange bricks. They were greeted by a grey-haired woman named Kina, who thanked them so profusely for their aid that she didn't even remember to insult them for being foreigners. Dante asked for and was granted three rooms, including one that would serve as a hospital. Staff helped put Volo and the knight to bed. Dante observed the two of them for a few minutes, using some of his dwindling supply of nether to heal three wounds that were worse than he'd initially assessed. Done, he sat back, feeling a headache come on. Shall we retire to the other room? Gladick quirked an eyebrow. For what purpose? To discuss what in the million hells we're going to do now that the White Lich knows we're in the city. I do not question the discussion. I question us leaving this room. Until our task is complete, we should not leave the Knight of Odosain alone for a single second. We cannot allow him to come to harm under any circumstances. What a wonderful sentiment, Blay said. Too bad you don't apply it to your own fucking friends. Gladick looked him in the eye. You are referring to young Volo. No, I'm referring to the fish we ate for breakfast. We're lucky she's alive, you son of a bitch. What were you thinking? My thinking was very simple that if I allowed the night to perish, then I would doom everyone in the city, a state of being that would also include Volo. Blaze stalked forward, sandals landing heavily. Go on and tell me how it had to be done because the greater good, and also I'm not looking at the big picture. 
And my head is so soft that you could spread it on a slice of bread. I've heard it all a million times before. You can go ahead and stroke yourself off for being such a decisive leader who's not afraid to make the hard decisions. You know what you can't do? Sacrifice your own people. When they're gone, they're gone. They don't get to come back. You don't get to betray them just because you're too fucking stupid and gutless to come up with a better solution. When someone's fought by your side all the way and they've bled for you and you for them, that forges a sacred bond. When you break it, you forfeit your soul. Gladick smiled thinly. You rage for the sake of poor Vola. Yet, if I had slaughtered an innocent soldier to save the knight's life, you would congratulate me on my quickness of mind. Are you seriously trying to call me a hypocrite? Of course I don't care about a stranger, but Volo's no stranger, is she? She's one of us. If you're that ready to kill one of us, then you shouldn't be here. I have explained this to you more than once. If that is required to dispense with the lich, I am ready to sacrifice any one of us, including myself. Blaze gripped the hilt of his sword. Would you like a hand with that? I promise it'll somehow slay the white lich too. The old man narrowed his eyes to slits. You do not argue this from the mind, as the Odosein would train us. Rather, you argue it from the guts, the angry spleen and the festering bowel. What lies at the core of this? The crazy idea that you don't murder your own friends. Dante had been taken aback by the heat of Blaze's fury. He was fond enough of Volo, but he considered her more of a useful ally than as a close friend like Neron. But the answer lit up like a torchstone. This wasn't about Volo. It was about Lyra, the woman Dante had sent to her death in order to save the city of Narashtivit. It wasn't a perfect call, Dante said, but the point wasn't to kill Volo. She was in the wrong place, at the wrong time. Blaze tossed up his hands, because she was trying to save the knight herself, and then got taken by surprise, the same way we all were. If Gladick hadn't acted, both the knight and Volo would have been ripped apart by the blighted, Instead, they're both alive. Through sheer luck for both of them. Why are you defending this? It turned out okay, didn't it? So it can't have been quite as bad as you're saying. You agree with him, don't you? You probably would have done the exact same thing. Blaze eyed him, face reddened, a blonde lock stuck to his brow. I bet that when you healed them, you healed the knight first. Dante sputtered, then opted for the truth. 
I had to. He's the only Odosein left in Tanara Tain. As soon as I was done, I healed Volo too. But you couldn't know she'd last that long. Why is this so hard to understand? We don't sacrifice each other. We stand together at all times, no matter how bloody and dark they get. That's why we always win. What else was I supposed to do? Everything hinges on the night. I'd have resurrected my own dad and killed him again if that's what it took to save the Odosain. Are you lying to me? Or to yourself? If the knight died, we could have gone back to our training, just like we already planned. There's no guarantee we'll ever learn. Not before the lich is beyond our means to stop. Yes, that's what everyone says, isn't it? But they don't know a god's damn thing. Yet for some reason, we keep swallowing their every claim. And look where it's gotten us. The disgust in his voice was so thick, Dante fell back half a step. Blaze strode from the room, slamming the door behind him. Dante moved to the door and opened it, but he didn't bother to chase after Blaze. Instead, he motioned to a servant standing at attention down the hall. He'll be looking for beer. No, that's wrong. He'll want something much stronger. For everyone's sake, you should see that he gets it. The servant pushed off from the wall and trotted after Blaze. Dante re-entered the chamber. Naren cleared his throat. He's walked out on us. Do you believe it'll be temporary? Dante flung himself down on a seating pad, wishing more than anything for a gloriously massive stuffed chair. He won't give up after we've come this far. He just needs to blow off some steam. Fortunately, he's even better with that than he is with the sword. The rest of us do not have the luxury of taking time for ourselves, Gladick said. The Aedron Rane could strike as soon as tomorrow. We require a credible strategy. That depends entirely on whether the knight wakes up, doesn't it? If he's still unconscious when the enemy gets here, our credible strategy will consist of running for the nearest canoe and paddling away as fast as we can, securing the knowledge that no one will survive to tell anyone of our cowardice. Are you certain you healed him correctly? I made what was bleeding not bleed, and made the stuff that was broken quit that too. If you think you can do better, you're welcome to try. Gladick crossed the room to the pallet holding the knight. The man was in his forties, but he had the build of a soldier ten years younger. Even in his sleep, it looked like the muscles of his face had been pulled tight behind his head. Gladick kneeled beside him, muttering. A film of ether came to his hands. He dispersed it over the unconscious knight. This is a deep but normal sleep, Gladick declared after a short observation. As can be proven. 
He reached out and pinched the man's nose shut. The knight jerked his head to the side. He made a muffled groan, then blinked, taking a hard breath through his mouth. The nether and ether closed shut to Dante as hard as Blaze had slammed the door on his way out. Dante rolled his eyes. At least we know he hasn't lost any of his abilities. You are among allies, knight of the Odosain. Gladic's voice was almost gentle. I am Gladic, once of Bressel. That is Dante Galand, leader of Narashtavik in the north. The good Captain Naren has told us of each other. The man tried to speak, then bent over, coughing. Naren poured water from a pitcher into a cup, both objects made from exceedingly well-wrought glass, and handed it to the knight. The knight drank, then tried again. I'm alive and well, Gladick said. But the blighted, they were eating me. They were, Dante said. We thought that was rather rude and asked them to stop. The request was phrased by chopping them in half. Then, as long as we were in the neighborhood, we decided to fix you up. The knight stared at him blankly. Your friend said you were my allies, but you talk like you're mocking me. It's been a long day. We've just scored our first real victory against the White Lich, and my other friend is off getting drunk without me. I'm not in the most formal of moods. It's a strange time for us all. My name is Beck Olin, Knight of Odosain, and sworn to the Drakebane. Glad to meet you. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, so... Excuse me for cutting to the chase. Do you still promise to help us kill the White Lich? By the way, and I mention this again for no reason, we did just save you from being eaten alive by Blighted. Did you also save the city? It took a beating, but the one we gave the monsoon was far worse. Beck laughed slowly. Hari are helping to save Tanaratain while the Emperor forsakes it. This must be the end of the world because everything is upside down. Yes or no, Beck? My decision hasn't varied since the moment I made it. My entire life was spent training to die fighting the Aiden Rane. That's what I will do now. Perfect. The gods must be impressed with your devotion, because they're going to give you the chance to die to the lich within the next two days. Sleep now. We need you ready. The chamber included two glass doors that opened onto a balcony. To let the wounded rest, while being able to keep an eye on them, Dante brought Gladick and Naren outside. 
We have the assets and the knowledge to kill the lich, Dante said. If we can find the prime body within his army, and bring back within Odosain range, one good stab will end this. The problem is that, after today, the lich knows we're here, and that we've got an Odosain with us. There's no way he hasn't guessed our plan. Gladick moved to the balustrade, resting his hand on the railing. It was well into the afternoon, and the sun shimmered from the canals and the bay. The intention of today's attack could not be more transparent. To assassinate the Odyssean and leave us impotent to stop the Aiden Rane from absorbing the city. Since his effort failed, it would be foolish to assume the Lich's next strike will be in person. More likely, he will send another army led by one of his lieutenants. Dante's skin prickled. Or he won't send an army at all. Can the lesser liches travel underwater like the blighted can? Likely so. Though more intelligent, they share many traits with the blighted, and are not subject to the same rules of mortality that we mortals face. Then we could be in deep shit, although that might actually solve our problem since an underlich might not be able to walk through it. It took Gladick a moment. You believe the Aiden Rane might send one of his lieutenants through the canals? That's what I'd do. We have no way of watching what's beneath the surface. One of his pet sorcerers could sneak up and assassinate Beck before we knew what was happening. He could even combine it with a frontal attack, then ambush us with a lesser lich as soon as we stepped out from safety. He has already proven the concept with the Blighted. I believe this is eminently plausible. We must treat it as though it is a part of his plan or risk being ruined by it. Dante pinched the bridge of his nose. The reason it's such a good plan is that we can't really stop it. When he attacks again, what are we supposed to do? Hole up in the top of a tower and let the citizens get massacred by the Blighted until the White Lich himself shows up? Or do we leave Erisosis altogether? Neither, because your premise is wrong. I can stop a lieutenant from infiltrating the canals. The ether can be applied to dry land to determine whether it has been recently disturbed by footsteps, and the same may be done to water. That's very clever. But there's no way you can watch the whole city. Again, your premise is flawed. I only have to be able to observe the waterways closest to this island. I believe the roof of that tower would provide an appropriate vantage. He pointed to the tallest tower in the city, a black spire located a couple of islands away that stood a good sixty feet higher than the peak of the one they were currently inside. You're just going to sit up there and watch. Indeed, that will provide you with the security necessary to locate the Aiden Rane, survey him, 
and deduce his next move. In doing so, we might even craft a way to strike at him before he is able to follow through with his plan. Dante glanced around for any insects he could use as scouts. I'll start at once. Gladick nodded and turned to go. Naren gave them a skeptical look. Aren't you forgetting something? Such as coordinating with the city leaders, who we will be relying on to provide a large-scale defense. You've already been working with them, haven't you? Dante said. Let them know we're expecting another attack soon. And it's likely to be much worse than the one we weathered today. I'll do that. And I'll see about securing a new guide in case we need to move out while Vola remains incapacitated. Naren and Gladick departed the balcony. Seeing no bugs about, Dante did the same, exiting into the garden outside the tower to gather up a half dozen moths and large flies. As he sent them flying up to the balcony while he climbed the stairs, he felt a pang of resentment toward Blaze. His input was always invaluable. Even when his suggestions were too ridiculous to try, they tended to push Dante toward more creative solutions of his own. Dante knew as well as anyone that it wasn't always possible to throw aside the stresses of battle like a well-gnawed chicken bone. But would it have killed Blaze to wait to explode until after they were out of immediate danger of being overrun? Back in their quarters, Eck had fallen asleep again, snoring lightly. Volo remained deeply unconscious. On the balcony, Dante made himself a comfy seat of blankets and pads, then sent his tiny scouts soaring north from the city, directing the faster flies higher to hunt for the white lich, while the moths followed the largest road, exiting the city to the north. Movement on top of the black spire drew his eye. A tall, thin figure crossed to the edge of the spire's roof, attended to by a pair of servants. Gladick settled into his perch, ether twinkling on his hand. The moths spotted the retreating monsoon after an hour of flight. The armada moved along beneath the trees at a steady clip. It had been diminished, but remained imposing in size. Dante kept one moth steady in the air, high above them, while sending another to dip below the canopy. The monsoon still fielded at least one nethermancer, possibly more. If he could identify them, a tendril of awareness moved through the nether, questing toward the moth. Dante drew back to passive observation, leaving the insect to its own devices. But the alien presence continued onward, hunting in a wide spiral that soon tightened closer and closer around the thin cord connecting Dante to the moth. As the presence snapped down on the cord, Dante severed it. Troubling. Either the Nethermancer was extremely skilled, 
sensitive to any disruption of the shadows, or the white lich had warned them to be on the lookout for such things. That the monsoon had any nethermancers at all was even more troubling. The rebels hadn't seemed to have access to sorcerers back when Dante and Plays, in their ignorance, had been working alongside them. Either they'd been keeping some of their strength hidden, or they'd only recently found or convinced the nethermancers to join them. But why would nethermancers help them? Surely they had to understand that the aid and Rane wouldn't allow people of their power to continue to exist without ensuring their absolute loyalty to him. Was that the very reason they were allying with him? To be made under liches? Still slaves, yes, but at least thinking ones, whose lifespans would last for centuries. If Dante reached the point where he knew that victory against the Lich was impossible, would he make the same decision? The monsoon wasn't doing anything more interesting than retreating. He couldn't get spies close enough to them to overhear their talk, and his flies were likely to take another few hours to reach the White Lich. With the western sky reddening and his stomach emptying, he got up to see about food. In the inner chamber, Beck remained asleep. But Vola was sitting up in her bed, staring blankly across the room. Volo! Dante ran to her, slowing as he neared. She didn't turn her head. Bolo, are you all right? She didn't speak or look at him. He took a step closer. Volo, you were hurt very badly, but you're okay now. Do you understand? Again, she gave no sign of having heard. Her eyes gazed right through him. Frowning, he waved a hand in her face, then drew back his elbow and threw a punch at her nose. He stopped it three inches from her face, which was good because she didn't even flinch. With a sinking feeling, Dante reached into the nether within her. As far as he could tell, her brain appeared intact. It wasn't bleeding or swollen, and the rest of her, while still showing some healing to do, was in relatively fine shape. He decided against summoning Gladick away from his duties in favor of leaving her be and seeing if she snapped out of it on her own. Dante stuck his head out in the hallway and asked the servant there for a meal. The servant went downstairs without a word. Ten minutes later, he knocked on the door and delivered a plate of fish, greens, and fried bananas. Thank you, Dante said. I don't suppose you've heard any gossip about where my friend Blaze has gone off to? I have, the man said with some satisfaction. Friend of mine said the Hari is down at a pub on the docks with some of the soldiers. Word is your friend is trying to see which can hold more liquid, 
the bay, or his stomach. After eating, Dante took a quick nap to replenish his dwindling command of the shadows. When he woke, he went back to close observation through his spies. The sun set. Lanterns glowed from shores and towers. The streets filled with the sounds of rowdy singing, drunken laughter, and boisterous, freewheeling insult competitions that drew crowds by the score. It was the liveliest Dante had seen Tanara attain since before the revolution. He felt a small measure of pride in having helped restore it, however briefly it might last. The White Lich and his army of blighted didn't need lanterns or cook fires, and spotting them in the middle of the night might have proven exceedingly difficult if not for the fact that there were many thousands of them in many hundreds of boats. That and the fact that the white lich glowed like a star descended to earth. They had advanced over the last few hours, and their camp was roughly thirty miles north of Eris Osis. Close enough to fall on the city within half a day. But the lich would be waiting for word from the monsoon, pushing the timeline back to at least a full day. Cold comfort. Keeping his distance from the lich, Dante dropped two flies through the canopy, gauging numbers and hunting for the prime body, which was probably being kept in an armored boat of some kind. As he sent a fly over a formation of blighted, his connection to it was severed so abruptly that Dante uttered a startled, Hey! He commanded the second of the low-elevation flies to go still. Yet the presence that swept toward it was as inexorable as a rogue wave. Though Dante hadn't given it any orders, the fly began to move. He commanded it to stop. An iron grip clamped down on the insect. Dante grabbed hold of it with all his strength, yet it was like trying to stop a horse cart by grabbing hold of the rear gate and digging in his heels. The fly buzzed downward, passing over the heads of the blighted as they stirred restlessly in their undecorated canoes. The lich stood ahead, radiating faintly beneath the cover of the trees. He grew larger and larger, until the fly could see nothing else. His eyes holding perfectly steady, even as the color within them cycled from one shade of blue to the next. Dante tried to sever the link to the fly, but it was like trying to cut through a wad of cotton with a block of wood. The lich shook his massive head. You are no more than this pest. No more than the fleas that feed on your weak meat. Everything is mine, sorcerer. And when you bend the knee to me, you will weep tears of joy. The lich crushed the connection in a vice of nether. 
Dante had sent two other flies there as well, which were currently circling high overhead, seemingly beyond detection. Yet they were so high up that they couldn't catch more than spotty glimpses of the blighted through the canopy. He'd be able to follow the army's movement, but if he spotted the prime body, it would be through sheer luck. Even that felt highly unlikely. With the lich aware that he was being watched, there was no chance he'd let his vulnerability be seen. A scream slashed across the night. Dante jerked his head up. Light fell from the black spire, a streak of ether. It silhouetted Gladick as he hurtled toward the ground two hundred feet below. Dante shot to his feet. He grabbed at the shadows, but there was nothing he could do. With a flash of pale light, Gladick struck the ground. Twelve. Dante ran down the tower steps. Each second felt long enough to compose, seal, and deliver a letter. Yet no time seemed to pass at all as he threw himself into a canoe, thrashing madly to the island hosting the Black Spire. He'd been too far away to mark the exact spot where Gladick had landed, but all he had to do was run to the cluster of servants and onlookers circled around the body. Dante slid through the grass to kneel next to Gladick. Get back! The crowd retracted two steps, leaving him alone with the broken figure. It was both better than Dante had expected, yet entirely gruesome. Bones poking from the right shin, hip turned strangely. Blood staining Gladick's jabat and leaking from his lolling mouth. Dante had already cut himself as he'd run across the island. The nether was everywhere, falling on him before he called to it. He sent it into Gladick's form. The old man wasn't breathing. His heart was still. Yet the nether still circulated within him, pulsing in confusion. Dante had seen this before. It was the state in which the body wasn't dead in the full sense, the shadows within it not yet certain that they were supposed to flow from the corpse to rejoin the world as a whole. He drove the nether into Gladick's heart like a black dagger. Blocking out all other thoughts, he churned the nether in a circle to mix with the unsteady shadows that were already there. Once they were thoroughly emulsified, he expanded the nether, contracted it, and expanded it again, slowly at first, then quicker and quicker with each cycle, until the frantic pace matched the thrum of his own heart. He held the pace for twelve seconds. Feeling woozy, he removed himself from Gladick's heart. Yet it continued to beat on its own. Gladick coughed bright red blood, groaned, and lapsed back into unconsciousness. The crowd erupted into gasps and chatter. Someone gave a short scream. A young man with ragged hair fell to his knees and lowered his face in supplication. You brought him back from the dead? Dante shook his head, too focused on his task to try to explain that Gladick hadn't really been dead, 
and aware that, even if he tried, it would do nothing to quench the ridiculous stories the locals would be telling about it later that same night. He cleared his mind of thoughts, waiting with forced patience while the ether filled him. He sent the light to Gladick's shattered shin, making it whole, while at the same time applying the nether to the priest's numerous and catastrophic internal injuries. Bad though these were, Gladick had fallen more than two hundred feet. The impact should have burst him apart. The flash of light Dante had seen at the end must have been some trick of ether Gladick had used to save his life. Dante hadn't had the time and rest to recuperate all of the nether he'd spent during the battle, and he ran out before he'd finished undoing the damage to Gladick's body. It would have to be enough for the time being. A team of soldiers arrived with a stretcher. They gathered Gladick up and transported him to the tower where Volo and Beck were currently recovering. Dante tilted his head back at the spire. Some loose masonry was scattered across the island. He turned to the crowd. Was anyone with him when he fell? Did you see what happened? A servant took a step forward, bowing his head. I was on the roof. He was near the edge, muttering to himself and casting his weird spells. Then he cried out and slipped over the edge. A woman dressed in the green and white of the Drakebane's soldiers nodded. So the same. Ledge crumbled under his foot. I'd warned him it'd be damaged in the fighting, but he didn't listen. No one had anything more than that. Dante got the name of the soldier and the servant who'd witnessed it, then paddled back to the island where they'd set up their private hospital, which was getting disturbingly full. A pair of soldiers had been posted outside the hospital quarters. Inside, Gladick was unattended. Dante wasn't certain if that was because local physicians had decided they couldn't do anything for him, or if they refused to touch dirty foreigners. Gladick was breathing deeply and evenly. It didn't seem like the kind of sleep he would soon wake from. Volo had curled up to face the wall. Dante called to her softly, but she made no sign she'd heard. Beck, at least, seemed reasonably healthy, given what he'd been through, although obviously weak. The door banged open, vomiting Blaze into the room. His eyes were bleary, and he was missing one of his sandals. Naren entered after him, looking annoyed yet grave. Blaze staggered over to Gladick, taking a route that was wriggly enough to seduce a snake. What happened to him? He fell from a tower, Dante said. A tower? Are you sure it wasn't his high horse? Dante explained what little he knew. He'll live, I think. Hardly a surprise, is it? Devils never die easy. If he was going to fall on something, why couldn't it have been a field of whirling blades? Are you that drunk, or just that stupid? It could be out for days. 
If the White Litz shows up and Gladick's still unconscious, that means no Andrak. We'll be down to a single sorcerer. Blaze crossed his arms and made an attempt to nod, though his head was swaying side to side as much as up and down. Yeah, well, he's still a bastard, and I'm tired. Wake me up if he dies, will you? Just make sure to bring beer. Blaze shuffled toward the other room, ramming into the doorway and half collapsing inside. Even with the door closed behind him, the racket he made unfolding his bed from the wall was enough to wake Beck. Naren shook his head in disgust and indicated the balcony. It was hours past sundown, and the offshore breeze had died away to nothing, leaving the night humid and warm. Most of the revelers had gone off to bed, but isolated shouts and cackles rang through the darkness. We're dead, Dante said. With Gladick in this state, a lesser lich could sneak up on us at any moment. Naren pinched his chin. In that case, I would recommend the use of a little-known asset known as guards. It is admittedly primitive when compared to sorcery, but some have found it effective. Yes, all right. Maybe it's not the end of the world in and of itself. But this isn't our only problem, is it? Volo's catatonic. I don't even know if she can hear me. Gladick might be in a coma. Even if he snaps out of it in time, Blaze can barely stand to stay in the same room with him. Everything's falling apart. And it's at the worst possible time. Given the frequency that you find yourself in such conditions, I had come to think that you enjoyed them. I don't know if we can rely on our original plan to take out the Lich. I need to think of something else. Some way to hit the Lich before he comes close to the city and puts his guard up. Naren nodded, gazing across the dark towers. As before, I don't know what help I can be to you, but I'll offer whatever I can. I suppose you can help me keep an eye on the city. We should set up patrols to look out for more blighted. The attempt they made today was too good not to try again. They went to the ground floor to speak to a woman named Sal Dan, who had been acting as Naren's liaison since the first threats had arisen against the city. She sent runners out to bring more soldiers to the island for instruction. While they waited, Dante asked Naren to step outside. He moved a short ways from the tower, checking to ensure they were alone. The loon I gave Jonah broke when we were on our way here. I'm going to replace it. Do you anticipate that we'll be working separately again? It's possible I'll need to venture outside the city for recon. Besides, if you're out on patrol and you bump into a lesser lich, I doubt you'll want to wait for a runner to inform me that you're currently shitting your pants. Dante waited until a pair of the city's innumerable rats wandered by, then slew them with one of his few remaining dabs of nether. He picked up the bodies and brought them upstairs, where he severed their heads and rapidly cleaned them of flesh and brains, 
a process that had become second nature to him. Naren clamped his hands in his armpits. Is it required that everything involving your art must be disgusting? You sound like Blaze. As the saying goes, if you want to make a loon, you have to break a few rats' skulls. Dante cracked the skulls into the component pieces that would form the loon, and bound them together with some tenarian thread that was strong enough to use as fishing line. He cut his finger, and Naren's, and they each added a dab of blood to the two parts, forging the connection between them. They tested them to confirm they worked, then returned downstairs, where Sal had assembled thirty soldiers. After Dante briefed them on the previous blighted attack, they took to canoes and dispersed through the city canals. Feeling moderately better about the state of things, Dante returned to his balcony. Shifting his attention between the white lich, the retreating monsoon, who'd made camp in the swamps miles north of Erisosis, and the city's innumerable canals and waterways. The revelry had finally ended, citizens exhausted by the battle trundling off to their beds, aware they might have another fight on their hands all too soon. Having had an awfully long day himself, Dante propped his back against the wall. He woke with a start, heart-pounding. It was still dark, but the stars had jumped close to two hours. Two hours that Dante had neglected to keep watch on the vulnerable city. He activated his new loon. Naren didn't answer. He was probably asleep, too, leaving the patrols to better-rested Tenarians. Dante sent his nearby bugs on a quick sweep of the skies. The city seemed at peace, but that could be true right up until the moment ten thousand blighted jumped from hiding in the waterways. He jogged up the stairwell to the rooftop, emptying himself of thoughts. In the stillness, the ether arrived, coming freely, most of his ability restored by sleep and the long hours since he'd used it. He pushed open the hatch to the roof. He was two hundred feet high, enough to see a good portion of the city at once. Gathering up the ether, he sent it down to the canals, not to the surface, which would likely be painted with the disturbance of any number of vessels, even at this late hour, but below it. Faint, Small lines appeared, the trails left behind by cruising fish. He cast his net further and further, working in an outward spiral. Knowing he had limited light to work with, he gave each segment of canal no more than a dusting, hoping that it would be enough to catch the trail left by anything human-sized. As he neared the western wall, the dust lit up like white fire, illuminating dozens of tangled strands. Dante's throat caught. He sent a dragonfly screaming toward the site, but it couldn't see past the murky surface of the canal. Dante flung himself down the steps, pausing only to inform the guards stationed outside their quarters 
that he was going to check on a possible disturbance. As he ran out the doors, he pulsed Naren's loon again, but there was no response. He hopped in a canoe, stirring the scent of brackish water as he paddled toward the western wall. There had been something like thirty or forty trails through the water. If they were all blighted, that wouldn't be a problem. The shadows were starting to come easily again, and would rip apart the undead in seconds. If they were blighted, led by a lesser lich, it might be more of a challenge, yet he fully expected that he'd still be able to destroy them by himself, or, at the very least, retreat and rally at one of the towers. Besides, with most of his team injured or passed out in bed, what other choice was there? He came to the southern tips of the silvery trails, which were already fading away. He tracked them north, the light strengthening as he went. After a few hundred yards, it was blazing under the water and seemed to be intensifying at a sluggish walking speed, one that would match that of bodies slogging along underwater. Dante brought the canoe in to land. Nicking his arm, he summoned the nether to his right hand. He dropped a good chunk of his ether into the water, asking it to glow as pure light. Pale rays shot through the water. On the canal bed, illuminated despite the murk, forty blighted threw their hands over their eyes against the intrusion of the light. Dante didn't have much experience with using the nether to blast things underwater, so he sent a single bolt as a test case. It moved more slowly than it would through open air, but struck the target forcefully enough to punch a hole through the man's chest. He staggered, the cloud of blood wafting through the water. The blighted took off to the north at what passed for a run. Dante only had to walk to keep up, striding alongside a retaining wall. He plowed a half-dozen shadowy missiles into the water. All struck their targets, but only three did so with enough damage to kill. Could he force or lure them from the water somehow? Or was there a way to work with the water to reduce the energy he was spending? Because while it was likely that it would be at least another day before the white lich arrived, he passed the corner of the retaining wall. A shadow flew toward him, robes flapping behind it. Dante thrusted it with the nether, but the nether was already coming at him, battering past his defenses, enfolding everything in darkness. Cold tingled over him. He smelled ice. It felt like some time had passed. He opened his eyes and stared into those of the white lich. Dante kicked his feet against the stone ground, trying to slide away as he snatched out at the nether. The lich lifted his index finger. Dante's feet and hands seemed to freeze to the floor. A whip of ether dashed the shadows from his command. You will stop that. The lich's metallic voice grated like flint drawn down the side of a copper bowl. 
or I will hurt you until you learn to stop. Dante bit his teeth together hard enough to strain his jaw. He made another grab at the nether. The ether whipped out again, dispersing it. A second whip of ether lashed at Dante. Pain launched up his spine. Every muscle in his body went as stiff as a tile. He heard himself scream. He was gone for a while. The coldness returned. He opened his eyes. He'd pissed himself. He was lying in a stone chamber. The walls were covered in glyphs, and the air smelled damp and somehow old. The white ledge stood fifteen feet from him, the light emanating from the sorcerer's skin making his outline indistinct, like a vision from a dream. He barely had room to stand without scraping his head on the ceiling. Dante found he was able to tilt his head to meet the lich's gaze, but the rest of his body was bound in place by implacable strands of ether. Why not kill me? The lich's expression barely changed, yet he was somehow able to exude a sense of pitying contempt. You are smarter than most, sorcerer. Don't beg me for answers that you can find for yourself. You want me for something? Information? Or to turn me into one of your slaves? Or both? Think more deeply yet. Except for the fact that other Nethermancers seem to be of use to you, and that you're completely insane, I know almost nothing about you. Only the Lich's lips moved. We are not always rational. Not everything is done in the service of securing resources. Sometimes we act for satisfaction. Maybe I just want to hurt you. Dante's scalp tingled. Do you? Yes, the lich said. But I do not think that I will. How did you get to me? You already possess the answer. Despite his half-terror, Dante nearly rolled his eyes. Then he frowned instead. After you ambushed us with the Blighted, you knew we'd be on the lookout for further incursions. So, you gave us one. When I went out to investigate, your lieutenant attacked me from the shadows. Yes. Why not just kill me, though? What if I'd been able to fight off your lieutenant, or woken up while he was still taking me to you, and destroyed him? You oppose me. You would give your life to stop me. Do you even know what it is that you fight? Well, yes. A madman bent on conquering everything. Why do I do what I do? Power. You want to rule everything. 
and remove all threats to your life. Those are lesser goals. What is the main one? Dante thought for several seconds, then shook his head. I don't know. You forgot to send the manifesto around. How long have you humans lived on this land? It isn't entirely clear. I was taught that the gods gave us life about two thousand years ago. The lich's mouth budged into the suggestion of a smile. The light in his eyes danced. You are taught wrong. Your knowledge is as shallow as this swamp. The truth is as deep as the seas that lay beyond the land. You're talking about the uniquely Tenarian idea that we've been around much longer than that. At least twenty thousand years. Perhaps as much as a hundred thousand. This interests you. I see it in your face. Yet you deny it. Dante would have crossed his arms, but as they were currently locked in place beside him, he settled for crinkling his brow. Can I say that I find it excessively odd that you, the all-feared Aedan Rane, have kidnapped me in order to deliver me a history lesson? I do not fear when birds caw or frogs croak. Speak as you will. Do you know how the old world was lost? The sorcerers built a beautiful world, but they did so on the backs of their slaves. Eventually there was a rebellion. Apparently one so big that the entire world got smashed up, which I find difficult to believe logistically. As the sorcerers were on the brink of defeat, they unleashed a race of demons they'd created, ones that hunted people. The demons slaughtered almost everyone, drove the survivors into hiding. After a long while, the demons died out. But it was tens of thousands of years until people began to build cities and nations again. It crooked one eye, supposedly. Effortlessly. The Aiden Rane drew the ether to him, the light scintillating and jagged. If Dante hadn't already pissed himself, he would have done so then. The lich spread his hands wide. In the air between them, a vision formed, as crystal clear as existence itself. A great city, towers like blades of grass, gleaming streets, horses as proud as victorious warriors. Then, in a mad rush that somehow remained comprehensible to Dante's eye, those clean streets filled with rebels. Towers burned and fell. Light and shadow smashed whole neighborhoods into craters. As the last of the towers was set to be taken, creatures flowed from its base. Humanoid, but their arms ended in long claws, their hairless bodies hard and lean. They crossed the rubble in great bounds, the fangs of their long jaws stained with blood. In the sped-up vision, 
they tore through the remains of the city in a blink, then spread outward, multiplying as they went, devouring whole towns, cities, everything. Until there was no more smoke, no more farmers driving their flocks or children playing in the fields, no more anything but the wind and the grass. The lich lowered his hands. The vision faded, leaving them in the dimness of the chamber. This is what once was. How do you know it looked like that? You weren't there, were you? The giant laughed, a surprising sound like the ring of steel bowls clapped together. No, but I have seen it. You aren't Sean, are you? Sean is long dead, and I am not. What I have shown you is what was, what must be prevented from ever happening again. Dante sputtered. Your plan is to save the world from being destroyed by destroying the world? It will not be destroyed. But it won't be anything. It'll just be you sitting on a mountain of bones getting worshipped by a pack of murderous half-zombies. You deride the blighted as mindless slaves to their hungers and hate. How is it so different from when they lived as humans? The blighted can't even put their pants on the right way which won't be much of a problem, as the blighted are too stupid to make new pans, and will soon all be naked. Enjoy looking at that for the rest of eternity. The blighted are one tool. A craftsman needs many. Some, like you, will retain your intelligence. So you're going to make me one of your underliches? I'll wait to thank you until I have no free will. Then you can make me thank you as much as you want. Incidentally, I'm sure your generosity toward elites like me will be of great comfort to the blighted. Don't speak like you have any care for them, the lich said. You kill them like roaches. And that is appropriate. Once the plan is complete, there will be no more need for them. What will you do with them then? I have chosen not to decide yet. Perhaps I will destroy them. Perhaps I will remove them to their own land until their bodies wear out. It does not matter. They will be happy with whatever I decide. Then what? You, me, and the handful of other slave sorcerers who survived the global extermination spend the next eternity getting drunk and remembering the good old days when the concept of days mattered. Then, the lich said, cupping his hands and gazing into them, a new people will replace them. To worship you, I suppose. In part. And why not? 
I will have the power of a god. In some ways more, for I will have done more for them than any of the gods ever has. But that isn't the main reason. Vanity drives men to make accomplishments because they know they will die and be forgotten. I face neither fate, and have thus set vanity aside. Do you know what the centuries have shown me? That all people of all times yearn to kill one another, to destroy everyone that is not of their kind. That they have not done so is not out of their goodness, but only because they have lacked the means. So I will stop them before they achieve that end, by binding them to me, and by making them all as one people, united, with no urge to fall upon one another, even if the day comes that I pass from this world. Dante took a moment to attempt to conceive this. Just everyone the same, from one shore to the other, in the mountains and the deserts and the coasts, on every continent of the world. Is it not worth it for peace? For harmony, a single religion, a single mode of thought, all of the world united at last. The gods have cursed us with differences, with so many ideas that a mind can never hold them all, and shatters beneath their contradictions, trying in vain to make sense of what is around them. I will liberate them from the burden of thought, for all will be answered, and people may, at last, move forward in serenity. But you can't just demand they all think the same thing. The struggle toward truth is the core of what makes us human. What happens when all questions have been answered? and all truths delivered. The righteousness lies not in the struggle, little sorcerer. Why do you resent the thought of others living in enlightened unity? Is it because you hold yourself superior to them? Do you believe that only you have the clarity of mind to seek and discover that which is right. What flaw in you makes you yearn for others to suffer? Dante shook his head, but all he found inside himself were simple denials, devoid of any conviction. I just don't like the idea of making people think a certain way. Let them follow their own paths— in some ways, the journey's more important than the conclusion. It is for their own good, and they will be happier for it. 
The lich tilted his massive head. Do you not understand? You find this idea so dangerous because it is so beguiling. You claim to seek truth. Yet when it stands before you at last, you reject it. Why are you even trying to convince me of this? You don't have any doubts about it, do you? Once I'm under your power, neither will I. So why not just belich me already, so that I'll agree with your every word? The white lich laughed again, the icy planes of his face looking like they might crack away. Because there is so much more pleasure in bringing you to understand that you have been fighting for the cause of suffering and extinction. Abandon it now. Pledge yourself to the glory of peace. Let your last act as a mortal man be the first moral choice of your existence. That is my gift to you. For just a moment, Dante didn't know what he would say. Then it burst forth in a torrent. You claim to bring them peace by making them all one people. But even that isn't good enough, is it? Because within that people, they'll still be individuals, pursuing their own goals and dreams. Which means there will be struggles, conflicts, maybe even wars. So the only way to solve that is to take away their ability to be individuals, with their own minds and mouths, their own thoughts and speech. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? You don't only want to silence them to stop them from hurting each other. You want to shut them up because you're afraid that if they get the chance to speak, they'll prove you wrong. And then your whole great quest collapses into ashes. Dante smiled bitterly. You say you'll bring them peace, harmony, unity. And in exchange, all they have to give up is everything. The giant didn't look the slightest bit upset by Dante's rebuke. We have spent enough time on words. It is time to put you to use. I have thought about sending you to kill your friends. That would be amusing. But I want them gone, and your victory over them would not be assured. Instead, I will send you away and see if they follow you. They might not care to, and that would be amusing in its own way. But I think that they will. In doing so, they will abandon the city of Eris Osus to me. And once I have absorbed its people to myself, it will no longer matter what your friends do. Although I expect that they will have already died fighting you. You can't do this. 
Dante activated his loon. Yes. Naren answered at once. Sounded urgent. Dante, where are you? You may have captured me, Dante said to the lich. You might turn me into one of your pet nethermancers, but my friends will find you. They'll kill you. And whatever you try to do to me, I'll fight back. I'll break free. I'll... The lich lifted his left hand, curling his fingers. Light seeped through Dante's skin in little droplets, pooling there, and then streaming towards the lich in white threads. Dante's body went ice cold. He was still breathing, but he didn't seem to be getting any air. Sound roared in his eyes, drowning out the beating of his heart. He grasped at the nether, but he might as well have been trying to grab a cloud. For as much as he was afraid, he was just as surprised. Somehow, until that very moment, he had assumed that he'd find a way to escape, or resist, or even talk the white lich out of it. In the bedrock of his soul, he had always told himself that he would never let himself be made a slave. He had been wrong. Thirteen. Blaze awoke to two sensations, neither of them pleasant. The first was a most violent hangover, which he recalled being extremely well-earned. And the second was that of being shaken about by some utter prick who was about to learn that he who wakes a hungover man is he whose balls are about to be booted up into his body cavity. He slapped away Naren's hand. Naren, you monster. Unless the white lich himself is here to defile my soul, you can stuff it up your ass and keep it there until noon. On second thought, make that four o'clock. Get up, Naren said. I don't care how much pain you've put yourself in. Get up, Mr. Buckler. There was a shakiness to the captain's voice that made sweat pop out across Blaze's body. Something had gone wrong. That in itself was no cause for alarm, to say nothing of rousting a man from bed like a brute. Over the last fifteen-odd years, Blaze had experienced enough things going wrong that he now considered it unusual when things weren't falling to shit. But he knew at once that this was very, very different. He sat up, wincing at the brightness of the sunlight through the windows. What is it? Dante has been taken. What? When? I believe it happened last night. He went missing then, and I couldn't contact him. But I didn't know what had happened until just a minute ago. Why didn't you tell me about this hours ago? I made an attempt to wake you. It failed, as someone was too drunk. I don't believe it was me. Blaze had fallen asleep in his clothes, meaning he only had to find his sandals and swords. The blades were leaned against the head of the bed in easy grabbing range, the same place he always left them. It was good to know that, even after a solid gallon of what passed for Tenarian beer, 
he was still able to remember what was important in life, but one of his sandals was missing. He moved toward the other room, meaning to steal one of Gladick's. Who thieved him? The monsoon. Naren trailed after him. That's possible, but whoever took him, he's now in the hands of the White Lich. Blaze froze with Gladick's sandal halfway onto his foot. Naren, please tell me you're joking, and that this is a well-deserved punishment for my dereliction of duty. Last night, Dante forged a new loon so he and I could keep up with each other's patrols. Since last night, I've tried to contact him repeatedly without success. Not five minutes ago, he pulsed me. It was clear that he was talking to someone else, but that he wanted me to hear their conversation. Naren described what he'd heard. It wasn't much. There can be no doubt that he was speaking to the Aiden Rane, and that the enemy meant to convert Dante into a lesser lit under his command. A wave of immense smallness passed over Blaze. Do we know if the lich has succeeded yet? Based on the last noises I heard before the loon went dead, I would assume he's enacting the process right now. Then we have to go stop him. The lich is likely to be hours away from here. The transformation of the blighted is nearly instant. I'm afraid there is no way to get there in time. We still have to try. Naren kept his voice low. We don't know where he is, Blaze. Even if we did, we'd have to face off against the White Lich. And this time, we would do so without Dante's help. Or Gladick's. The two of us wouldn't stand a chance. Blaze sank to a crouch, hands pressed to the sides of his head. A hundred ideas swirled across his mind, but most of them were stupid, or useless visions of cutting the white lich's fat, stupid head off. Except the lich bled this ghastly white stuff. It wouldn't even spray in a properly satisfying... Blaze jerked up his head. Dante made a loon for you. To replace the one he and Jonah had been using, which broke yesterday. Your loon has his blood on it. Blaze sprinted to the other room. Gladick was asleep or unconscious in his bed, his pale shins looking like the trunks of birch saplings. Gladick, wake up, you old son of a bitch! Naren glared at him. He is recovering from his fall. Show some decency. If he doesn't get up, the only thing I'll show him is the back of my hand. Gladick! He grabbed the old man's jabat, which was perfectly clean, having replaced the blood-stained one he'd been wearing during his topple from the tower, and gave him a good shake. Open your eyes, you prick! Wake up and do some good for once in your miserable life! Gladick's head lolled, then snapped forward. He opened his eyes, the whites of which had gone faintly yellow. He made a clicking noise in his throat. Blaze kept a tight grip on the front of his jabat. Gladick, are you in there? I live. Yes, and we're all very upset about that. Do you remember what happened? The 
Tower. I was on top of it, watching over all of the world. And then... He narrowed his eyes to slits, then bared his teeth and shook his head. I cannot remember. Everything is blank. His mouth fell open. He fixed his eyes on Blaze. Wait, there is more. Yes? I was fishing. Blaze gave a grunt of laughter. I think you cracked your skull. You weren't fishing, you were falling. The difference is that fishing involves a line and some fish, whereas falling involves breaking parts of you and the occasional splattering. I was at Audemars Stream, outside of Fall Hedge. That is the village where I spent my childhood. I was at the stream, and it was vital that I catch enough trout, for my father was sick in bed and my mother had died the year before, and my younger sisters would have no dinner except what I brought home. It was close to winter, and the leaves were falling in the water, and the sun was about to go down, and I was cold. But I stayed until I caught my fourth fish, and then I walked home. And although it was dark and I was frightened, I was proud, too, because that night my sisters would not go hungry. What's this? A memory of yours? It was more than a memory. I experienced it in perfect clarity, as though I were living it anew. Do you not see? Blaze snapped his fingers. You died, didn't you? What you saw was the past lands. I believe so. Yet if I was dead, how can I be here now? Breathing, speaking, questioning. Because apparently Dante is a miracle worker. You'll have to thank him for that. Except you can't, because the white lich took him. Gladick's mouth fell open again, eyes gleaming in horror. It was an expression Blaze wouldn't have thought him capable of. But how? Blaze and Naren explained what little they knew. During this, Gladick closed his eyes. Winky little pieces of light flowed down his body. When he finished and opened his eyes again, his face looked somewhat less haunted, meaning it appeared to only be housing four or five ghosts instead of a full dozen. Blaze's head hurt, but he hardly felt it as he paced about. The lich might have stolen Dante, but we can find him. We've got some of his blood. We need you to open a connection between it and the rest of the blood sloshing around in his body and use that to track him down. And then what? If he has been converted into lichdom, he will be utterly loyal to the Aiden Rane. He will attempt to destroy us on sight. When we left, Eris said that there's a way to reverse being blighted. Maybe there's a way to de-lich somebody, too. You are suggesting we return to the silent spires? Learn if there is indeed a method to undo what has been done? Then chase Dante down and apply this method to him? Unless you think we can slap it out of him. You are made foolish by your passions. 
You don't understand what this course of action will lead to. Saving our friend from being used against us, teaming up with him to rip the lich into glowing white confetti, and then being thrown a countrywide party by the grateful locals. It is three days from here to the hell-painted hills, then one to two more days to reach the silent spires. Even if the law you seek is real and can be conveyed to us instantly, it will be five to seven days before we can even begin the hunt for Dante. I think he'll forgive us for not being able to violate the laws of nature and time to get to him sooner. Gladick had been seated on his bed. He stood, pre-wincing, and then looking mildly surprised at the apparent lack of pain. During that time span, short as it seems, the Aedan Rane will invade Erisosis. We will not be here to defend it, and it will fall. In a single stroke, the Lich will double both the size of his army and his personal power. After that, there will be no fighting him. I don't care. We're going to find Dante, and we're going to save him. This might well be the Aedan Rane's very plan. Entice us to depart the city and then claim it once there is nothing left to threaten him. We cannot fall into his trap. We're not going to fall into any trap or going to jump into it. Gladick shuffled to the glass door and flung it open to the balcony. He swept his hand across the towers of the city. You would sacrifice all of these people for this, along with our only real chance to kill the Aedan Rane, a chance we have spent everything preparing for, that Dante was fighting for. And you would do all this on the possibility that we might learn a way to undo what has been done? Yes! Yes, gods damn you, I would! But what is the point? You would save your friend only to lose the world. How can we kill the lich if we give this up? Lays crossed to him in a blink, jabbing his finger at Gladick's face. Do you know how many times he and I have done the impossible? I don't, because I stopped keeping track after it hit triple digits. We'll get him back, and we'll find a way to win just like we always do. Gladick looked away with a grimace, exposing his worn teeth. How can you throw so much away like this? Because he would do the same for me. The look that came to Gladick's face contained a blend of sadness, envy, and resolution. Very well. We will abandon the city and travel to the silent spires. But I ask one thing of you. What's that? Pray that we are making the right decision. Blaze clapped his hands and dashed to the other room to gather up his things. He was getting his pack laced up before he understood what he was feeling. Gratitude. Toward Gladick. Giving a hard boot to such unwelcome thoughts, he walked over to the old bastard, who was searching about for a second sandal. Blaze jerked his thumb toward the other room. 
Have you given any thought to Volo? I'm not sure she's well enough to travel. Think we're better off leaving her here? A fleeting look of pity crossed Gladick's face. You still fail to see the consequences of your course. If you leave young Volo here, she will die along with all the others at the Lich's hand. Blaze rocked back on his heels, swearing loudly. Then she's coming with us. And if she is still unable to care for herself when we reach for the hills, for the sake of our own lives, we cannot allow ourselves to be slowed down. Blaze met the old man's eyes. I know what you're trying to do. Do you think I'm a newcomer to hard decisions? Gladick watched him a moment, then smiled and returned to his search. Consulting with Beck, they decided the night was sound enough to travel with them, and would also be better off stashed away at the silent spires. While they saw to their arrangements, Narin dashed off to the docks to warn Jonah and the Sword of the South to be ready to flee the city at the first sign of invasion. All told, they were ready to go in less than an hour. Knowing that it would only touch off a ruckus, Blaze almost left the tower without telling a single Tenarian soul. At the end, though, he wrote a simple note and left it in their quarters. He included the suggestion that the Erisians might flee the city and scatter in all directions. He doubted they'd take his advice. The five of them assembled on the shore. Volo could walk on her own, as long as you sort of prodded her along as you went, but she needed help getting into the canoe, and was obviously not going to provide any help navigating, obliging Blaze to take the seat in the fore. He took them west, toward the hole Dante had opened in the wall the day before. It was early enough in the morning that the laborers were just now showing up to patch it up with boards. Blaze smiled and waved politely as they passed through the gap. This isn't the first time I've said this, but this time really isn't our proudest moment. Naren lifted an eyebrow. They're probably all about to die, and you're joking about it. Blaze tightened his grip on the paddle. If it is any consolation, Gladick said, most of them will not die. They will become blighted. Blaze frowned. I think you may have discovered a new form of anti-consoling. As they neared the end of the clear water, the forest rising before them, he turned around for a last glimpse of Eris Osis. Gladick leaned forward and touched him on the shoulder. Do not look back at it. It is already gone. The pleasant thing about the swamp was that if you wanted to put a city behind you, all it took was a few minutes of boating into the trees. The unpleasant thing about the swamp was that as soon as you got away from the city, you were faced with nothing but a lot of fetid muck, swarms upon swarms of flies, and long, squiggly things that seemed personally invested in killing you. Nobody said much for the first two miles. 
Lays had noticed that was very common at the start of trips. Initial silence, as though no one wanted to disturb the extremely sensitive business of repeatedly shoving a paddle in the water, or letting your horse trot along, or what have you, followed by the realization of just how long you were going to be out there, and that if you didn't fill some of the time with talking, you would probably soon be murdering each other instead. After a bit of discussing directions with Beck, Gladick lifted his head. Where is the object that contains Galan's blood? Naren unclipped his loon from his ear and handed it over. It lies within this. Gladick turned the hunk of bone jewelry in his hand. One of his foolish earrings? Why would he bleed on it? He bleeds on everything, Blay said. Haven't you noticed I don't like to stand within three feet of him? I had assumed that was because he had noticed your odor and ordered you to keep your distance. Despite himself, Blaze snorted. My blood is on that as well, Naren said, in case that's relevant. Gladick eyed them as if he found them unspeakably barbaric. This is an ethereal object, yes? And not merely a piece of shudder-worshipping degenerate iconography? It doesn't matter, Blaze said. Now get your face into that blood and get to work. He could feel Gladick bringing the nether to him, manipulating it in a cold way that was practical, yet elegant. Sometimes the old man whispered to himself, as if he'd forgotten where he was, or was too mad and senile to care. After twenty minutes of this, and entirely without warning, Gladick shot halfway to his feet, crying out in pain. Blaze ducked lower to stop the boat from rolling back and forth. What are you doing, you crazy idiot? Looking to feed the Zikioko? Gladick rubbed his forehead with his palm. I believe I have discovered how this process works. With its aid, I have successfully located... Captain Naren. Blaze chuckled, swooping his paddle through the water. Then you possess the eldritch power of sight. At last, I understand why Dante was so eager to team up with you. The priest returned to his whispers. In less than a minute, he snapped his fingers. I have found the correct signal. Dante lives. Relief warmed Blaze's veins like a good stout. How far away? As my prior experience is limited to locating a man seated immediately before me, I cannot say. The signal is not terribly strong, but it points somewhere to our northeast. Keep an eye on it, figuratively speaking. We'll want to know if the lich sends him off somewhere else. Such as after us. That thought hadn't occurred to Blaze. He didn't like it. He paddled until he'd sweated off his hangover, then passed the tool over to Naren and took a nap. It was a muggy day, with little wind, and Blaze was happy when it came to an end. They found a nice little island where Blaze helped lift Volo from the canoe. He thought he saw a glimmer of light in her eye, but it was gone so fast. 
He couldn't be sure. The trees fell away. The hell-painted hills lifted before them, threatening and stark. The swamps, for once, had been perfectly uneventful. Over the last two and a half days, Dante seemed to have been traveling slowly northwest, but Gladick had no way to know how far or for what purpose. After taking a long look around to get his bearings, Blaze headed north, meaning to find the exact spot where they'd crossed the border before. He found the location a mile later, but his self-congratulations on bringing them to it were short-lived. The goat-like Lawn Harbor were nowhere to be seen. He beached the canoe on a grassy shore connected to the barren hills, silently cursing Dante for not having thought to give Era a loon. Then again, Dante would have still been in possession of that loon, leaving them stuck in the exact same position. He jerked his chin at Gladig. I don't suppose you have any neat tricks to get hold of Era and ask her to please send out the giant goats? Gladig's eyes shifted back and forth as he surveyed the slag countryside. None that would work. You can't send a dead pigeon with a note tied around its neck. It would not be delivered. When Dante sent his minions toward the spires, they ceased to function as soon as they crossed the borders, felled by the Odosein. You could send pigeon after pigeon until someone sees one falling and wanders over to check on what's going on with all the suicidal pigeons. Even if successful, it would take longer than we would on our own. There is also the matter that none of the people at the spires can read. I never thought illiteracy would come back to bite anyone in the ass. Blaze planted his hands on the small of his back. Beck, are you any help here? The knight shook his head. I've only traveled through the hell-painted hills twice, once to begin my training and once to end it. Then it sounds like we're traveling by foot wagon. Blaze clucked his tongue. Polo, how's that sound, eh? She didn't so much as look his way. He sighed. Guess we'll have to carry her. We shall do no such thing, Gladick said. What? You think we're better off trying to roll her? In the state she's in, she can hardly walk down a paved road by herself. She could never make it through the hills. Then she is a burden we cannot allow to slow us down. You sacrificed the city of Erisosis for this, Blaze Buckler. You may have sacrificed everything for it. I will not endanger our mission for the sake of a single soul. The two men stared at each other. Blaze had that feeling where you really wanted to pick something up and hit something else with it, which was never a great indicator of the rightness of one's position. Even with help from Naren and the still-recovering Beg, would he really be able to carry Volo all that way? Up the slopes? over the crags, all without slowing them down and risking being blighted themselves. We could leave her here for now, he said, hating the words and himself. I don't think she's in any danger of wandering off. Naren gaped.
Are you mad? She may not wander off, but she won't feed herself either, nor defend herself from attacks by people or animals. We can hide her. If we send someone back with Lon Harbus the instant we get to the spires, she won't be alone more than three days. She won't be alone at all because I will stay with her. We should have sent her with the Sword of the South, Blaze muttered, but I kept thinking she'd get better. There is no hand waiting to pull us from the depths of our troubles, Gladick said. No guarantee of progress, nor better days. The Aeudan Rane may be the only one of us whose fate is not the slow disintegration of body and mind. With inspirational sermons like that, I can see how you went so far in the priesthood. Blaze shook Naren's hand. We'll send someone for you as soon as we get there. If you haven't heard from us in a week, you should probably assume Bel Era got fed up with our endless problems and fed us to the goats. I will find my way, Naren said. Good luck on yours. Without ceremony, Blaze, Gladick, and Peck hiked up into the hills. The heat of the day glowed from the rocks. If not for the steady wind blowing off them, it would have been unbearable. At the top of the first ridge, Blaze stopped to look back the way they'd come in, shielding his eyes. Naren and Volo were seated beneath a tree. Blaze had a sudden pang that he wouldn't see them again. He turned around and hiked on. He soon learned that Beck wasn't much for talking. Gladick certainly was, but Blaze was not especially interested in hearing what he had to say, as Gladick seemed afflicted with such an exuberance of bile that he couldn't open his mouth without disgorging a stream of it. This was unfortunate, as it left Blaze alone with his thoughts. Such as the idea that Era might not know how to reverse Dante's condition or that she would claim that there was no way to reverse it. In that case, where could they go to find that knowledge? Bressel, Narashtevik, or the Hukali Islands would be the usual bets. All were centers of scholasticism, and he knew exactly where they were. But these were also places where lichcraft was, as far as he knew, unknown and hence would be unlikely to know fuck all about it. What was the alternative? Race off in a random direction in the hopes that whoever they ran into over there would know what to do? How much time would they have to search for answers before the white lich just sort of consumed everything? Blaze had a strong tan going, but he'd have been burned to cinders if not for Gladick's regular applications of ether which restored their skin to its previous state. Night fell, and they marched on, aided by a floating ball of light and the nether that kept their muscles fresh. They slept through the deepest part of the night, only allowing themselves a few hours before continuing on. A summer storm blew in around noon. The hiss of the rain on the rocks was a welcome break from the heat, but it was not so welcome that the rocks were now all slick and wet.
happy to fling the three occupiers down their skin-removingly hostile slopes. Steam rose like a pot of boiling water. In a way, the wet landscape reminded him of the fingers of Pocket Cove, except the hell-painted hills didn't even have moss and shrubs to break up the monotony of blank rock. It was odd that his memory of the fingers made him smile, considering the time in question had involved dodging three-foot-long centipedes while he'd been completely naked as part of a bizarre nether training exercise. Yet it seemed as though the addition of time transformed many of the bitter periods of his life into his better memories. Such as when he and Dante had first fled Bressel while being chased by lunatic Aronites. Not so much fun when it had been taking place, but in hindsight, they'd mostly just caught and eaten a lot of fish and nothing particularly bad had come of it. Or when the two of them had tried to convince the maddeningly obstinate Norrin to quit fighting each other, only for those same Norrin to trick them into that ridiculous quest for the quivering bow, manipulating him and Dante into freeing their enslaved friends. The ruse had infuriated Blaze at the time, but he now found it hilarious, and related the story wherever he went, to gales of laughter. He was already beginning to regard the deceit that had brought them to the plagued islands in the same way. Easy times were pleasant in the moment, but left little dent on the memory. It was the times when you struggled that seemed most vibrant in retrospect, the most important toward telling the story of your life. Yet they could only be good if you came out the other side intact and well. Blaze wasn't sure that this time would be the same. Late that day, the seven towers of the silent spires speared towards the pregnant clouds. And none too soon. All three of them were drenched, nauseous from their time in the hills, and eagerly anticipating the moment they could collapse. Someone from the towers must have been watching them. Lay supposed they had damn little else to do, because their trio was met at the border of grass and trees by a host of soldiers bearing long spears. The soldiers parted, Belle Era striding past them, the hem of her robes dampened by the rainy grass. Normally she carried a solid dose of smugness around with her, which was probably why Dante liked her. And Blaze might have as well, except that being married seemed to clear your vision toward those who were no longer potential partners, allowing you to see in great detail the foibles you would otherwise blind yourself to as you pursued them for romantic or sexual ends. But on that afternoon, Era didn't look smug at all. She looked like she was trying not to look scared. She stopped across from Beck. Beck? I never thought I'd see you again. The knight bowed at the waist. As always, Belera, I can't tell if you would consider that a good thing or a bad thing. Let's just leave it as a thing. She turned her fetching face to Gladick, then Blaze. Where's the other warlock? 
the one who's so fond of demanding answers he doesn't deserve. We should get out of the rain, Blaze said. We have a lot to talk about. Are you afraid of the sun getting sun on you? The wind getting wind on you? What makes you afraid of a little wetness? Dante was taken by the Aedan Rani, who turned him into a lesser lich. Era's gaze drifted down and to the left, then snapped back to Blaze. You saw this yourself. You didn't, did you? Otherwise you wouldn't be alive. We weren't there, but Dante has ways of communicating with us across distances. Warlock things, you know how it is. He told us what was happening. We haven't heard from him since. That was four days ago. She reached out to the side, but there was nothing for her to hold on to. Locked into slavery at the hands of the tyrant you were trying to cast down, and made to love every second of it. The Aiden Rane is a sadist. Seeing her aggrievement, Blaze felt mildly bad for hitting her with it so bluntly. Then again she'd asked for it. The good news is, Gladick can tell that Dante's still alive. Again, warlock things. Era was already composing herself. How did Dante let himself get taken? I was meaning to ask the White Lich the same thing next time I saw him, but we haven't bumped into each other yet. For all I know, the Lich snuck into Eris Osis, and knowing that Dante can't stand to lose anything, promptly challenged him to a getting kidnapped contest. You speak nonsense like it tastes good on your tongue. But you were right about one thing. Let's get out of the rain. She brought Blaze and Gladick to the tower they'd been staying in before. For reasons Blaze didn't understand, which probably meant they were arbitrary customs, Beck had to go to a different tower. Servants brought them dry jabards. They changed then met Era on the balcony. She insisted on hearing everything that had happened since their return to the swamps, which Blaze found somewhat hypocritical. He didn't say this out loud, what with depending on her help and all, but he made a mental note to say as much to Gladick later, if only so that bit of cleverness wouldn't be lost to the world. After a few minutes, they finished their story. Era clasped her hands in front of her waist. Is that everything? I think it's too much as it is, Blaze said. She scooped a small glass flower pot from the balcony and hurled it at him. He tucked his chin and covered his ear, the pot bouncing from the top of his shoulder and shattering against the wall. As she bent to pick up another pot, Blaze closed on her threading his right arm through hers and bending it behind her back. Hey, what is wrong with you? She pivoted to the right, trying to extract herself from his lock, but he grabbed the collar of her robe with his right hand and her wrist with his left. Let me go! Era tipped her head forward. As she swung it back at his face, meaning to bash out his teeth, Blaze swept her foot from beneath her, holding tight to her robe as he guided her to the ground, but not too gently. 
he landed on her with just enough force to knock the wind from her, granting her half a minute of hitched breathing to think about the repercussions of her actions. El Era, you appear to be upset, he said. If you'd like to explain why, I'd be happy to listen. But if you dislike my company that much, I'll be just as happy to toss you off the balcony so that you can make friends with the ground instead. I'd let you. I'd be better off. Her voice was tight and scratchy from the struggle to regain her breath. Except then, I wouldn't be able to see your face when I tell you what an idiot you are. Slowly, he removed his weight from her, unfolding his arm from hers. He got to his feet, pushing the flower pot behind him where she couldn't get at it. Era stood. Her hair and robes were disheveled, but her athlete's build and the smolder in her eyes provided her with a dignity that couldn't be taken from her if she were thrust into Jester's clothes and shoved down a muddy hill. You fools, she spat. You should have stayed in Erisosis. To get murdered by the white lich and my best friend? I'm sorry, but in your country, is dying pointlessly considered a virtue? You still had a knight of Odosain at your side, but you turned and ran like cowards. Are you that helpless without Dante? Cowards? Helpless? You're the ones whose fearless leader abandoned you to get ravaged by undead cannibals. We'll figure some other way to come at the lich. No, you won't. You should have fought for Erisosis and taken your shot at the Aiden Rani. You know I can't tell you a word about how to help your friend. You came here for nothing. And now everything is lost. Blaze furrowed his brow. Wait. Wait. Wait until I tell you that you can stop waiting. You're not pulling that figure-it-out-for-yourself crap on us right now, are you? Maybe you don't understand, since your ears only have space for what you want to hear. But that's what my faith demands of me. I can't tell you how to unblight your friend. You do have to figure it out for yourself. Do I, though? Because it would make so much more sense for you to simply tell me. You ask me to break with my faith, to give up everything I believe in. You're not giving it up. You're temporarily setting it aside, or forgetting that it's there, or overruling it for being so damn demanding. Faith is supposed to serve the people who hold it. Right now, yours is only hurting you. Era flexed her jaw. And if I strolled into your temple and demanded for you to forsake your gods for your own good, you'd hop right to it? Denying the gods is great. I do it every day. You only deny them on things that don't matter. But what about when they tell you not to murder the innocent, or forsake your wife for other women? Is it still fun for you to defy them then? Do you know how often I have to betray what I believe in? How many times I've had to kill people who didn't deserve it? How often I've hurt people because not hurting them would be even worse? The priestess looked him up and down. 
If you betray your beliefs that freely, in what sense can you be said to hold them? It's what I have to do to save lives and stave off chaos era. Even though I hate it, even though it kills me. Just this once, be strong enough to throw aside your beliefs. Otherwise, we're all dead. This is a very strange argument. Her voice was soft now, all her anger gone. Our beliefs are the only thing that makes us good. Gladick bowed his head. Then don't simply hand us the answers on a gilded plate. Rather, guide us to them, so that we might deduce them for ourselves. That's cheating. It is not as bad as it could be. To my understanding of your theology, it may even be possible to argue that it is acceptable practice, so long as you are careful in how you guide us. A compromise that lets me flaunt the laws that give us strength while pretending to be a virtuous and humble servant. The two of you, I don't think, are the best of people. Gladick might be a sack of shit, Lay said, but I am a respected and well-liked figure in all kinds of different lands. Gladick grunted. Only because you happen to be on the side of victory. Had you lost in the plagued islands, for instance? You would be seen as meddlesome warmongers, whose unwanted interference caused thousands of unnecessary deaths. To apply some Odosein logic here, maybe I keep winning because I'm so damn right all the time. In any event, we'll work with you on this, however it needs to be done, Era. What do you say? She moved to the balcony resting her palms on the rain-slick railing. The bleakness of the hills rolled away before her. I say that it isn't much of a compromise. I can deny it to the others, but I'll still know I betrayed our order. But if you don't, shut up! If I have to hear you say, but we'll all die if you don't one more time, I'll throw myself off this balcony. Yes, I'll help you and I learn what it feels like to hate myself. Blaze thought that was rather heavy on the guilt, but then again, it wasn't every day that he converted someone into a heretic. He would have liked to start right away, but his body reminded him that, after the sickness of the hills, not to mention the almost total lack of sleep they'd gotten while crossing them, starting right away would ensure that he'd never be able to finish, as he would shortly drop dead. Instead, they ate, then were ushered to the same room they'd occupied before. Blaze swung his bed down from the wall, punched the mattress around, then climbed onto it. Funny, he said. We were barely gone for a week. It even smells the same. But it feels so different. Gladick shuffled to the candle made of plant wax and blew it out. That is because it is not the place itself that makes it feel as it does, but rather the people who are there with you in it. And many of our people are now gone. Doesn't it ever get tiring? What is that? 
looking at everything through shit-colored lenses. Gladick didn't answer right away. Sometimes it is exhausting. But at least, and for the first time in my life, I think I might be seeing the truth. Blaze rolled over and slept. He dreamed of a figure in a black cloak, breaking through the hell-painted hills, a storm of darkness in each hand, and a smile on his face. The figure was just as he'd always been, except the face was wrong, so pale and more gaunt even than Gladick, without the slightest trace of mercy. Blaze tried to draw his swords, but they felt glued into their sheaths. Clouds of shadows blocked out the sun, streaming across the sky as if they were erasing it. He might have tried to run, but he knew there was no point. After all of the tedious morning wake-up business, the Tenarians, being savages, declined to serve any kind of liquor with breakfast, Era brought Blaze and Gladick to the edge of the field, downwind from the seven spires. She was alone, and looked like she hadn't slept more than half the night. What are you staring at? she said croakily. Let's get on with this before I change my mind. Right, Blaze said. I guess we should start with the biggie. Is there a way to undo getting turned into a lich? How would I know? You said you knew how to cure being blighted. Spinning gods, do you even listen to yourself? Or do you just let the words fall from you, like animals fertilizing the fields with their own waste? Let me guess. The blighted, by virtue of being blighted, are not the same thing as being a lich. Very good. If you've got that down, maybe you're ready to explain to me why a rake isn't the same thing as a swamp dragon. But liches and blighted aren't that different. From what I've seen, they're actually pretty similar. Maybe reversing the two conditions is like being a physician, where if you can cure the red fever, then you can cure green fever as well. I don't know about your disgusting northern poxes, but I get the point. You're probably correct. The way you remove the lichness from somebody is probably similar to, or the same as, the way you remove the blight. Blaze clapped once. Progress! So, how do you remove the blight? Era glanced away, sighing through her teeth. You're going to have to do so much better than that. What you should be asking yourself is, what it means to be blighted? To be an unpleasantly angry eater of people. You can take my heresy more seriously, or you can watch your friend serve your worst enemy as everyone around you dies. Gladick leaned forward. To be blighted is to be converted into something not fully human. Wrong, Era said. You've confronted the lich before. Have you seen him make any blighted? Yes. What did you see? He drew something from them. 
Gladick jerked back his head. To be blighted is not to be converted into something inhuman. Rather, it is to have something human taken away from you. What might that be? It resembled ether. More than that, it was ether. I am sure of it. And when it left them, Lay said, they weren't really alive anymore. They weren't afraid of anything. Didn't even have to breathe. I might be talking crazy here, but what if it's the ethereal version of a trace? Gladick lifted an eyebrow. What if indeed, Era? She lifted a dismissive hand. What if you'd quit your foreign babble and speak real words? Though we all have nether flowing in and out of us, each of us also possesses a portion of nether that is fully unique to every individual. It is called a trace, and it might be thought of as an ethereal embodiment, or perhaps expression, of the soul. Since learning of it, I have suspected, or if I am to be honest, I wanted to believe, that there was an analogous form of ether. Only I could never find it. But the Aiden Rane has done so, hasn't he? You've seen the Blighted. You've seen the White Lich. You've seen the White Lich create the Blighted. Does your theory fit with everything you've seen? They'd been seated, but Gladick was so excited he couldn't help himself from pushing himself to his feet and pacing about the grass. The White Lich steals the ethereal traces from the people. This, in turn, converts them into the Blighted, while at the same time he absorbs this substance, this light of life, into himself, enhancing his own strength. Am I correct? That all sounds very seamless. Indeed. It fits together like the joinery of a master carpenter. Yet I still do not know. Era looked down at the grass. What do you know of me? Am I the type to listen to stupidity without calling it such? Without laughing at you? Without mocking you for having brains no better than the contents of a gecko's stomach? Gladick chuckled lowly. Surely you are not of that type, Bell Era. Am I laughing and mocking you right now? No, Bell Era. You are not. Well, that's cleverly done, Lay said. How do you remove the blight then? By giving the poor fellow's ether trace back to him? Era eyed him levelly. How would you do that when it's become a part of the Aedan Rane? By carving it out of him? Could you even do something like that? It does not seem likely, Gladick said. When traces are mingled together to form an Andrak, they cannot be unmixed afterward. I would assume the same would be true when the White Lich mixes the ethereal traces within himself. Era plucked up a sprig of grass, letting the wind scatter it across the boundary into the wasteland.
She pointed to the golden sparks circulating near Gladick's left shoulder. If those are any indication, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Gladick paced some more. To be able to think clearly about this phenomenon, we must first give it a name. Ether trace is too clumsy. It renders it secondary to the nether, an incorrect stance to suppose. Might we simply call it the light of life? Perhaps, but the phrase hits my ear as too grandiose. Blaze rolled his eyes. You'd be the expert on excess grandiosity. As a source of our inner light, we might call it the spark, or perhaps the ember. But I believe these words are also too noble, for each one only serves the span of a single life. Spending the rest of eternity does no more than a marker of the human it once imbued. In that case, much as we call the trace a trace, I propose we name this substance a remnant. For all I care, you can call it a gibbery woo light. Can we get on with it already? Very well. So if the original remnant cannot be returned to the victim, that leaves two possibilities. First, that a new remnant can be created for them from scratch. Or second, that a part of an existing remnant might be transferred to them. He made a fist of his hand and brought it close to his mouth. I can think of no way to deduce which possibility must be false and which must be true. Blaze scratched his head. Any idea which one would be true if you were talking about traces? I do not. But I see a path toward discovering the answer. I could attempt to remove someone's trace, then attempt to restore it through both methods and see which succeeded. You want to take out someone's trace? The way the lich is taking out people's remnants? Wouldn't doing that risk turning the victim into some weird ether blighted? I would think so. That is why I will perform this experiment on an unskilled servant, or perhaps someone who is too old to be of use and no longer has purpose. Error? Who here might I use in this way? She blinked at him. Are you serious? Gladick gazed back. If that is what it takes, yes. I've reached the edge of where pure reason can bring me. I stand on a ravine. The only way across is to build a bridge of experimentation and see what lies on the other side. Era rose to her feet, running her hands over the sides of her head, which were clipped short in Tenarian style. Sometimes I'd swear I can see the future, and it's a curse. My lady, you want me to hand you the answers. Otherwise you'll be forced to do something awful in order to get them. Which, as intended, tempts me to bend even more than I already have, to the point of breaking my vows altogether. This is exactly what I was afraid would happen. You compromise yourself once, telling yourself it's for a good cause, 
But if it turns out that isn't enough, what then? If it made sense to betray your beliefs the first time, and you do so but the problem's still there, it only makes sense to compromise yourself again, doesn't it? It would be illogical to do otherwise, because if it was right once, it must be right again. Either that, or it was never right. She had been lecturing in the direction of the hell-painted hills. She turned now to Blaze, and though it seemed impossible, one of her eyes burned with wrath, while the other brimmed with sorrow. If it made sense to betray yourself the first time, and the second, why not the third time, the tenth, every time? Where does it stop? How many steps can you take away from your center before you become lost for good? In any other place, the question would have been rhetorical. In the maddening land of Tanaratain, however, they expected answers to their impossible questions. And if you couldn't provide those answers, which they couldn't either, otherwise they wouldn't have had to ask you in the first place, then you were the idiot. Someone like Gladick would tell you that there is no end, Blaze said, making it up as he went along, because that's what everyone else seemed to be doing all the time. He'd say that if the outcome leads to more good than the bad it takes to get it done, then the evil man is he who lacks the moral courage to do what needs doing. Era smirked. Is that true, Gladig? The old man shrugged. It is close enough that I feel no need to argue. By contrast, Blaze went on. Someone like Dante would go on about how everybody thinks they've got one set of morals, but they've actually got two. One is what you'd call conventional morality. I don't think he's ever stuck a label on the second kind, but I'd call it emergency morality. Now, your conventional morality is for conventional times. When things are normal, you don't just go about stealing things and killing people. Why, that would just be wrong. But when an emergency strikes, things change. If you're starving, there's nothing wrong with stealing bread. If you're in the middle of a national uprising, there's nothing wrong with executing the rebels, or, if you're a rebel, the loyalists. But even then, you've still got standards of right and wrong. If you're starving, stealing bread is one thing but it's quite another to steal an honest man's purse because you want to buy some pretty clothes. In a rebellion, you wouldn't murder a rebel's children or slaughter his whole town. You still have values, but they're more flexible, more suited to the circumstance. Now, most people don't know their emergency values too well because they don't spend much time in emergencies. Lucky for them. But those values are still there, inside you. And as long as you don't violate your conventional values when you're in conventional times, or your emergency values when you're in emergency times, there's really no violation at all. An interesting perspective, if awfully wordy. Era watched him closely, 
And you, yellow hair, what do you say? I say you don't have to ask when you've gone too far. Your heart will let you know. She tucked down the corners of her mouth. There's no reason in an argument like that. Blaze burst into laughter. If you think we're beings of pure reason, you need to get out of the spires and go watch a married couple discuss money. We have brains, but we've got souls too. It's harder for us to hear them, but they'll speak to you, if you know how to listen. Era lifted her eyes to the sky and shook her head. You can't remove the blight by getting a person's inner light, the remnant, as you want to name it, back from the Aiden Rani. You can't build a new one for them from nothing either. Not so much as I know, at least, for I'm glad to say I'm not a devil-siring warlock. But what you can do is give a blighted person a piece of of your own remnant. After so much time hunting, snuffling, and hustling for every scrap of conjecture they could find in the attempt to cobble together the most basic knowledge of the Odosain, hearing Era flat out state the facts felt as alarming as it would to watch Dante burn a pile of copies of the Cycle of Aron. Gladick sat up even straighter than normal. How is this transfer accomplished? I can't believe I'm telling you this. But you know what? If the other bells find out and want to pitch me from the top of a tower, I laugh all the way down. Because while they were following their rules, I was saving our country. Era plopped down in the grass looking infinitely more at peace with her decision than a moment earlier. The methods achieved by using the Odosein to open a connection between yourself and the blighted that you want to restore. There's a little more to it than that, but not much. And don't ask me why, if it's that simple, we don't just do this to all the blighted. When you give part of your light to one of the blighted, it doesn't come back. And it takes a lot. Most people only have enough light in them to reverse a single blighted. A handful can do too, and some don't have enough to even do it once. They try and, boom, they drop dead and the other guy's still blighted. In most every situation, the life of a knight of Odosain is more valuable than the person they'd tried to save. Gladick creased his brow. Why should an Odosain be able to perform such an act while a sorcerer would not? I don't know. Maybe you can, if you'd bother to figure it out for yourself instead of asking for a mental handout. But part of the reason you're asking that question is because you misunderstand the Golden Stream. All of you do, including the dolt you're trying to rescue. When we stop you from using the light or the shadows, how exactly do you think we're doing that? If you ask me for specifics, I have none to offer. But, as a general concept, you lock or freeze the powers in place 
rendering us unable to make use of them. Wrong. We cut each of you off from the shadows, as individuals. I could stop you, Gladick, from accessing them right now, by leaving Blaze free to do whatever he wanted with the nether. Don't bother questioning me on this. I'll show you. She concentrated, golden flecks of stream condensing around her, then motioned to Gladig. Go ahead, try me. Gladig splayed out his hand, then shook his head. It is as though the nether is trapped beneath a block of stone. She pointed to Blaze. Now you. Blaze grabbed out at the nether and managed to convince a small portion of it to pay attention to him. He shaped it into a ball of blackness in his palm. We've been wrong about this the whole time. How is this possible? Gladick said. And if it is so, why do you not employ both sorcerers and Odosain? With the power to negate enemy magic while wielding your own, you could seize control of the entire continent. So we could live in your worthless dry lands filled with your useless dumb people. We have no interest in playing in the trash that lies outside Tanaratain. And you know damn well why we would never work alongside sorcerers. Unlike the foul-minded slugs of the righteous monsoon, we know that sorcery is corruption. The Aedan Rane is proof enough of that. So is the history of Tanaratain, and of the world. You won't work alongside sorcerers, Blaze said. In that case, you might want to sit down, as I have some shocking news for you. Era rolled her eyes. It's forbidden to train Tanarians as warlocks, but you outsiders are depraved and can't be expected to hold to our laws. On top of that, you'll be gone soon, and we'll have nothing to worry about. Now, would you like to continue critiquing your perceived flaws in our culture, or would you like to learn how to deliver your friend from the Aedan Rane? That one, please. Here's the truth you will try to deny, because it means you've been wrong about everything and couldn't even think of an alternative. All shadows are connected to all other shadows. All light is connected to all other light. It doesn't seem that way to you because you can't see the connections, but through the golden stream they become visible. That's how we can cut you off from them. That's how a trained knight can find the connection between his own remnant and the few sparks of the one that remains in the blighted and equalize the two, restoring the Blighted's humanity. I do not accept this explanation at face value, Gladick said, as it contradicts everything I have seen for myself. Yes, and under normal conditions you wouldn't be questioning my explanation, since you'd be learning all of these things through your own efforts or coming up with your own original system that proves us wrong. But we're in an emergency, aren't we? So shut up and take me at my word. Yes, Bel-Era. 
watching Gladick roll over like a dog, Blaze bit his cheek to quit from smiling. Era gave them both a moment, ensuring they were compliant. If you give it two seconds of thought, you'd realize that, in the same way our practice of the Dana Kide is built on the function of the golden stream, the connectedness of all light to itself and all shadow to itself is the basis for our belief in the body. For we're all connected too, all part of the same whole. No matter how great or crummy your role in the body feels, whether you're part of the brain, the right hand, or the throbbing asshole, without you, the rest of us can't function, and we all fall apart. Bitterness stained her face. That's part of what the monsoon rebelled against. Not only did they think they held the one right answer, and that our quest for truth was nothing but an attack on that, but they resented that the body split people up by their ability to do the task. So sure in their righteousness, they conjured a monster. One that will destroy us and enslave them. Not to interrupt your hatred of your fellow countrymen, Blaze said, but we've already got a way to find Dante. It sounds like all we've got to do to free him from the White Lich is bring Beck to him and transfer him a new remnant. Eras smiled in a way that was either commiserating or condescending, depending on how irritable you were feeling. If it were that easy, don't you think Beck would have told you so already and saved you the trip here? No, 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 I refuse to acknowledge that this is heading the way that it's heading. Don't worry, my barbarian friend. There's only one more thing you have to do. Travel to Darabod, sneak into the city, and break into the bastion of last acts. Fourteen. He had thought the servants of the One would see the world in the same way that the world saw them. Bleached out, sickly and desperate, aching with a hunger that could never be filled. For surely such wretched creatures could see nothing good around them, and would want only to tear it down and devour it, to stomp it into rubble and burn it into smoke. As in so many things, he had been wrong. The swamp, once a dreary green-black mire, choking with flies, spiders, snakes, wasps, and ziki oko, now looked like a defiant expression of life. Flowers of every color added depth to the greens of the trees and the murk of the water. Every scrap of land was colonized with trees, grass, brambles, and shrubs. Even the trees weren't safe, festooned with mosses and vines, to say nothing of the birds and rodents tearing around their boughs. All of it thrived. It was a wonder, 
He hadn't just been given new eyes. He'd been granted a new nose and ears, too. The sounds of birdsong and splashing fish were as beautiful as the bright pop of the flowers. The air flowed with the smell of ginger flowers and citrus. Even the background scent of decay was no longer offensive. Decay meant nothing more than that life had lived, finished its cycle, and was now replenishing itself, just as it was meant to do. Yet better than any of the things that had been given to him was the thing that had been taken away. Fear. He traveled north in a plain canoe, alone in the wilds of the swamps, but he didn't feel a single drop of fear. He had no fear of getting lost, no fear of getting hurt or sick, no fear of getting mauled by the animals, which either ignored him or actively avoided him, even the midges and mosquitoes. It was a lack that went beyond concern for his personal safety. He felt no social fear either, no fear of being wrong, of insulting or hurting someone he cared about, of being judged or failing. It was all gone and it felt indescribable, like the best dream he'd ever had, like falling asleep in a lover's arms. It felt, paradoxically enough, like total freedom. With all fear fallen away, he could look on the world in wonder, seeing its full potential for the first time in his life. And in it, he saw the vision of the One, the White Lich, the Aiden Rane. He now understood how the world could be a single, unified entity, where everyone was free from fear, and worked as one to build the eternal empire of paradise. Dante paddled alone beneath the trees, traveling with purpose but without haste, noting the birds on the wing, the lizards leaping between leaves, the flash of scales beneath the water. He didn't seem to need to sleep any more, and when night found the day, he traveled by the distant light of the half-moon, frogs peeping and crickets whirring, like the guided hum of the earth meditating on itself. He didn't know the name of the village, but the lich had given him a vision of its location. And the lich did not make mistakes. The settlement, when Dante came to it, was empty. Not surprising. Many of the people in the interior had been recruited or subjugated to the monsoon. Many others had fled, either to Bressel to join the Drakebane, or out into the wilds where they might be hidden. Some had even taken their canoes to the coast, seeking other lands altogether. Raft boats sat vacant. The central dock was silent. Yet in one of the stands of bananas grown in the city's outer ring, several trees had been hacked down no more than a day or two earlier, the cut trunk still green-white and damp, 
rather than brown and dead. Casting the ether on the water showed no trace of the villagers, but the dragonflies found them easily enough. A few hundred people, huddled within a dark grove, sleeping in their lashed-together canoes. When they woke, they spent their time fishing, picking berries, and staring fearfully out into the swamps. Dante told the lich that he had found them, and the lich told him to wait for the blighted. He bided his time. He'd feared eternity might be boring, but with every sensation a wonder, every second was filled. When he liked, he contemplated everything that was to come, and the anticipation glowed as purely as ether. Little sorcerer. The copper kettle voice in his mind was as clear as if he kneeled before the Aedan Rane in person. We approach Erisosis. I know you have no news, or else you'd have shared it with me. Correct, master. That is good. There is no sign of your friends here. They have abandoned the city to me. Do you think they fled due to cowardice? I doubt that, master. They'll seek another solution. That's what we always did. Either they're working on a new way to strike at you, or they're trying to come for me. They're not as cunning as I gave them credit. They should have seen that when they handed me the city, they handed themselves their own defeat. We knew that would be the consequence of you taking Eris Osis. This turn of events must have made them irrational. It is no matter. If they come for me, I'll kill them. If they come for you, then you will do the same. Dante gazed through the trees. Master, speak. They are powerful people. If I'm of use to you, they can be too. There is no need, little sorcerer. But I think they can serve you better than you know. Destroying useful resources is a mistake. It's better to... No! The voice pounded through his head like an iron maul striking a cracked bell. You may speak like a knight who kneels to his lord, but you will not argue as though we are equals. And then the fear rushed back over Dante, the same heart-deep fear he'd felt when yelled at as a child. He felt cold in a way that made it seem as though he'd never feel warmth again. Seated in his canoe, he bowed until his forehead was level with his knees. 
I'm sorry, master. I only mean to help. You might possess too much will. We will correct that in time. For now, be silent. My army has come to Aerisosis. I will allow you to share in my triumph. Before Dante could ask how, the walls of Aerisosis filled his sight. Defenders lined the walls, spears flashing in the sunlight. The blighted sat across the water from them, filling their boats by the thousands, and the Aedan Rane stood among them. The vision was so intense that if Dante hadn't already stopped needing to breathe, he would have forgotten to. While somehow still being able to see the walls, where the Lich called out his terms for the city's surrender, a second scene opened to his sight. The bay on the southwest edge of Erisosis. Among the gentle blue waves, a fleet of double-hulled canoes, rafts, and small sailing vessels shoved off, making way for the exit between the two arms of rock that protected the port from storms. A scowl crept over Dante's face. Thousands of potential soldiers were slipping through their fingers. In doing so, the citizens cheated themselves of the chance to serve as a brick in the great tower being constructed by the Aedan Rane. Yet surely the Lich was capable of fielding a navy of his own. How could this possibility have been overlooked? As the first of the vessels neared the gap, a team of blighted emerged from the water on the tip of the western jetty. They dragged a heavy chain behind them. Nether flocked like birds. A lesser lich stood among them, pulling the massive chain taut and revealing that it had already been secured to the eastern arm enfolding the bay. The first of the fleeing canoes dashed into it with hollow clunks. Sailing vessels plowed into them from behind with a devastating crunch of wood. Yet the chain held fast. As the sailors yelled at each other, struggling to untangle their vessels, blighted paddled in from both sides, throwing themselves over the gunwales and dragging the Arisians off to be bound in ropes. Dante laughed out loud. He might have been relieved of the burden of fear, except when the one wanted him to feel it. Yet he still carried the poison of doubt. He wouldn't lose faith again. His sight shifted. At the other end of the city, Blight had boiled out of the water at the base of the walls, scrambling upwards. Defenders leaned over to fire on them with arrows. Across the open water, darts of light streaked from the white lich's hands. Each one found its mark, knocking archers across the battlements or into the water below. In less than two minutes, the blighted took the walls and opened the gates. Guided by the Aedan Rane, their advance through the city was gradual yet relentless. 
Erisosis fell with only the barest flicker of sorcery from its foes. It took hours to root out the towers and rafts. At the end, people lay piled on the docks like netted fish, squirming in their restraints. The Aiden Rane debarked, considering the thousands of people arrayed before him. Right now, you fear me. I would do the same. But in an hour, you will love me. He lifted his heavy hands. A glowing fog lifted from the still living bodies, condensing over the dock, ether crackling within it like a captive lightning storm. Streams of fog assembled in jarringly regular patterns and seemed not to flow but to shine toward the lich. He took nine-tenths of them. There were so many bodies that it was an hour before the process was done. The tenth of them that remained were too exhausted by terror to do more than lie on the docks like they were already dead. The Aiden Rane nodded to the waiting blighted. As they hurled themselves on the two thousand living captives, staining the bay red with blood, the lich seated himself on the seawall and gazed on his new land. Later, his voice rang in Dante's mind, but Dante wasn't startled by it. Little sorcerer, the city is mine. I witnessed. I have considered your request. I will take Gladic under my power. He is versed in both light and dark, and that is rare. Thank you, master. What about Blaze? I have no need of him. But he has abilities of his own, just as rare as Gladick's. They do nothing to impress me. That's because they're subtle. But when called for, they're extremely effective. I have decided, little sorcerer. There was the barest edge of menace in the white lich's voice, but it was enough. A man only needs so many tools to do his job. Any more becomes clutter. If the chance presents, I will take Gladick. I have no need for your blaze. I understand. What will be done with him? If he comes for you, you will kill him. If you wish, you may make it fast. Yes, master. Good. Now go and do what is tasked of you. Dante was about to object that the Blighted hadn't arrived to support him yet, but before he could express a single word, black lumps rose from the water like the backs of small turtles, 
Their hairy scalps were followed by pale faces and hungry, haunted eyes. He gathered up the blighted, who willingly followed his orders but remained fully under the control of the Aedan Rane, and sent them under the waters surrounding the deep grove where the refugees from the village made their camp. Once they were in position, he paddled after them. The villagers recognized what he was as soon as they saw him, a reaction that would, before his transition, have made him feel ashamed to be so monstrous. Now their loathing only served to reinforce the notion that he had shed the weakness of humanity and become something more. The humans piled into their boats, breaking in every direction. The blighted caught most of them. Dante harvested branches and brambles to block the path of the few who were on the verge of getting away. A small portion turned back to fight. Dante wielded the nether to pound them into chum for the Ziki Oko. The remainder he froze in place, using the shadows to lock their muscles down tight. The blighted bound nine-tenths of them in ropes, then took the last tenth for themselves. The villagers screamed, but that was to be expected. Once this was done, and the blighted were sated, or at least as sated as the blighted could get, blood drying on their cheeks and chests, they picked up the lich's share and loaded the prisoners into their undecorated canoes. The blighted shoved off, bearing their cargo toward the white lich. For a fleeting moment, Dante felt pity for the terror the humans must have been feeling. Yet then, he remembered the glory that awaited them. Fifteen. Seated in the grass across from Era, Blaze's mouth fell open. You said we only had one thing left to do. In what world does traveling to the capital, sneaking into the city, and then busting into the palace count as one thing? Era rolled her eyes. Don't argue semantics with me. It's all part of the same task. And after we infiltrate the city, which is occupied by the enemy, and find a way into the bastion, which is heavily occupied by the enemy, we do what exactly? Steal something? Assuming it's still there. Assuming it's still there? Blaze hopped to his feet, waving his arms around like he was juggling objects that were wide and very invisible. Call me entitled, but you could have told us about the massive complication before I got my hopes up. You got your own hopes up. Then why didn't you stop me? Do you know why you outlanders are so insufferable? Because you can't even take responsibility for your own feelings. In that case, I suppose it isn't my fault that I currently feel like you're being a giant bitch. He expected to be slapped cursed at, 
booted in the testicles, or all of the above, while also being put into a chokehold, which she might even be able to pull off, given her build. But then she went and laughed in surprise. Maybe I'm wrong about you, Harry. Mind you, I doubt that I'm wrong. But I'm now at least open to the idea that you could live in our country without disgracing yourself and your ancestors. If I ever reach the day when my crimes get me banned from all other nations, I might take you up on that. You two are as farcical as the task before us, Gladick said. What must we retrieve from Aerososis? Your sense of humor, Aeris said. Once you've got that in hand, you should also look for the Abaquen. The Abaquen? I was told that was a myth. Which is a damn good way to get you to think it's just a silly story that you'd be a giant idiot to believe, isn't it? But it's said that the Abaquen can be used to steal a man's very soul. Gladick's mouth formed an O. It can. Blaze folded his arms. If you're expecting me to fetch this thing for you, it might be useful for you to give me any idea what it is. The Aberquen is an ancient and priceless carving. It is a small ivory statue of a lizard wrapped around a skeletal forearm. Era made a huffing noise. Not just a lizard, the laughing gecko. He said to creep through your windows at night while you're sleeping and steal your baby's soul. I apologize, Bell Era. My knowledge of the legends of Tenerian reptiles is poor at best. Why exactly do we need this? Blaze said. Because you can never have enough statues of baby-killing geckos? Era motioned to Gladick. Remnants are new to you. But you have experience with the ethereal ones, don't you? Can you steal one from another person? Gladick shook his head. I have access to my own, but I cannot take one from a living person, nor even manipulate it. Same thing's true about the remnants. Excepting the Aid and Rane, obviously. A properly trained knight of Odosain knows how to restore a stolen remnant, but that doesn't mean they can. That requires the use of the Abaquen. Gladick rubbed the white stubble on his chin. How might a statue allow one to manipulate another person's inner ether? How would I know how you warlocks defile people's souls? All I know is that we used to have it, and that's what it did for us. During the rebellion, the monsoon stole it and took it to the bastion. One of our knights got word to us as he was leaving for Bressel. From what he saw, they weren't even using it. They were just keeping it there because they could tell it was important. If it has such a power, why not deploy it against their enemies? Even the threat of its use could cause the monsoon's remaining enemies to do whatever the monsoon demanded of them. The rebels are too stupid to know what it does. We didn't exactly run around telling everyone about its awesome power. It's from a much older time, too. 
Some of us think the Aedan Rane made it himself, back when he was learning how to absorb remnants into himself. Others think he found it, and used it to teach himself the process. Perhaps that is one reason the monsoon has recruited sorcerers to its side. They might have recognized the importance of the Abaquen, if not its function, and endeavored to study it. Lays stuck his tongue out from the corner of his mouth. How long ago was it taken to the bastion? Weeks? Months? How can you be sure it's still there? Era shrugged. I'm not. That's not very comforting. But it's true. Which means I don't give a shit if it makes you uncomfortable. If anything, you should be getting snippy with yourself. You knew the almighty lizard was at the bastion all this time, but you couldn't be arsed to do anything to get it back. Do you see an army at our beck and call? I know this is the sort of unimportant triviality that's easy to forget, but do you remember when I told you we couldn't leave the silent spires or we'd die? She'd been blustering, but now she retracted on herself. We didn't see the point of risking an assault. Not with the Emperor gone and the Aedan Rane on the rampage. Even though they've agreed to let me train you, most of the other bells don't believe you'll be able to stop the lich. Do you? She gestured out at the wasteland. Who cares what I think? Go try to get the Abaquen. If you pull that off, try to restore Dante. If you do that, go and see if you can stop the lich. Why should my opinion of what you might be able to do impact your ability to actually do it? Well, when you put it like that, it all sounds so simple. Era gave him a long and skeptical look, then laughed, breaking into a smile. I can't believe I just told you all of this like it was nothing. It makes me feel so dirty. In that case, you're welcome. Gladick, like Dante, didn't seem to be able to travel further than the nearest privy without carrying writing supplies with him. He had Era sketch the Abaquen for them, which indeed looked like a lizard with a blunt head and round toes wrapped around a skeletal forearm. After their night of rest in the spires, Blaze and Gladick were perfectly healthy enough to journey back across the hell-painted hills. Era ordered them a team of Lan Harbor, which assembled at the eastern fringe of the trees. Blaze swung into the saddle. He was more than used to the smell of large fairy animals, but after so long in a place where there were no mammals larger than a cat, and these tended to be tree-hopping carnivores that would gladly eat your face while you were still wearing it, meaning it was best to keep a certain distance, the scent of the oversized goats was almost dizzying. Bellera was there to see them off, sweating lightly in the heat of the day. Find him, will you? Bring him back. Blaze took up the reins. I thought you didn't believe in us. He's our only chance, isn't he? Having him with us gives us our best chance. But the rest of us know a few tricks of our own. 
Even if we can't turn Dante, we'll make every lich very annoyed at us before we're dead. And if luck likes us on the day we take our swords against him, we may even kill him. She didn't look convinced, but he wouldn't say that she looked doubtful either. They rode out into the maniacal hills. Blaze carried a certain bravado along with him. He'd found that the mere act of saying words out loud could make you believe them. They made your feet lighter beneath you, too. Repeated often enough, and they had the power to make that belief in yourself permanent. It was almost like a form of magic, and though it was more subtle than the nether, it was just as real. That day, however, the enchantment faded before they'd made their first mile. Beck rode with them, as laconic as ever. Bit risky, bringing him with them to Darabode, but after they had the Abaquen, they'd need his abilities to bring to bear against Dante. Assuming, of course, that they were able to find the Abaquen, which Blaze wasn't fully confident about. Even if it had been moved, the number of non-Bastion places it might be hiding in included the entire rest of the swamps. He watched Gladig from the corner of his eye. Then again, even if it was gone, sorcerers had a way of finding things that wanted to stay hidden. They arrived at the swamp just under a day after leaving the spires. Naren emerged from the trees to greet them. He looked in fine shape, and after their ride, he was cleaner than they were, too. Blaze hopped down from the goat. Bolo. Naren gave him a small shake of his head. There's been no change. I'm not liking that. I doubt that she is either. That made things downright uncomfortable, so Blaze launched into an explanation of what they'd learned in the spires regarding their upcoming voyage to Darabode. As before, her condition will only slow you down, Naren said, but I won't abandon her. I'll stay with her at the spires if they will allow it. Their guides exchanged a look, then nodded. You're sure of that? Blaze turned back to the hills. I don't know how long we'll be gone. Stay there too long, and you might get trapped there. If you fail, it will likely be safest in the spires, until the end comes at last for them, too. They made parting arrangements, as Naren helped Volo into a saddle. Blaze, Gladick, and Beck loaded themselves into the canoe. Blaze and Naren waved to each other, then went their separate ways. Blaze dabbed the paddle in the water. Which way is Darabode again? Gladick and Beck pointed in two different directions. Blaze split the difference, paddling at a pace that was more brisk than sustainable. When he got tired, they flipped the canoe about so Beck was in front, allowing him to take over duties. Blaze mopped his brow against the shoulder of his jabard. Gladick, how well did you get to know the layout of the bastion while you were there? Or were you too busy torturing Naren to pay attention to that? 
Gladick snorted. I know it reasonably well. The most difficult portion will be crossing the moat, unseen. But if you and Dante were able to do so, I don't see why we would be unable. Leaving the minor matter of finding a hand-sized figurine in the middle of a palace-sized palace. It will not be as challenging as you fear, for they will be afraid of having the Abaquen stolen back from them, and when people are afraid, that is when they become most predictable. How so? That's when they're most likely to punch you in the face, or call your mother names that would make your lanky old mother blush, or offer to do vile things to or for you. Yet you know they will react in these ways, and will not be surprised when they live down to your expectation. In this case, their fear will cause them to keep the Abaquen in those places they consider most secure. The peak of the Blue Tower, or more likely, in the lower vault. It will be little issue for us to penetrate these places without being seen, and even if we are, to dispense with those who have seen us. Beck was a fellow fighting man in fair shape, but he was more than a decade older, and his arms wore out sooner than Blaze's had. Blaze replaced him as head paddler, and soon found himself wishing he hadn't. The part of the swamp nearest the hell-painted hills was different from other parts in a way Blaze couldn't fully put his finger on, but which certainly involved a thickening of the shrubbery and a tightening of the waterways. Unlike Volo, who seemed to have a sixth sense for which routes would remain open, Blaze more than once found himself faced with an impassable wall of growth. The first time, the blockage was thin enough for Gladick to use the nether to gouge a hole through to the other side. But the next time they hit an obstruction, Blaze had to swing about, backtrack, and find a new path. The third time he came up against a crush of branches. He swore and smacked at the water with his paddle. Do you continue to lead us down dead ends on purpose? Gladick muttered. I'm just looking for the best one. It's the perfect spot to dump your body in. Have you not noticed that the dead ends are commonly presaged by the presence of Julia? Watcher? Gladick pointed to a vine wreathed through the brambles and dotted with small purple flowers. They entwine themselves in the low, thick shrubs that most commonly crowd themselves between the trees. Avoid entering the paths where they grow, and you will avoid these stoppages. Why do you keep ignoring the signs? Blaze paddled them back toward the entrance. How do you expect me to have known about them in the first place? Half the time we've been here, I've been busy paddling. The other half, I've been busy paddling for my life. Then consider yourself educated. Next time I'm messing up, why don't you consider educating me before I've made the same mistake twenty times in a row? Because I don't know what I relish more. Telling you that you are wrong, or watching you be wrong. Between Blaze and Beck, switching off at the paddle, Gladick wiping away their weariness with the nether, and the longer daylight hours, 
They had a plan to reach Darabod in as little as four days. However, no one had yet come up with a form of sorcery to eliminate the need for sleep, and, honestly, Blaze probably would have strangled them if they did. And so, as night neared, they turned the boat into an island, hid it within the grass, and made camp behind a screen of trees. They still had some vegetables and pies from the spires, but in dire need of fresh meat, Blaze baited a hook with bits of potato and dropped a line in the water. In almost no time at all, he'd caught six fish, their silver scales speckled with iridescent pink spots. He cleaned them and tossed the guts into the water, which were immediately tended to by a boiling cloud of Ziki Oko, who were in turn dispersed by an influx of the orange catfish that preyed on them. Finished, Blaze brought his catch back to the center of the island. Gladick frowned. What do you intend to cook them with? I was considering using an invention I've heard stories about in our travels. I think it's called fire. We are presently in enemy territory in the midst of an effort to rob them of what could be the most valuable object in their entire possession. We can't light a fire. Yes, we can, because I want one. So if you don't want anybody to see it, you'd better drop a shudder sphere on it. Gladick lowered his brows. Before the priest could argue, Blaze went off to gather kindling, which lay in great abundance about the island. He returned to find that Beck had dug a small fire pit in his absence. Blaze arranged his materials, then snapped his fingers and lit it with a spark of nether. Gladick watched this unfold in disapproving silence. Muttering to himself, he dropped a wad of shadows over the fire. There was still plenty of smoke, but most of it was broken up by the trees. Besides, they were already in the very last of the twilight, and the smoke wouldn't be visible for long. Cooking the fish over a fire he couldn't see was an interesting experience. But Blaze could have done so by the smell of the crisping skin alone. Beck and Gladick stayed close, gazing at the nether-shrouded fire with expressions that were entirely dog-like. Once the meat was white and the skin was brown, Blaze served it up on a bed of oversized, teardrop-shaped leaves that grew on the banks. Using their bare hands, they tore into the meat with a ferocity that ought to have qualified them as honorary blighted. Afterward, Gladick considered the remains of his meal, which consisted of little more than a skeleton and a few scraps of undercooked skin. I have given it much thought, and have decided this was, in fact, worth the risk. Blaze picked at his teeth with a needle-thin bone. As I always say, the best offense against black times is stuffing yourself silly. This was met by grunts of approval. Blaze enjoyed the smell of the wood smoke for another minute, then kicked dirt over the blacked-out fire. Gladick dispelled the shadow sphere. Beck laughed softly. 
After a lifetime of training to destroy it, it's very strange to sit in the presence of sorcery. Even stranger to appreciate it. Personally, I'd rather stick to swords, Blay said. But with all these cheaters running around, you have to fight them at their own game. And not only do you know magic, but you're now learning to use the Odosain. Not terribly well, as evidenced by your presence. Not to suggest it isn't anything but pleasant and enlightening. You foreigners waste so many words on politeness. It's a wonder you have any left to get anything done. Yet in my land I'm considered rude. There's no justice anywhere, Sir Knight. Beck smiled, then grew serious, or at least as serious as a man can be when his face is covered in fish grease. Stranger than any of this is the idea that two Hari are learning the Odosain. Even hearing it from the bells themselves, I can't believe it. Would you show me what you can do? Blaze and Gladig exchanged first a look, then mutual shrugs. They seated themselves. Blaze closed his eyes and lobbed himself into the practice that, with his typical callous disregard for all that was fun in life, Dante had dubbed Forest. After a couple of minutes of silence, Beck cursed and laughed. Black streams! Even when I see it, I still can't believe it. Blaze opened his eyes. In the dark of the night, golden flecks danced about in their curious patterns, neither fully orderly nor completely chaotic. A miracle, right? Yet, as miraculous as our powers may be, we haven't yet been able to, you know, do anything with them. What we can do is about as useful as having a painting of a stake. Remarkable, Gladick said. It has hardly been five minutes since our supper, yet you still frame everything in terms of food. I'd put it in terms of drink, except I don't want to think about how long it's been since I've had one. Blaze flicked his fishbone at the mix of dirt and ash. Then again, if we'd like to resume our efforts at not being so terrible, we've got a tried-and-true knight of Odosain right in front of us, don't we? Beck beetled his brow. What are you asking? When you access the stream, what do you do? Any hot tips for us? The knight looked at him like Blaze had asked him to regurgitate his fish and feed it to Blaze like a baby bird. It's no wonder you can't figure out how to use the stream. You're as dumb as a logworm. Assuming that a logworm is pretty dumb, I'm inclined to agree with you. Now, would you mind explaining why you think my head is a vessel of night soil? Gladick sighed. It is because you asked him to explain precisely how one uses the skill. Such a question defies the core virtue of the Odosain. At least one of you gets it, Beck said. Was Belle Era drunk when she took you on? No, Blay said levelly. She, along with the rest of your council, 
was convinced to teach us by someone who showed her how he could preserve Tanaratane in two ways. In the present, by killing the white lich, and in the future, by recording your country's past. All while standing to gain nothing for himself. The knight darted a glance at Blaze's hands, which weren't far from the hilts of his swords. If I didn't know better, I'd say you're ready to take an apology from me, or to take a piece of my hide with your steel. But you're in our lands now. We have no idea what trifles you foreigners consider an insult, nor how much groveling it takes to make an apology for them. Go on, then, and hack at each other. Gladick's words were pure scorn. Then as long as we're betraying everything we came here to do, I shall run off to swear fealty to the White Lich. The corner of Blazer's mouth twitched. He wasn't sure if it was a smile. He hoisted his hands over his head and stretched. I suppose if Bell Era couldn't pound it through our thick heads, you're not likely to do any better, kind knight. For me, trying to get the stream to move is like trying to suck an apple through a reed. He swung his head toward Gladick. Hold on. Suppose there's a way to make a bigger reed. If this is a metaphor, it is as cloudy as a syphilitic's urine. You have no idea how glad I am that I've already eaten. But follow me on this. Even for a skilled nethermancer, trying to get the shadows to do what you want without bribing them with blood is a lot harder than when you splash some of the red stuff around first. By using blood, you're making the reed bigger. The reed through which you are attempting to suck the apple. That's right. Which is a thing that has never been attempted by anyone. But you still understand what I'm getting at, so quit pretending you don't. Blood makes it easier to access the nether. Is there anything similar for ether? You are incapable of using the ether. What does it matter? Because I'm trying to figure out if this is something that exists with all the powers, including the stream. Yes, Gladick said slowly. There is. Well, what is it? A closely guarded secret. But you will next explain that knowing this secret will help you to determine a possible analogue for the stream, and although I would respond by insisting it would not, you wouldn't believe me until you could judge for yourself. That sounds pretty much how it would go, except my side of things would involve passing more judgments about your mother. It involves the breaking of something delicate, Gladick said. A glass figurine? or a shell are two favorites. Anything that is beautiful, or the product of long labor, works best, for the ether is agitated by the chaos of such an object being destroyed. It arrives eager to restore the damage, and then to correct further disorder around it. Blaze leaned back, swatting at something on his arm. 
Nethos, the stuff of the cycle of life, of birth, creation, and death. Blood fuels it. Ethos, the stuff of order and preservation, and gets riled up when you mess with that. Bit contradictory, isn't it? One's for it, one's against it. So if there's anything like this with the stream, it could be either something that promotes thought and reason, or exactly the opposite. Blood, magic, and totems, Beck said. It's a wonder the people of your mad lands aren't sacrificing each other from sunup to sundown. Our products of blood magic and totems were what saved your life in Erisosis, Gladick said. And if the gods will it, it will be blood magic and totems that allow us to destroy the Aedan Rane and save your damned country. You were brought up to believe these powers are evil. Yet even when evidence otherwise stands before you like a mountain, you still deny that it's true. Beck's face flushed a rather incredible shade of scarlet. These are desperate times. Everything's out the window. Indeed. If Gladick had pressed the obvious hypocrisy, Beck might have gone on the defensive. Instead, the old priest said nothing, letting the silence stretch to the breaking point. Damn you, Beck murmured. He had his head tipped back and was staring into nothing, making it unclear who exactly he was damning. He met Gladick's eyes. I shouldn't tell you this. Even if I believe it's true, and there's nothing I've ever seen to say otherwise, if I tell you what I know, it'll discourage you from finding out and proving me wrong. Which would be a loss for the older saying, as you currently believe there is no such reed to make the stream flow more freely. Beck made the barest nod. That'd be a reasonable conclusion. Blaze exhaled raggedly. Gods, I hate having to think this much. Why can't I be right about everything on the first try? He looked up. Gladick, those shells you're talking about breaking, they aren't Shorden, are they? Shorden's association with the Nether renders them distasteful to the priests, Gladick said. Not to mention they are somewhat large. Any reasonably complex shell would do although some argue that the most effective shells are prettier or bear more sophisticated patterns that make their destruction more offensive to the ether. He had been pacing as he spoke, lecturing. Why do you ask? When I learned to use the nether at Pocket Cove, we used shells too. Not to generate more nether, but to make it easier to take the step from being able to touch the shadows to being able to actually use the stupid stuff. That's what idiots like me have to do anyway. I think they typically take on a higher caliber of student. I've only heard rumors of Pocket Cove, and each one intrigues me more. I would like to hear more about them, along with their methods of training. Not tonight, Blaze decided, but maybe another time. What I'm interested in right now is whether there's anything similar to help students access the ether, 
or the stream. Peck swore under his breath. That's too good a piece of deduction to let go by. You're saying such a thing exists? I'll say that if it did exist, I don't see anywhere you could reason your way towards determining what you're looking for. Me neither. So why not tell us? Other than your kooky religious beliefs that sound perfectly enlightened in most circumstances, but are utterly trying to kill us? What need do you even have for it? Aren't I here to wield the Odosein for you? That's the plan, Blaze said. But in my experience, plans have a habit of going to shit even when they're not being opposed by a malevolent demigod. In the event that something happens to you, Wait, let me rephrase that in Tenarian terms. In the event the lich chops your head from your neck and uses your skull as his porridge bowl, it would be nice if one of us had also learned to use the Odosein, because I'm not sure waving your dismembered remains at the lich will do the trick. I can't tell you what it is. Beck gazed at his hands but I'll watch for one of them on the way to Darabode, and if I see one, I'll get it for you. Don't ask me for more than that. No worries on that front. Blaze rolled himself into his lightweight travel blanket. As tight-lipped as your order is, I could ask you which way the sun rises all night, and I still wouldn't know until dawn. Of all the reasons Blaze hated the White Lich, his third highest reason, and making a serious charge at second place, was that he hadn't been able to sleep past noon for several weeks. As usual, they got up way too damned early and resumed the tedious job of propelling themselves through the swamp. Check that, the awful swamp. They'd run out of Volo's bug-repelling paste while returning to the hell-painted hills, and while Beck had provided them with a second method, chewing up a particular bitter-tasting leaf and rubbing it around your skin, it wasn't half as effective. While Blaze was paddling, he wished he wasn't, so that he'd be able to scratch his bites. When he wasn't paddling, he wished he was, so he'd have something to distract him from the itchiness. Once upon a time... There had been incidental boat traffic everywhere but the fringes and deepest reaches of the swamp. These days, the waterways were all but empty. Later that morning, when Gladick warned them of an approaching vessel, Blaze pulled them behind a patch of thorns. He wasn't surprised in the slightest, and the boat that advanced into view was a monsoon war canoe. Gladick held the nether in hand but the boat passed without noticing them. At noon, they stopped for a quick break to stretch their legs and deflate their bladders. Dante's moving eastward, Gladick announced to Blaze, holding his hand to the side of his head. If he holds course, his path should take him just north of Darabode. He could easily deviate to the capital. Do you think his path is coincidence? It has to be. There's no possible way he'd know where we were going. Unless he's left his eyes upon us. 
That was a troublesome thought. It turned out to be the pernicious variety that sounded ridiculous at first, but wormed its way deeper and deeper into your mind the more you thought about it. Blaze spent an uncomfortable chunk of the afternoon dwelling on that possibility before moving on to a more generalized malaise. What if he hadn't gotten so drunk that night, so angry? If he'd been there, Dante wouldn't have gone out on patrol alone. And while it was possible that, had they gone out together, they both would have been taken, Blaze didn't think that's how it would have turned out. Now, their only hope lay in finding some foolish lizard statue, tracking Dante down, unleashing the statue's power on him, and praying that it worked on lesser liches the same way it did on the blighted. Oh, right, and they also needed to survive the encounter with Dante long enough to use the Abaquen in the first place, which Blaze had more than a few doubts they'd be able to do. If Dante had been with them on a similar mission, he wouldn't have felt half as worried. As he'd said before, like alchemists of chaos, the pair of them had a way of transmuting disorder into opportunity. For obvious reasons, however, Dante was not there. His role was currently being filled by Gladick, and Blaze was still a long way from sure about Gladick. Granted, the old man had abandoned the immediate fight against the Lich to pursue this line of action, which was a point in his favor. But there were still about nine thousand other strikes against him, like the plagued islands, and the campaign against the Colin Basin. And Volo, who was looking more and more like she'd be dazed forever, although that act had maybe saved Beck's life, who was vital to the current process of saving Dante's life. And without Dante, Blaze pegged their chances of stopping the White Lich as somewhere between laughable and Fuck all. It was all very confusing. The kind of confusion that could only be distilled with a long night in the company of brown liquor, which Blaze didn't have any of. What he had instead was the deepening conviction that they should have walked away from this a long time ago, like as soon as they'd rescued Naren. Everything after that had been a rage-blinded quest for revenge against someone who had, quite unbeknownst to them, been working to fight the thing they were now all trying to stop. Still, if you could pinpoint a single mistake to blame for their current strait, it had to be the decision to go after Gladick rather than taking Naren from the Blue Tower and walking away. But after everything that Gladick had done, how could they not have tried to bring him to justice? That angle of things was Gladick's fault, wasn't it? None of it made any sense. He was starting to fear that it never would. Beck held up his right arm. Stop! Blaze backbeat, then dragged the paddle in the water. What have you got? That inlet over there. You should take it. The inlet was a barely visible gap in the trees. Beck didn't appear ready to volunteer anything as to why Blaze should take it rather than the quite clear path ahead, but knowing that asking would be fruitless, Blaze brought them through it, ducking under a pair of outstretched branches guarding the entry. 
After forty feet of tight travel, the way opened into a wide and roughly circular pool of water. This was hemmed in on the sides by dense growth and overhead by the canopy. The water was studded by small islands sporting short trees. It felt still, even by the sluggish standards of the swamp. Beck surveyed the area expressionlessly, then pointed to an island a third of the way across the clearing. That one. Circle it. Slowly. Blaze brought them up to the island. It looked like any of the hundreds of other micro-islands they'd recently passed, if a little mossier than most. Beck kept his eyes locked on the shores. Blaze made a complete circuit, then brought them to a stop. What are we supposed to be looking for? You don't look, Beck said. I look. You paddle. He directed them to a second island. Blaze circled it slowly. Halfway around, Beck grabbed him by the upper arm and whispered, Stop! Don't scare it! Blaze dragged his paddle. He followed Beck's line of sight to the shore. Scare what? The moss? The crab. See it there? No, but I'll trust that you do, because the alternative is that the last night of Oda Sayin and our only hope of victory just went completely insane. There's a bearded crab right there. That's the object that will get you closer to learning the Odosain. Bring me in, nice and slow. Blaze hesitated, then reminded himself that he'd been involved in any number of far stranger things over the years. Stealthy as he could, he brought them in toward the island, still utterly failing to spot the crab. A long portion of the bank slid away from the island. The front portion of the slide launched into the air, hurling toward the canoe. Blaze grabbed Gladick by the jabat and yanked him into the bottom of the boat. The swamp dragon's head soared over them, teeth clapping shut in the empty space. With a shout, Beck drew his Odosain blade, Nether zipping down the dark steel. The canoe rocked madly. Ether blasted from Gladick's hand into the swamp dragon's long neck, but the enormous lizards were nearly as hardened against sorcery as the cappers of the Woden Mountains, and its scales dispersed the light like glowing milkweed seeds. The dragon swung about in the frothy water, lifting its head. If it came down on the canoe, it had smashed the boat into a million small pieces. Even if the three of them weren't hurt or stunned by the attack, Blaze doubted more than one of them would make it to shore without being eaten. Lie down! He got to his feet, drawing one sword. Gladick had already complied. Beck crouched, blade held up for the incoming strike. He was still standing higher than Blaze would have liked, but there was nothing for it. Blaze slipped into the shadows. He dashed forward, his feet oozing into the surface of the water like it was thick mud, and launched himself at the dragon. He took a passing whack at the beast's throat as he went by, but even with the ethereal weapon, trying to cut through the dragon's skin was like trying to chew through tanned leather. It didn't even seem to notice him. That being the exact opposite of his goals, 
he exited the shadows mid-jump, landing on the dragon's back and stomping down as hard as he could. The dragon's back was half-coated in living grass, moss, snails, and what appeared to be small chunks of rock embedded among the scales, which were the color and texture of dirt. Blaze drew his second sword and dropped his right knee, stabbing both weapons downward. One hit the scales and slid off, the other lodged momentarily, gouging a fraction of an inch into the chitin before stopping. Blaze yanked the weapon free and laid about himself in wild abandon, slashing and jabbing at the dragon as he worked his way toward the base of its neck. This delivered exactly zero appreciable damage to the monster. But while hurting the monster would have been nice, Blaze was more than satisfied by the result. The swamp dragon abandoned its intentions to belly-flop onto the canoe and focused on him instead. The beast curled its head around, angling for a bite, but Blaze simply circled around the back of its neck, giving it two more whacks for good measure. The lizard snapped its head around to the other side, trying to catch him from the rear. He merely danced to the spot it had just vacated, leaving the animal snapping in vain, unable to stretch far enough across its own back to reach him. He jabbed at its neck with everything he had. It snapped at him in vain twice more, then exhaled hard, its back contracting, and dived beneath the surface. Blaze jumped into the air and into the netherworld. The water lit up with bright silver bubbles. The swamp dragon was a terribly long mass, bright black under the dull shade of the water. As Blaze began to descend, blindingly white ether poured from Gladick's hand and spread across the surface of the swamp. With a series of hollow cracks, the water froze solid. Blaze landed lightly. Beneath him, the dragon headed for the canoe only to bonk into a wall of ice. It slammed its head into the wall, but the ice held. Blaze popped from the netherworld. He made way for the canoe, skidding on the ice. No! Gladig thrust his finger toward the shore. Deliver the crab! You've got to be joking! Blaze turned back to the island, certain it would be futile. Yet his eyes latched onto the crab at once, a dark lump near the water's edge, pebbles stuck to its back, a beard-like plume of moss hanging from its chin. Under the water, the swamp dragon took another bash at the wall of ice, cracking it with an eerie groan. Shaking his head, Blaze dashed toward the island, squishing into the mud at its edge. The alarmed crab shuffled toward the water, left-hand claw opening and closing as it went. Blaze maneuvered behind it and scooped it up. Its pointed legs scrabbled at the air. The dragon slammed into the ice yet again. A crack shot toward the surface, opaquing it. Blaze made a run for the canoe. When he was ten feet from the boat, the ice snapped underfoot, spilling him forward. He tucked the crab to his chest with one hand and reached out with the other, seeking the ground and guiding himself into a shoulder roll. The ice breathed cold through the thin fabric of the jabat. He came to his feet and hopped into the canoe.
Deck was paddling before Blazer's butt hit the bench. The canoe sped away from the island and toward the narrow tunnel through the grove. Behind them, the swamp dragon crashed through the fragmenting ice, surfacing amid a turmoil of bubbles. Gladick wriggled his fingers. A ball of darkness enfolded the dragon's head. It shook itself, trying to free itself from its blindness. But under Gladick's close concentration, the shadow sphere followed the beast's every movement. They entered the passage through the trees. Asbeck took them through a curve, blocking line of sight. The dragon was still thrashing its head in fury. I never thought I'd risk my life for a crab. Blaze held the pokey little thing away from himself. Especially when I wasn't going to poach in butter. In the aft of the canoe, Gladick was twisted about, watching for pursuit from the dragon. How did you know it would be there? The flowers growing outside the inlet, Beck said. The little yellow ones shaped like hands. The crabs favor the fruits the flowers grow. Blaze winced as the crab poked him with a foot. How exactly is this supposed to help us reach the stream? I don't know. I see. Remind me why I just risked getting bitten in half, trying to grab it then. I don't know how the crabs help. I only know that they do. Port is the bridge between yourself and the world around you. The Odosein is what exists between these two realms. Existing between land and water, the crabs are a bridge as well. Beck paddled thoughtfully. Also, their beards signify their wisdom. Are you being quite serious? Blaze held the crab up for a better look at the moss hanging from its face. This thing is special because it's got a bit of moss growing where its chin would be, if crabs had chins. That's what I was told. If you don't believe me, you should try to prove me wrong. How do you use it? How do you think? God damn it, if I have to hear that one more- There's no trick, Beck said. Just keep it near you as you access the stream. Gazing into the crab's beady little eyes, Blaze was glad Dante wasn't around to witness what he was about to do. Finding the creature's constant jabs and tickles distracting, he set it in the bottom of his traveling cup, then started daydreaming about long-gone forests. Once he had a few motes of gold making figure eights near his right shoulder, he swooped down on them with the grace of a pouncing cat. Impressive though this maneuver was, the flecks of stream remained stubbornly unconvinced of his authority, failing to so much as twitch from their pattern. Blaze tried again and again until the last of his stream faded away. I'm not getting anywhere. Are you sure this crab's beard isn't defective? Gladick had been keeping one eye on Blaze's efforts and the other one out for patrols or other dangers. They all swapped roles, with Blaze taking up the paddle. Twenty minutes later, Gladick shook his head. I cannot see any difference at all. 
almost like it was an afterthought, Peck conjured up a thread of stream, drawing it to himself. The fault isn't with the crab. The crab is fine. Even though he'd just watched the knight seem to put the crab to use, Blaze would have taken the whole thing for a bizarre prank played on gullible outsiders. Except for one thing. He himself had used a sea snail as part of his own training in the nether. So why was it so ridiculous to think a crab might not be able to do the same thing with the stream? Shardon were filled with nether. Cappers and swamp dragons were resistant to it. If humans could manipulate the light and shadows, why wouldn't animals be able to interact with them as well? He picked up the cup. Earlier the crab had been scrabbling at the smooth tin sides, but it now rested at the bottom, seemingly resigned to its fate. More than a few philosophers and farmers claimed that the ability to make peace with your lot in life was a virtue, perhaps the highest one there was. In that this idea made for the perfect justification to kick back and do nothing, Blaze favored it. But he'd always been suspicious that it was little more than an excuse that the timid used to justify quivering behind locked doors when the day called for strong people to go forth and kick ass. He set down the cup, closed his eyes, and got back to work on the stream. They exited the woods, unveiling the lights of Darabode. Behind the sprawling raft houses and docks, stone buildings and towers stood on hills that, despite rising no more than a few score feet high, were the highest points of land Blaze had seen in Tanaritain, other than the wound and the hell-painted hills. At the city centre, the bastion spires lorded it up over everything. They'd bided their time waiting for nightfall, arguing about whether to approach the front gates or to try to sneak in elsewhere on the perimeter, which wasn't walled, but which was enclosed by two separate fishnets and was heavily patrolled. Gladick had eventually won out on the idea that if they tried the gates, there was at least the chance they'd be allowed inside without further issue. And even if they were apprehended, they could dash back into the wilds to hide, and then try another way in. It sounded reasonable enough, Yet as they paddled into the light cast by the sentry's lanterns, Blaze's instincts cleared their throat and informed him that they had made the entirely incorrect decision. The sentries were already standing up and watching them, spears planted beside them, meaning it was much too late to turn the canoe around without making themselves look extra guilty. Blaze donned his best, I am but a stupid foreigner, expression, which he'd had many opportunities to perfect over the years, and removed his paddle from the water. Eck sat in the canoe's center. He was out of his armor, and as far as Blaze could tell, he looked like your average, everyday Tenarian. Gladick sat aft, back hunched and chin down, as if he was asleep. Travelers! 
One of the sentries lifted his lantern, dousing the canoe in yellow light. Identify yourselves. My name's Kren Narlin of Ragadon, Beck said. These are my two servants. What brings a villager to the capital in the middle of the night? Ragadon was attacked. I've traveled for days, but the war is everywhere. The gates are closed. Sirs, the capital is the only place I can find safety. You have to let me in. Every village is given the chance to surrender, the sentry said. If it didn't, then it was attacked with good cause. We owe you nothing. But we're countrymen. A second man laughed. Not any more. You want safety? Then you'd best leave Tanaritain to slink away like your coward emperor. Beck went very still, in a way that almost always meant fists, or far more lethal weapons were about to get flung around. Pardon me, Blaze interrupted, for I am but a worthless hari, and if not for the fact I'd be eaten alive otherwise, I wouldn't taint this boat with my presence, let alone your grand capital. Our master spoke at great length to convince the others to turn Rogadan over to the virtuous liberators of the righteous monsoon. By the end of his words, even a low-born worm like myself was crying from my wormy little eyes. Even so, the other leaders didn't listen and decided to fight you. But is their stupidity my master's fault? Yes, the sentry answered. Now fuck off. Without a word, Gladick splayed his left hand. Nether streaked into the night. The two sentries' heads snapped back, then rolled forward, spewing blood from the holes punched through their foreheads. They collapsed together. Gladick climbed out onto the dock. Retrieve their uniforms. I will open the gates. Blaze clenched his teeth hard enough to snap something. He rolled out of the canoe glanced down the docks, then peeled the white and blue jabats from the monsoon sentries, doing his best not to get them too bloody. He tossed the clothes to Beck, then lowered one of the bodies into the water next to the canoe. What are you doing? Beck whispered. Not leaving a pair of corpses in the middle of the front gates. Sweating from the effort, Blaze dunked the second body with a small splash. The gates parted, swinging outward with no sound except for the creak of ropes. Blaze grabbed the two bodies by their wrists, dragging them along as Beck brought the canoe forward. Gladick waited on a stone ledge on the other side. They gave him a hand into the boat. They struck out from the gates and into the cover of the ring of crops cultivated between the fishnets and the outermost neighborhoods. The long leaves of banana trees fluttered in the weak breeze. Blaze instructed Beck to take them to a cluster of trees, then stuffed the two corpses between the tightly packed trunks. Blaze rinsed his hands, then gave Gladick a tap on the shoulder that wasn't quite a punch. Was that strictly necessary? Gladick rubbed his shoulder. To prevent them from raising the alarm so that the entire city might descend upon us? I thought so, yes. I told you we should have come in from the side. 
Then again, whoever could have guessed that the paranoid monsoon wasn't going to let too hurry into the city after nightfall? We are now through the gates with two uniforms in hand. I know that you are so fond of criticism that you would denounce your own mother's methods as she gave birth to you, but in this case, you are mistaken. Blazer's hair and features were too obviously foreign to pass as a soldier, so Beck and Gladick changed into the uniforms instead, which turned out to be a tricky maneuver to execute while inside a canoe. Once they were dressed, Beck paddled onward, exiting the agricultural district and entering a neighborhood of raft houses. Before the coming of the monsoon, these had been raucous with laughter and debate. They were now almost entirely quiet, the inhabitants keeping themselves indoors, murmuring too softly for their neighbors to hear. Blaze found himself angered by the silence. He'd always measured a society's virtue through how much cheer, arguing, and all-round rowdiness it could produce without also producing violence and riots. Apparently, the monsoon was incapable of any spirit whatsoever. On the plus side, this deadness of spirit meant there were fewer people out wandering around who would be inclined to yell at them about what they were doing. They cut past the slums and into the canals separating the wealthy islands from each other. Within a span of minutes, they approached the short earthen rampart surrounding the moat which, in turn, surrounded the heart of the city. Blaze had seen a few moats in his day but nothing in Malin, Gask, or anywhere else he'd traveled could compare to the one surrounding the bastion of last acts. It was a full bow shot across. Not some dinky little rabbit-hunting bow either. A war bow. Also, the water was stuffed to the gills, so to speak, with Ziki Oko. Anyone who fell in or attempted to swim it would be treated to the rare opportunity of seeing what their own skeleton looked like, which would give them quite the interesting conversation starter once the Zikioko's ministrations sent them into the mists. In the middle of the moat, the towers and halls of the bastion were your typical display of grandeur, of the sort that announced, I will now work my people to death in order to ensure that none of them can ever step foot in this palace again. The only thing of mild interest about them was that they were built from pale blue granite, with the quite literal-minded blue tower looking as blue as a sky, or the ocean, or one of those other very blue things. Eck brought them up against the edge of the rampart, which rose four-plus feet from the water and was held in check by a sheer retaining wall. They tied the canoe to a metal rod mortared into the bricks. Blaze helped boost Gladick to the top of the retaining wall, then followed him up, lying flat on the short grass. Prone beside him, Gladick was already gesturing away, weaving his hand through a series of snaky gestures and muttering to himself. A dark spot materialized on the ground near him, as black as the blue tower was blue. A bit more mumbling and weaving, and a second spot appeared, 
then a third. Traces. Blaze was pretty damn curious how Gladig was able to find and expose them without shadow-walking into the netherworld, but he had a feeling that would be one secret the priest kept to himself. Two feet from the ground, a child-sized silhouette unfurled. The miniature Andrak spread its claws wide and tipped back its head, white light burning from within its throat. Gladic made a cutting motion, and the demon closed its mouth, extinguishing the light before it could be seen from the fortress. You will find the Abaquen, Gladic breathed. He described the statue, as well as the most likely places he expected it to be. Now go. Do not be seen. The pint-sized Star Eater nodded its head and dropped into the water without a splash. The summer night air was alive with crickets and smelled like fresh water. A minute later, a shadow slipped from the moat onto the dock that fronted the bastion's doors and slipped inside. Not a bad spy, Blaze whispered, although I think Dante's moths are subtler. We each have our own style. Lying on his stomach in the grass, Gladic motioned to the moat. Have you considered how we might cross this? We're going inside. I thought your little pet would just fetch it for us. How may a shadow pick up that which is real? Let me get this straight. You brought us here fully aware we needed to break into the bastion, and you didn't give a moment's thought to how we were going to get to it. You and Dante had no troubles crossing it when you came for Captain Naren. Why not use the same trick now? Because Dante did it all, and he can do a lot of stuff you can't. Ah, Gladick said. That is a fairly good reason. Blaze spent the next several minutes thinking about how they might lift the canoe up to the top of the earthworks without A, making gobs of noise, and B, breaking themselves. Other than smashing their boat into pieces, bringing the pieces up top, then reassembling them into a solid boat, a plan they didn't have the tools or ability to pull off, he didn't see a way. Beck didn't offer a single bit of insight. In fact, Blaze got the impression the knight thought it was somehow improper to sneak into a lord's castle and rob the place of its most valuable possession. Fifteen minutes after it had departed, the Andrak climbed onto the rampart in front of them, nearly causing Blaze to evacuate into his jabat. The demon crouched in front of Gladick, communing noiselessly. The old man smiled. The Abakuen is here, held within the lower vault, just where I suspected it would be. That's a welcome bit of news. Now, don't disappoint me by telling me we still don't have a way across the moat. I have thought about it, and I have concluded that I do not know how. Blaze sucked his upper teeth. How far is the lower vault from here? I imagine it's the same distance as the fortress we are currently staring at. 
But how long would it take someone to run to it from here? Assuming they were a talented and handsome individual who wouldn't have to slow down for any doors. Gladig tapped his chin. Three minutes, perhaps four. I'll go by myself. Your little friend can show me the way. I'm going to be tight on time, though, especially if I run into any trouble. But if we had a way across, then it would all become much easier. I am painfully aware. You know, this would be extremely simple if you could harvest us a second canoe. But no, you were too busy pitting the plagued islanders into war with each other to learn anything from them. Gladick was rubbing his temples, stretching his wrinkled skin. As Blaze finished speaking, his left eyebrow bent upward. I cannot make us a vessel made of wood, but which god declared that a boat must be made from trees? He crawled to the inner edge of the earthworks. As the first light of ether glowed from his fingers, he smothered it in a shadow sphere. A pale line appeared in the water below, bobbing to the surface. An arm of solid ice. With deft, precise movements, Gladick expanded it on both sides, curving the edges upward and curving the nose into a point. In a matter of seconds, an icy canoe rested on the water, mist curling from its frozen flanks. Blaze laughed softly. Neat trick, but I think I'll stick with a wooden paddle. He lowered himself down the outer edge of the wall and snagged a paddle from their original canoe. When he climbed back up, he found that Gladick, Beck, and the little Star Eater had climbed into the ice boat. We will wait for you outside the walls, Gladick said. In case, as you say, there is trouble. Blaze kneeled in the bow, the ice stinging his bare legs, and paddled hard for the bastion shores, shifting his weight from knee to knee to try to prevent them from freezing solid. As soon as the canoe slid onto solid ground, he jumped out and rubbed the warmth back into his legs. We will wait here for you, Gladick said. Good luck, Sir Blaze. Thanks, Sir Gladick. Blaze shrugged at the Andrek. It stared up at him, saying nothing. Interpreting this as demonic for, why, yes, I am ready, Blaze walked up to the stone wall and plunged into the shadows. The night's gloom lit up with the moon-like eeriness of the netherworld. He crossed through the wall and into a sitting room. In the hallway beyond, the Andrak took the lead, dashing silently over the reed mat lining the center of the passage. They'd hardly gotten anywhere before the glowing outline of a person appeared at the far end of the corridor. The Andrak stopped and sank into the wall. Ensconced in the shadows, Blaze wouldn't have been noticed by the intruder, even if he'd done a handstand with his jabat flipped over his head while blowing a trumpet. But he needed the Andrak, and it wouldn't do to have a servant run off shrieking about bumping into a child-sized demon.
He didn't particularly want to kill an innocent resident, either. As he waited, he gritted his teeth, feeling each second trickle away from him. The woman walked past. The Andrak detached from the wall, skimming down the hallway. Blaze ran a step behind it. After another turn, the demon ran toward a closed door, vanishing through the stone wall beside it. Blaze followed it into a stairwell. This was completely dark, and at the speed they were going, Blaze would likely have found himself the proud owner of a broken leg, if not for the dark shine of the nether to light the way. The air took on the quality of dankness universal to all underground spaces with poor circulation of air. The Andrak exited into another dark hallway, doors flicking past on both sides. They were fed into a sprawling room. The skeletons of small animals lay arranged on tables. Other surfaces hosted candles burned to various lengths, along with glass flasks and small metal pots. Blaze recognized it at once. Sorcerer's Den. The demon ran to the far end of the room. There, a great iron doorway blocked the way forward, sealed with chains big enough to beat a bull to death with, and padlocks that looked capable of choking a swamp dragon. Patterns and sigils of warding were etched across the entire surface of the door. The Andrak stepped to the side and walked through the wall. So did Blaze. The chamber beyond was a step lower, and he fell six inches, uttering a small yelp of alarm. The room was narrower than the one before it, the walls to the right and left standing twenty feet apart. The lower four feet of the walls were blank, with everything above that sporting cabinets and shelves loaded down with glassware, idols, and pieces of metal, whose purpose was no doubt inscrutable to anyone but obsessive and crank-minded nethermancers. The Andrak trotted past all of this, arriving at a group of display cases set on sturdy stands that, like the cabinets, were four feet high. The little demon stopped in front of one, nodding to it. Even without the ivory gecko wrapped around them, Blaze had spent more than enough time around Dante to recognize the bones inside the case, those of a human forearm. He grinned at the demon. For a being of pure evil, you do good work. The case had a broad step in front of it to allow better access. Blaze climbed it, then exited the shadows. The room was so dark he could barely see his own hand. The only light came from the Andrak's dim and slitted eyes. Point your face this way, will you? I can't see a damn thing. The Star Eater obliged, opening its eyes wider. Blaze undid the latch on the hinge panel on the front of the case and swung the panel open. He reached for the Abaquen. As soon as his fingers touched the smooth, cool ivory, he stopped. The room prior to this had absolutely, definitely been a laboratory for sorcerers. 
He knew what sorcerers were like. Suspicious creatures who imagined everyone else was as conniving and covetous as they were. He took hold of the carving, then moved into the shadows. Only then did he lift it. With a metal clang, something shot up beneath him. Spears, emerging from the step he was standing on. If he'd been wearing his normal, meat-based body, he'd have been impaled, and one of the spears would currently be waving his dangly bits as a flag. He chuckled softly. Heavy clunks sounded from all sides. He craned his neck in mild confusion. What next? Machines that shot arrows at him? Then rocked back on his feet. The entire room was flooding with water. 16. The water swirled across the floor in a foaming torrent. If he'd been your average non-shadow-walking type, and had somehow avoided the spears and had jumped off the step, he would currently be getting swept into the back of the room, either to be smashed into the back wall and drowned, or to be carried into some insidious nethermancer's trap to be held until authorities arrived, or possibly just to be held down for more effective drowning. Either way, he very much doubted that his current situation had gone without notice. He motioned to the little Andrak. I take it from the attempt to flush us that it's time to leave. Might I suggest running? He tucked the Abaquen into his jabat, ensuring it was secure, and leaped off the step. He landed on the eddying surface of the water with a small splash. Rather than yanking him from his feet and carrying him away, the torrent merely felt slippery, like wet clay, obliging him to proceed in careful, loping hop-steps. The water appeared to be gushing from the lower front of the room, where it took a step down from the laboratory on the other side, which explained why it was a step lower in the first place, and why all the cabinets and cases housing the Nethermancer's valuables were elevated four feet off the ground. With an appreciative nod at their engineering, Blaze galloped right through the wall. The laboratory on the other side was bone dry. The roar of the water in the other room was now a muffled hiss. From the tables, the skeletons of the birds and rodents seemed to be watching him. The feeling was so strong that he stopped and peered at them, searching them for signs of an ethereal animation. But a closer inspection revealed they were just your standard piles of dead stuff. The little star-eater slitted his eyes at him. In the real world, the demons looked flat and unreal, but in the shadows, they were as vivid as a tree or a wolf. On a full-sized Andrak, the expression of impatience it was currently wielding on Blaze would have been menacing. As this demon only stood to his mid-thigh, the look was comical instead. Its impatience wasn't unfounded, however. Blaze resumed running, heading across the long room toward the stairwell. As he entered the hallway, an awareness entered the shadows like a shark coming to a reef, questing about with predatory malice. Blaze froze in place and tried to make himself very tall. Three seconds crept by, then five, 
then ten. He still had more than half his shadows left in him, but if he had to wait much longer... A presence hammered into his side, knocking him from the nether like a loose tooth. Swearing extensively, he drew a knife, nicked the back of his arm, and sprinted toward the stairs, drawing a sword in his right hand and a small hunk of shadows in his left. He pulled the stairwell door open and listened a moment for the smack of feet, then took the steps, three at a time. He came to the ground floor landing and reached for the door. It flew open before he could touch it. A soldier shouted out in surprise, jabbing instinctually with his short spear. Blaze caught the haft with the edge of his blade, sliding it past him, and stabbed the man in the chest, the churning nether of the Odosain weapon, parting the soldier's breastbone like boiled chicken. The Andrak ran past the body and out the door. An instant later, a bolt of nether flicked into its side. This appeared to do nothing, but the spear of ether that followed it punched a hole through the demon's neck, spraying shadows across the hall. Thirty feet down the way, a sorcerer in light blue robes stood with her feet apart and her hand outstretched. Tendrils of shadows extended from the Andrak as she drew the nether from its body. Blaze spun about and ran deeper into the bastion, the demon flying along behind him. He could feel the nether zipping down the hallway toward them. He flung himself down a side passage. The shadows pounded into the corner with a hail of stone. I don't suppose you know a way out of here? Blaze looked to the demon as if he actually expected an answer, and came to the realization that the chaos of the moment had driven him temporarily insane. With footsteps pounding after them, and another lance of nether bending around the corner, Blaze blipped into the shadows and jumped to his left, taking a shortcut through the wall. As soon as he was clear, he dropped back into the physical world, praying the action had been too fast for the enemy nethermancer to track. He found himself in a yawning and empty room. Windows shed light from above but the openings were nearly twenty feet up and there was no way to climb to them. The presence quested forth again. Blaze wished it had a face so he could punch it. He glanced at the Andrak. Well, little fellow, how would you like to collect your share of glory? The demon flexed its claws in anticipation, although Blaze suspected it was less enthusiastic about potential valor than it was about the chance to rip a fleshy human into messy pieces. He moved back to the wall. The presence circled closer, homing in on the Andrak. And Blaze homed in on it. He pointed to a section of wall with his sword. The Star Eater lowered its head and ran full tilt through the wall. Blaze bounced on his heel and followed after it, rolling into the shadows just before he was about to bash his brains out on the stone. In the hallway on the other side, the Andrak threw itself at the sorcerer, who jerked up her hands in surprise. Ether sprayed from her fingers in straight lines, raking tatters from the Andrak. It slashed at her leg, grinning at the sight of the blood flowing from her thigh. Yet she was already sucking the nether from the Andrak's wounds and applying it to her own, the gashes fading as the demon became semi-transparent. 
Blaze drew his second sword and charged. She backpedaled, the faltering Andrak giving chase and ripping at her shin. The woman drew back her arm, yanking a fat gob of nether from the demon. They both stumbled. She fired a blast of nether at Blaze. He held up the meager bit of it that he could command, waiting until her attack was almost on him before deflecting it. He leaped through the shower of black sparks. She was already drawing more power from the small Andrak, which fell on its face, now ghostly claws outstretched before it. Blaze made an overhand slash toward the sorcerer's head. She threw up her right hand, which succeeded in saving her skull at the cost of sending a hand and half her forearm smacking against the wall. She wailed in the particular kind of panic that overtook people when they watched themselves lose a limb. Shadows whipped around her head. Before she could think about doing anything with them, Blaze stuck his other blade into her gut. She gasped, face going gray. He flexed his elbow and backhanded his first sword through her neck. Her head landed a foot from her hand. Her mouth hung open, the eyes blinking at him dully. That reaction was one reason he wasn't particularly fond of beheading people. But when you were dealing with nethermancers, it was always best to chop too much rather than too little. He turned to the Andrek. Still with me? It didn't move. Except for the integrity of its body, which was collapsing on itself, Blaze kneeled halfway down, intending to touch the demon on the back, then grunted at himself. I'll remember you, little one. He straightened. Wisps of nether curled away. The Andrak was gone. Blaze glanced up and down the hallway, trying to get his bearings after the chase. Even by the standards of stately castles, the bastion was big. The wrong turn could find him utterly lost in hostile territory. Then again, he had no need to follow the rigid confines of hallways and rooms. He shifted back into the shadows, felt a bit wobbly. Less than two minutes before he ran short, he thought. He aligned himself in what he thought was a southerly direction that would take him back to the others, and ran as fast as he could, blowing through a wall. Heading in a straight line, he knifed through a second wall, only to blunder into something yielding yet smothering. It felt clothy. He ripped the tapestry from himself, cast it aside, and sprinted on. Without warning, the bright darkness of the netherworld fell away, replaced by the dull darkness of an average room. Back in the real world, Blaze immediately tripped over a kneeling mat, sprawling forward. He managed to tuck and roll as if that had been his plan all along, but with no one there to witness it, the victory felt hollow. He pressed his palms against his eyes, wanting to groan. He hadn't run out of shadows. He hadn't been forced out by a nethermancer either. Instead, it had been the locking out of the Odosein. 
How had the monsoon gotten their hands on someone with the power? Had they turned a knight traitor? Or, much like the current rash of sorcerers, did they have a secret training ground of their own? As he took a well-deserved moment to mull all the ways that life was unfair, he spotted a silver lining to his predicament. The room he was in also had windows high up on its walls. Like before, they were too high to get to, but the moon was angling through them from slightly to his right. Given the time of night, that meant the windows were facing south. Keeping one hand on the hilt of his sword, which he'd put away after dealing with the Nethermancer, he jogged toward the southern wall. He cracked open the door and peeked into the hallway. Light glowed to his left, strengthening in intensity. A pair of soldiers ran down the corridor bearing a lantern. Blaze let them pass. Once the lantern faded around a corner, he headed the opposite way, turning right at the intersection to resume heading south. Footsteps scraped ahead. Two dim figures spotted him jogging forward. Blaze drew both swords. Their purple light illuminated the gaunt face of Gladick and the warrior's frame of Beck. Blaze ran to meet them. What are you doing in here? Mitigating your incompetence, Gladick said. Did you find the Abaquen? Blaze sheathed his swords and removed the statue from his jabad. Would you like to sing my praises now, or wait until things calm down? Beck moved to touch the Abaquen, then stopped himself, as if it was too holy. That is it, the remnant that lifts the blight. Then our work here is done. Let's get out of here like it's filled with people trying to kill us. Gladick turned about and jogged down the passage. Nether wreathed his hand. Blaze cocked his head at Beck. Hang on, he can use the shadows, but I can't. Are you locking me out of them? The power slid from Blaze's shoulders like a water-bearer's pole. Beck gestured behind them. I didn't know it was you. All I knew was that a warlock was at play. I put a stop to everything I could feel. And nearly put a stop to my heart, too, you— Three soldiers spilled from a side room. Gladick blasted them into giblets before Blaze could draw his sword. He stepped over the bodies, blood sliding beneath his sandals. The next turn of the corridor took them to the expansive foyer containing the bastion's front doors. Though the room was the size of a small chapel, it was completely aglow with lanterns, which were borne, in turn, by a squadron of monsoon soldiers. They raised their spears and small round shields. Blaze drew his swords and charged. Looking puzzled and contemptuous, a dozen odd soldiers formed an inverted chevron, ready to tear him to pieces. Arrowheads of Nether whipped past Blaze's shoulder and thumped into the bodies of the soldiers. Every one of them fell to the ground at once. That looked like they practiced it. Blaze vaulted over a still-twitching corpse and threw open one of the oversized doors. 
There was shouting going on from within the bastion, but the night was peaceful with the song of crickets. They ran along the thin strip of land fringing the fortress. The icy canoe rested in the shallows, fog swirling about its edges. It looked a little melty, but Gladick solved that with a wave of his hand, the ether solidifying the boat's underside. They climbed aboard and launched off, Blaze paddling while Beck and Gladick watched for threats. I was led to believe you were so good at stealing that you could filch a man's own shadow, Gladick said. Then why is it that we currently have an entire palace attempting to hunt us down? Because those cheating bastards tried to stop me from taking their stuff, Blaze said. They used traps and things, completely unsporting. One wonders whether... Gladig was interrupted by a streak of nether hurtling toward them from the bastion walls. Gladig lifted his hand, meeting it with a wedge of ether. Blaze had his back turned to the conflagration, but the light of the impact sparkled over the water. Gold specks lit up around Beck as he clamped down on the enemy nethermancer. An arrow plunked into the water to starboard, followed by one to port. Blaze risked a look at Gladick. Mind putting a stop to that? Gladick forked his fingers, loosing ethereal missiles toward the battlements. Someone screamed. Gladick cried out in surprise. Impossibly. A flock of shadows was flying toward them from the walls, in direct defiance of the Odosain. Beck's mouth fell open in shock as Gladick released a barrage of ether toward the incoming attack. Beck gathered up motes of the stream, shaping them for use, but it was already too late. Shadow and light met in the air like a thunderstorm on a summer night. Yet just as it looked like every piece had been countered, a follow-up strike of Nether speared into the water, vanishing from sight. It punched through the bottom of the boat in a spume of water. With a series of cracks, like a toppling tree, the ice canoe splintered to pieces. Blaze plunged into the lukewarm moat. He kicked hard for the surface, knowing it wouldn't help, that the Zekioko would begin eating him within seconds. His head broke free. Beck rose beside him, clutching uselessly at the remaining chunks of ice, which were far too small to try to ride. They'd crossed most of the moat, but were still fifty feet from the earthworks. They'd be skeletons long before they made it. Then again, he didn't have to swim, did he? Not when he could slip into the safety of the shadows and run across the water. He still had the Abaquen safe in his jabad. All it would take to get out of the moat was to leave Beck and Gladick behind. He reached for the nether. Chips of gold spun around his head, distracting him for half an instant. They felt closer than ever before, as if he could reach out and hold them in his hand. Lights flashed below the surface of the moat. At first, Blaze thought these were the silvery Ziki Oko converging on their meaty targets, but the lights were too bright. And rather than zipping toward the humans, 
They were plowing into the hand-sized shapes that had been coming toward the three of them. The Zekioka were ripped into clouds of scales and blood. Gladik couldn't possibly hit every single one of the fish, but the ones he missed were swerving course, chomping down on the gobs of raw flesh and sinking bone. The constant strobing of the ether seemed to confuse others, sending them wandering unsteadily away. Gladik emerged with a gasp. Swim, you idiots! Blaze kicked his feet, grabbing the paddle he'd dropped when the enemy sorcerer had destroyed their boat. Ether flew about on all sides, like vengeful fairies that had decided to take to the water and make the fish pay for every bad thought they'd ever had. Swimming hard, Blaze kept the nether in his hand the whole way, ready to roll into the shadows if the Zikioko broke through the melee of light, blood, and guts. It was all so distracting that he frowned in surprise when he reached out for another stroke and touched solid bricks. He scrambled up the wall so fast he couldn't remember having done it. Beck looked to be all right, but Gladick was having trouble getting up the wall. Blaze lowered the paddle. Gladick grabbed it, and Blaze pulled him up. Back the way they'd come, pale hunks of fish bobbed so thickly on the water you could practically have walked across them. The moat began to boil, as if the whole damn thing were suspended over a campfire. But that was just the Ziki Oko eating their own. Their canoe was right where they'd left it, tied to the metal pin in the wall. They dropped into it and headed directly away from the bastion. Horns were already sounding behind them. What is the matter with you? Gladick demanded. Blaze half turned, still paddling, but before he could defend himself, Gladick gestured in Beck's face. You were supposed to be neutralizing the sorcerers. I employed my ability as I have been trained, Beck said. That's never happened before. I must have missed one of them. Fine time for your first failure to occur right as we were sailing across a sea of monsters. You wrote me all you want. I did my duty. Figuring that the gates would be a swarm with people disinclined to let them through, Blaze cut south through the canals of the merchants and aristocrats, the steep-sided hills looming above them. Horns blatted from all about the city, summoning and directing patrols. Lanterns and candles flared to life across the island. Blaze paddled past the manors, water dripping from his hair and clothes after his dip in the moat, and entered a market district. As they sliced past a dock, a man raised a lantern high above his head. There they are! I see the hari! A black bolt whisked into the civilian's chest. He dropped on his rear, still holding up the lantern, face drooping like he'd just lost a bet. But his cry was taken up by others, who poured across the dock, pointing at the canoe and yelling for guards. A high-pitched horn squealed from nearby. How curious, Gladick said. To them, their horn is a call to brave action. To us, it is a warning to flee for our miserable lives. Yet it is the same sound to us all.
You should really write that down, Lay said. I'd hand you some parchment, but I appear to be occupied with saving our foolish hides. As they crossed an intersection of canals, a white war canoe rushed at them from their port side. Gladick hauled it with a hammer of nether. Its crew yelled out in anger, paddling the wounded vessel over to the closest dock before it could sink. Another couple of minutes and they were hustling along through the slums of rafts. The people there watched them glumly, but did so in darkness, unwilling or unable to waste a candle. A few of them even looked hopeful. The rebels might have taken the city, but the city hadn't necessarily taken to the rebels. The way things had been going, Blaze expected to reach the city's nets and come face to face with a full-fledged armada. But as they exited the clusters of banana trees, they looked out on open water. Gladick sliced through the fishnets with a blade of nether. As Blaze paddled them past, ether glimmered on the water, knitting the slashed nets back together. He lifted an eyebrow at Gladick. How considerate of you. By mending the net, it will be more difficult for them to determine which way we went. And for a second there, I thought you might want to save the city's poor from being gobbled by Zekioko. Blaze steered the canoe back into the wilds of the swamps. The city was lost to the trees behind them. They didn't see any sign of pursuit, but wary of enemy nethermancers tracking them down, they didn't pull ashore on a random island until well after midnight. Blaze shook out his arms, then handed back the carving of the gecko with its tail wrapped around the two bones. Well, does everything seem to be in order? The knight turned the figure over in his hands. Dots of stream materialized around him, disappearing as he put them to use. It's the Abba Quinn, and it's functional. And that's all you need. You can free Dante with this. Eck cupped the statue in his hands. I can do as I've been trained. I can't promise it will work. Is the process of beliching someone that much different than blighting them? If this was known, don't you think Bel Era would have been the one to tell you? Or not, tell me, while lording her knowledge over me. Blaze knew Beck was right. In fact, he'd known the answer to the question before he'd even said it out loud. Yet he'd felt compelled to ask anyway. Now that they had the Abba Quen in hand, nothing stood between them and Dante. Ostensibly speaking, this was a very good thing but it also meant there was nothing left between them and potential failure. Plan, then. Where's Dante? Gladick closed his eyes and touched his brow. He is presently some distance to the east. I would estimate fifty miles, and perhaps more. He has been traveling that way for two days now. Blaze tilted back his head, envisioning the lay of the land. Not a whole lot over that way, is there? Other than the odd village. 
Perhaps the Aiden Rane is using Dante to collect more souls from the hinterlands, while the Lich sees to the larger populations. Gladick lowered himself to his bedroll. We will begin our pursuit in the morning. We may talk as we travel. Reasonable an idea as this was, Blaze couldn't get to sleep for a long time. Even then, he couldn't tell if he was awake or dreaming of being awake. He got up at first light feeling impossibly groggy. But he knew getting the paddle going would get his blood moving as well. Besides, now wasn't the time to be weak. He continues to travel east, Gladick said, as they gathered up their gear. Somewhat to the south as well. If he keeps at it much longer, he's going to bump right into the hell-painted hills. Blazer's head was so muddled he could feel his heartbeat in his ears, yet the thought that came to him was as crisp and shiny as cut steel. What if that is where he's headed? For what end? To assault it. The Odosain could destroy him without suffering a single loss. I don't know, but it feels wrong. The White Lich wouldn't send him to the Spires to die. If that's his destination, then they have a plan to undermine it or to destroy it. A plausible suggestion. The spires represent one of the last threats to the Lich's power over Tanaritain. He may not wish to expand his conquest to other lands until he secured every corner of his own. A pit was opening in Blazer's stomach. He decided to fill it with hard work. He loaded up the canoe and took up the paddle. It was another warm morning, and he soon discovered the mosquitoes had been at his legs overnight. Sir Berk, Gladick said once they'd gotten their start of the journey silence out of the way. Dante Galand is extremely dangerous. Although it would please me if you do not repeat this to him, I believe he may be the most potent nethermancer on the continent. How can we help you to confront him? Beck rested his hand on the gunwale. None of his warlock tricks will make any difference once he's been bound by the Odosain. I can do that at some distance, but I'll need to be closer to restore his soul. You can help me in several ways, by making sure he doesn't run, by stopping anyone else from attacking me as I close on him, and by making sure that there aren't any surprises. In that case, I may construct an Andrak or two in order to provide us with more flexibility. When you deploy the Abaquen and transfer the part of your remnant to him, how long does the process take? And what does it entail? The process should only take a few seconds. I'll use the Odosain to locate Dante's connections to the ether. But rather than using my power to shut down his axis, I'll use it to create a link to my own light. Normally, this remnant would be closed to me, sealed away by the strength of the owner's will. But the Abaquen works as a key to a lock 
or a knife to an oyster shell. All I have to do is touch it with the stream to bring it to bear. It will cut through his resistance on its own. This done, I will connect my remnant to his and permit mine to flow forth. At last, I'll stop the flow before too much has left me and I accidentally blight myself. But you've never done this before, have you? Lay said. What makes you so sure that you can? Beck gazed back at him. You're worried for your friend. You should be. But don't be afraid of my inexperience. Nearly everyone else who's ever done this was doing it for the first time, too. Shouldn't you at least practice? We might only have the one shot at this. The knight grimaced as if dealing with some visceral pain he knew he could never get rid of. He removed the abaquen from his jabat and lowered his head. Within moments, golden splinters swam before his face. He sent them spinning toward Blaze. They hit him with the clapping sensation of the Odosein. But rather than being cut loose from the nether, his awareness of the shadows expanded, as if he'd emerged from a forested hillside onto a clear ridge. Peck detached a hair-fine thread of stream from what he had remaining and sent it to the Abaquen. It disappeared into the yellow ivory of the gecko. A dream-like knife struck the center of Blazer's guts. But there was no pain, only the initial shock that precedes it. Right now, either of us could open our remnant to the other, Beck said. All that's needed is to open the barrier. It will feel like a lid or a plug. Can you feel it? Blaze reached inside himself. He was expecting to grope about blindly and eventually give up, probably while swearing. Yet he was drawn toward the ether within himself, the same way he was drawn back to earth after jumping in the air. His mind brushed against a tap. He focused on it. His faint touch was enough to begin to pull it loose. The connection dissipated like a drop of blood in turbid waters. Peck exhaled sharply. The hard part isn't the ritual. It's finding someone who can do it. Blaze touched his torso in the soft spot just below the breastbone. Cold sweat had sprung up across his body. Appreciate the demonstration. Gladick stirred in the aft of the canoe. This raises a final point. We have discussed how we will attempt to enact the ritual, but we have not discussed what we'll do if we fail. Blaze shoved the paddle into the water. Eck just told you that we won't. He told us that any failure would not be due to inexperience. But there is the matter of Dante himself. He will fight against us, and he has shown a marked capacity to win. If he gets away, then we'll come after him again. We remain uncertain that the ritual can even be performed on a lich. If Beck makes his attempt and learns that it cannot be done, what then? Same as always. 
we regroup and come up with another plan. Such as what? You see, Gladick, I don't know yet. If I did know the solution, I'd skip the whole part where we fail and go right to the success. We must allow ourselves to carefully think this through, the old man said. We learned of this solution through the Odosein, an institution which has resisted the aid in Rane for hundreds of years and knows his ways better than anyone else in the world. If they don't know how to lift the blight from a lich, who might we seek to learn from instead? Is the white lich the only lich who's ever lichd? Surely someone somewhere in the world can teach us. And if we spend months chasing down this ghost, the lich will have time to swallow Malon, Gask, Narashtivik, and all of the lesser kingdoms. Our new knowledge will be wasted, for by then our foe will wield the power of a god. Then we won't go anywhere. We'll hunt down the other liches and experiment on them until we work it out. With whose remnant? If Beck expends his experimenting on another lich, who will be left to— Blaze stopped paddling, twisting about to get a good look at the old man. What are you trying to convince me of, Gladick? That sometimes things don't work out the way you planned? Because I feel like that might be the very definition of being alive. You are looking at this from your heart. For once— Gladick's voice didn't carry any judgment or scorn. The heart is a brave leader. It inspires us to blaze trails the mind would be too fearful to start down on its own. But if the heart is brave, it is also blind. If we are to avoid the end of all we hold dear, we must turn over commands to our minds. Only they have the cold clarity to see a way out from the chasm that opens before us. They stared at each other. Flies buzzed among the trees. Frogs croaked from the reeds. Some things lived, while other things died. If the ritual fails, we'll kill him, Lay said. We'll kill him, and then we'll make our run at the White Lich and be damned. Is that what you want to hear? It is not a matter of it being what I wish to hear. It is only a matter of what must be said. Blazer's heart wanted to argue, but his mind had already seen what they were facing. He could blind himself to it readily enough. People did that all the time, telling themselves what they wanted to hear, what was easy or flattering or comfortable. That was why kings told themselves their blood made them divine, and hence the serfs their slaves. Why fathers filled themselves with rum until they found room in their stomach to swallow the idea that it was better to walk away. Why children and dogs were beaten for their own good. Why so little ever got done, and so much was let to fall apart. 
He could convince himself it was bound to work out. That even if it didn't work out, they'd find another way. Yes, he could lie to himself easily enough. He, like everyone, had been doing it his whole life. But he knew that if he did so now, when they met again in the mists, Dante would curse him for it. Blaze picked up his paddle and carried on. The next two days were of the worst kind, work and worry in equal measure, with no good cheer or comfort to salve the day's many stings, and the only relief to be had in unrestful sleep. It was enough to make Blaze wish that nethermancers had a way to let you excise the memories you didn't want, or to allow you to exist and function for a given period without retaining any memory of that time. But no, they were too busy playing with their damn rats. Meanwhile, Gladick claimed that Dante hadn't moved position, meaning that he had now spent three full days parked on or near the border of the hell-painted hills. If the White Lich had sent him to destroy the spires, why would he dawdle there? Awaiting reinforcements? Or had he entered the hills only to be struck down by the corrosion, and was now lying in a state somewhere between death and undeath, beyond all aid? For as much paddling as he did that day, Blaze found himself almost unable to eat. Even the ripe bananas they had taken from passing trees felt too dry to be swallowed. He ate anyway, forcing the mush down with the glum drudgery of climbing a mountain, or, for that matter, of paddling for days across an endless swamp. With the sun ripening to a bloated red, they put in at one of the islands. Gladig estimated they were still ten to twenty miles away, but there was no talk of lighting a fire that night. Gladig seated himself in their bare-bones camp. He may not be alone. In the morning, I will create an andrak to see what lies before us. If he is in the company of many blighted, or the Aedan Rani himself, we will bide our time until an opportunity presents itself. Or for us to create one. Blaze poked at the ground with a stick. This still feels strange. Like it might be a trap. It might well be. Would that make any difference? To my determination, no. But it probably makes a big difference in our chances of being fed to the fish and subsequently crapped out across several acres of swamp. It might well be a ruse. However, the Aedan Rane is typically more sophisticated than that. His every action contains many layers, with contingencies for every reaction that he can foresee. I suspect he has sent Dante to pursue a legitimate goal of some kind, while designing the venture in such a way that it can become a trap if we attempt to interfere. They talked a while longer, weighing different approaches. Once it became clear that they were just rehashing the same tactics over and over, Blaze and Gladick fell into silence, revealing that Beck was snoring and 
probably had been doing so for some time. The two of them stared into the blank center of the camp where a fire ought to have been. I have been thinking, Gladick said. Is the quantity of ether and nether within the world fixed and finite? Or is more created over time, as the mill of the heavens grinds on? Blaze rubbed his eye. Interesting question. Let me offer a counterproposal. Who gives a shit? The question has deep implications. If the supply of light and shadow is finite, then, as more and more people are born, then more and more ether and nether will be drawn up as their remnants and traces, and hidden away from conventional sorcery when these people die. There would reach a point then, when it has all been converted and lost in the shadow world, with none remaining in the physical realm. Thus sorcery would pass from the world. Whereas if more light and shadow is added to the earth, there will reach a point when everything is utterly saturated by it. Once it is in every particle of our surroundings and ourselves, I think it possible that we may all be born to the talent of magic. Blaze eyed him. That's what you're thinking about right now. Tomorrow, everything hangs in the balance, and your only concern is what the world's going to be like a million billion years from now. What else should occupy my mind at this time? Worry and regret? That'd be the human response, yeah. Regret is the most useless of all human emotions. It does nothing but fester, and hence should be lanced like a boil on the soul that it is. I have made mistakes, but I do not regret them. That's a fine way to pardon yourself for your crimes. Gladick smiled, amused. Perhaps it is. Even so, I will not use this time for regrets. I am old, Blaze. Even if we survive the morrow, I only have so many years left to me. Before long I will die. In the past lands, I won't think to ask such questions as whether people like me will eventually become extinct, or if we will become the norm. In the mists, I'll no longer care about these questions. And in the world, see, I will have no need to ask them. The old man gazed into the night. A thick darkness punctuated by tree-blocked starlight and the fireflies blinking over the water. The only time to find my answers is now, in this body, on this earth. So that is what I will do. Sounds great, Blay said. While you're answering the mysteries of life, I'm going to sleep my ass off. He wriggled his blanket into comfortable lumps beneath him. Galadic didn't lie down for another twenty minutes, yet somehow the old man fell asleep before Blaze did, making the occasional faint 
whinnying noise, as if he were dreaming of being chased by ghosts or of meeting his gods and being judged by them. Blaze rolled back and forth, seeking the posture that would allow him to be unconscious for a few nice hours. When he couldn't take it anymore, he got up, slinging one of his sword belts over his shoulder, and walked to the edge of the island. He crouched down, resting his forearms across his knees. The moon was almost full, and it glinted on the water in small patches where it was able to leak through the trees. On most occasions, the swamp felt like a trial to be endured, and occasionally a nightmare to be terrified of. But on that night, it finally felt peaceful. The day to come felt like a dream he hadn't yet lived. What would he do if they failed? Would he really return to fighting the White Lich? At that point, what would it matter? What if he just went back to Narashtavik? It would be easy enough. It was early summer, and the sailing would be good. He could ask Naren for a trip back on the Sword of the South, or make his way to Kavana and book passage from there. A few weeks on the warm seas with a jug of grog didn't sound so bad. He'd make port in Narashtavik and take a stroll over to the citadel, and he didn't think he would even tell them what had happened in the south. Not right away, anyway. But would go straight to Min, and her jaw would drop, and she'd wave her hand in front of her mouth like she did when she was shocked in a good way, a little double tap, as if she was afraid something was going to fall out of it. And then they'd ride away, not to Pocket Cove, but to somewhere similarly remote. Galador Rift, maybe, although that was too central. Somewhere in the foothills of the Wodens, then. A lake within a forest. Together they'd build a cabin and work the land. A nice little farm. After a year or two, when they were all settled in and didn't have to work quite as hard, they'd start to have children. Two girls and two boys, he thought. Might take some doing to convince men, since at that point the outside world would likely be coming to an end. But there was always the chance that it would be stopped somewhere, or stall out and take dozens or even hundreds of years for the blighted to scour every nook and cranny of the land. And even if the world was all crashing down around them, why not live out the rest of their time together as beautifully as they could? The more he thought about it, the more he could see it. The trout feeding on the surface of the lake. The screens or filters they'd have to build into the chimney to break up the smoke to stop it from being seen. They'd have to do funny things with the crops, too. Maybe they'd plant their seeds at random in the rich, cool earth beneath the trees, walking the thin line between tending them enough to produce decent yields but not making the crops so orderly that they could be seen from a mile's distant ridge. Min was plenty smart, though. They could make it work. It wouldn't all be work, either. The family could explore together. 
Stuff a bunch of acorns into a padded cloth and sew it up into a ball and kick it around. Swim across the lake and then sleep in the summer sun. Sing songs to each other and tell stories in front of the hearth as the snow fell outside and venison stew bubbled on top of the stove. Teach the kids to farm and fish and hunt like his own dad never had. Blaze knew he was indulging himself. But this could never happen. That the White Lich would destroy them much sooner than this. And that Min would never betray her vows to Pocket Cove by abandoning it. But he let himself fall deeper, allowing himself this one minute to exist in peace. His oldest son would be named Cal, and he'd have blonde hair like his father, with the serious mind of his mother. Once the boy had a few years behind him and could handle one without hurting himself, Blaze would shape a short bow for him and show him to use it, sending him out alone that summer to hunt for small game. Once the boy got good at this, he'd start to pester Blaze about when he could go with his father on deer hunts, and Blaze would always tell him the same two things. When you're a little older, when you're a little stronger. It was the second winter since Cal had started his training. The day before had been their first good storm, leaving four inches of snow that would show every track. Blaze got up before dawn to stir up the embers in the stove, then went to Cal's bed and shook him awake. Get your bow. Cal's face, initially a portrait of grumpiness, now shined so brightly, Blaze was half afraid it'd wake up the others. The boy hurriedly dressed himself in his coats and fur-lined trousers and his boots. They braced one end of their bows between their feet, bending and stringing the weapons, then went outside. The cold was like a slap to the face. The clouds had gone away, if only for a little while, and the stars twinkled madly, gazing at their own reflection in the lake. The air smelled like wood smoke and snow. Blue shadows painted everything, and with the starlight on the snow, even the darkness seemed bright, as though they'd stepped out the cabin door and into the netherworld. It's cold, Cal whispered. That's just the frost demons taking shelter in a warm, open mouth. Blaze reached down and wrapped the boy's scarf firmly about his mouth and chin so he could barely talk. Much better. Blaze had his bow with him, along with a sword, but he intended to use neither. He led them over the trail they'd worn through the woods to the east, boots squeaking in the powder. Snow clung heavily to the needles of the pines. Blaze kept an eye out for deer, but if he saw any yet, he'd pretend to ignore them. The boy needed to be out of sight of the house, aware of the full vastness of nature and their vulnerability within it. They topped the eastern ridge and dropped down into the valley below. Two miles from the cabin, Blaze grabbed Cal by the shoulder and hunkered down. The boy crouched beside him. Blaze pointed through the trees. Two hundred yards away, 
a deer, either a doe or a young buck, walked slowly through the pines. Keeping low, Blaze circled downwind, Cal sticking to his back like a limpet. The snow muffled their steps. Blaze stopped a hundred feet away, which was as close as he dared to creep up on it, but still too far away to make for a good shot, especially with Cal's lighter draw. But that night, they had luck on their side. The deer, a buck with two points on one side and a spike on the other, wandered straight toward them for ten yards, then started to veer toward their right. Blaze nudged Cal and gave him a nod. The boy gave him a look of half panic. Blaze stomped down a smile. If you think I'll be mad if you miss, imagine how angry I'll be if you don't take a shot. Cal's eyes darted to the side in thought. He thought too much, definitely his mother's son. At last, he lifted his bow and sighted down the shaft of the arrow. His breath streamed away from his mouth. He loosed his arrow. It struck the deer with a thud. The animal jerked forward, legs striking at the ground as if it thought the earth had bitten it. Blaze hopped to his feet, drawing back his arrow, but the buck went down, sliding in the snow. He turned to Cal to give him a good word, but the boy's face was so rapt, Blaze's throat closed. He set his hand on the boy's shoulder. The vision blurred. Blaze tumbled forward, no longer in control of his own mind. The woods and the snow and the night disappeared, replaced by swamp and mangroves and daylight. Two women paddled a canoe through the water, their bodies pale-skinned and long-limbed. Blaze could tell at once that they were soldiers. Not from the strength of their shoulders and arms, which was common among Tenarian canoers, but from the dignity of their bearing. The shape of their noses and angle of their jaws marked them as sisters. Everything else about them marked them as Tenarians. But their clothes were simple hides, and their hair had been worked into basic braids and drawn behind their heads, a fashion Blaze hadn't seen in any Tenarian village or city. Everything about them looked to be from an earlier time. He was in the middle of a glimpse. The realization was so startling, Blaze was afraid it'd boot him out of itself, like when you became aware you were dreaming. Yet the vision moved on without a hiccup. The two women paddled forward, joking and laughing with each other, keeping a casual eye on the trees and the water. They spoke and traveled like they were out on a hunt, and they were armed enough for one too. But they made no stops to check for tracks or spoor, and they weren't watching their surroundings with the special attentiveness you'd typically show if you were searching for game. Before Blaze could make sense of that, the glimpse skipped forward. The sunlight was getting stretched out, and the two women were no longer joking or speaking, just paddling steadily, their faces composed in a martial mask. 
They made for a large island. The woman in the rear set down her paddle and picked up her spear. As the canoe skimmed into the reeds, the first woman took up her weapons too. She jumped clear as the boat smacked to a stop in the mud. Her sister leaped out beside her. Ducking low, they advanced through the high grass. Once they'd gained some ground, they ducked behind a tree, switched to their bows, and surveyed the way forward. After a moment, the first woman, who had done most of the joking earlier, and who appeared to be the older of the two, though they were both young, pointed ahead through a lane of trees. The younger woman leaned forward, then nodded. They crept forward with the stealth of wild cats, entering a shallow ravine. The floor was littered with bones. The two women glanced down at them, jaws hardening. Blaze had seen more than enough bones to recognize them as human, but they were much smaller than most of the ones he'd encountered. The air stank of death. At the end of the ravine, a shelf of rock sheltered a cave of unknown depth. The two sisters spread a few paces apart and advanced on the hole. They were still thirty feet away when long, dark legs unfolded from the cave and grabbed tight to the rock, dragging a nightmarish head and torso behind them. The thing that emerged looked partly human, but its rear legs were spiderish, while its front limbs were more supple, practically octopoidal. Its eyes were much too large, and its lips were permanently pulled back from its teeth, which looked more like sharp ridges of rock than anything human. The two women loosed their arrows. With frightening speed, the creature launched itself to the left, the arrows cracking against the rock. The monster jumped from the wall and skittered toward them, scattering bones with its pointed feet. Both women got off another shot, one arrow passing wide while the other struck the creature in the chest. This didn't seem to hurt it too much, but it paused the thing for just long enough for the soldiers to throw aside their bows and ready their spears. The creature lashed out of them, its arms snapping forward like tentacles, tipped by curved claws. A diagonal line of blood popped across the older woman's stomach. She ignored it, jabbing at the monster's middle. The enemy yanked itself back, and the younger woman circled to its right, harrying it with her spear. The thing moved with supernatural quickness, its claws snapping at them like whips. But the sister soldiers fought like they shared the same mind, one swinging back from an attack while the other pressed in from the flank. The reach of their spears saved them from anything worse than a few shallow cuts. Methodically, they inflicted one stab after another. Nothing mortal, but the creature was bleeding yellow fluid everywhere. It was only a matter of time before they wore it down. It seemed to realize this, too. It backed toward the crevice it had emerged from. 
The younger woman lunged forward, looking to impale it. A bone turned under her front foot. Her ankle went out from beneath her, spilling her to the rocky ground. The beast slung itself forward. Claws tore into the woman's body. A blade-like foot pierced through her chest. The older of the two screamed and charged. The thing tried to back up, but its limbs were embedded and entangled in its victim. It stumbled to the ground, belly exposed. The soldier stabbed it, then again. It curled on itself, arms flailing. She didn't stop stabbing until it wasn't moving, except for the blood oozing from its wounds. She used the butt of her spear to push the carcass out of range, then kneeled next to her sister. The younger woman was blinking rapidly, hands clutched to the stab wound, to her chest. Blaze knew at a glance she wouldn't leave the island. The older woman tried to pick her up, but she'd been cut up herself, and her legs didn't have the oomph. She ran her hands down her face. Stay here. I'll find something to drag you back with. Don't go. The younger woman grabbed at her sister's ankle. Don't leave me here with it. The action seemed to suck the last strength from her. She fell back, breathing shallowly and quickly. A ripple of despair passed over the older woman's face. I'll stay. The younger soldier died before her sister would have made it to the canoe. The older soldier sat with her head rested on her knees for a while then stood and went back to the canoe, returning with a flap of canvas. She put the body of the younger woman on the canvas and dragged her back to the boat, lifting her inside. When this was done, she went back to the ravine, used a bone knife to cut off the creature's head, and brought this to the canoe as well. The glimpse leaped forward to the woman returning to her village and showing them the severed head of the child-eating beast. Her people cheered until she showed them the body of her sister. Things skipped ahead again to a feast spread across the village dock. The soldier ate a little, but mostly drank. One person after another came to talk to and thank her. She began the night stone-faced, but ended it able to laugh, if only a little. The feast ended. The vision hopped from one moment of time to the next. The woman, out on patrol by herself in her canoe, trailing her fingers in the water and yanking them out just as the Ziki Oko started to arrive turning down requests to eat with others at the group table, and eventually taking all of her meals alone in her own house. Lying in bed with her back to the door, as someone knocked on the other side. Another feast arrived. Somehow, Blaze knew it had been one year since the woman had returned to the village with the head of the child-eater. This time she ate and drank and laughed with the others. 
One by one, they staggered off to their homes or fell asleep next to each other on the docks. When she was at last alone, the woman went back to her home. She picked up her spear and her bow and a bag. She placed these in her canoe, climbed in, and shoved off. She paddled into the darkness. The glimpse receded, blackening around the edges. Blaze strained to hold onto it. But it was gone before he saw what had come of the woman. He thought he knew, though. He thought that she'd never come back. He was alone on the banks of the island. The air shimmered like curtains in a gust of wind. A few last specks of stream hung in the air in front of him. He reached for them with his hand. They faded before he could touch them, yet he knew with uncanny clarity how they'd delivered him the glimpse. If all Nether and Ether were connected like Era claimed, then even when a person died, echoes of them persisted, because the bits of light and shadow they'd carried with them were still out there, mixed in with everything else. You'd never know it, though, because reassembling those scattered fragments from across the world would be impossible. So those echoes and memories were lost forever. Except for those who had the Odosein and could tap into everything at once. Do that, and you got a glimpse. He didn't know why you were shown a particular glimpse or the full implications of this knowledge. Could you search for specific people? If all Nether was connected, did that mean it was possible to stand in Narashtvik and manipulate shadows in Bressel? Yet he felt awed, as if he'd been granted a holy revelation. Worn out at last, he made his way back to their camp. Beck snored on. Gladick's eyes seemed to gleam as if they were open. But when Blaze looked again, they were shut tight. When he dreamed, he dreamed of the sister sailing away from the feast in her canoe. When he woke, he still didn't know where she'd gone. The day began the same as the others, but they hadn't been on their way for two hours when Gladick pulled them off course and onto an island. He canvassed the ground with his back hunched, murmuring to himself under his breath. Failing to find enough traces there, he moved onto the next island. After a minute of hunting around, he took a knee, gesturing in the air. A miniature Andrak unfurled, as small as the one they'd worked with before. They returned to the canoe, taking the demon with them. Gladick examined each island they passed. Spotting one that sported crumbling stone foundations, he directed them to it. There, he pieced together a second knee-high Andrak, returning with it to the boat. It isn't far now, 
Gladig held his fingers to his left temple. Be on the lookout for Blighted. The last thing we need is for him to know that we are coming. Blaze kept both eyes on the water ahead of them. He was so intent on his task that he was taken completely by surprise when the forest fell away and the hell-painted hills burned before them. The fiery patterns in the black stone were as subtle as a half-naked woman cartwheeling down the market street. But that day, Blaze's eyes were pulled two hundred yards north. There, a straight, light brown line extended from the swamps and into the heights, heading directly into the interior. Blaze's mouth fell open. Lyle's balls. It would have been nice of Era to tell us they had a road. Or where are we supposed to figure that out for ourselves, too? They'd stopped moving, but Gladick reached for the gunnel for support. You have been to the silent spires, you buffoon. There is no road to it. At least not yet. Blaze glanced between Gladick and the strip of clear earth. That's why he's here, isn't it? To use his earth-moving talents to create an untainted path through the hills. So the Lich and his army can march on the spires without dying before they get there. Would that even work? The Aedan Rane must believe so. He can easily test his theory by sending a few blighted along the road. Should they survive, his invasion will follow. Beck's hand moved to the hilt of his sword. We have to stop Dante from reaching the spires. If we can't unblight him, then we must destroy him. We'll bring him back. Blaze could hear the tightness in his own voice. And then we'll kill the fucking lich. They retreated a short way into the swamp, bringing the canoe into some shrubs at the edge of an island. Gladic gestured toward the distant road, nodding to his andrak. The pair of demons slipped into the water, swimming across it and emerging on the grassy strip bordering the wasteland. As soon as the Star Eater set foot on the bare rock, they seemed to blink from sight, the black of their bodies nearly matching the color of the ground beneath them. A slight ripple across the shinier parts of the rock was the only sign they were moving. The three humans sat in the canoe in silence. Every time a dragonfly buzzed past, Blazer's eyes locked to it, watching for any indication it was under Dante's control. An hour later, Gladick lifted his head, gazing into the hills. The two little demons returned to the swamp, surfacing next to the boat. Gladick furrowed his brow, silently conversing with them. Dante is working on the end of the road some two miles from here. He appears to be alone. Blaze took up his paddle. Shall we? Not yet, I think. Better to wait until later today, when he has exhausted his power extending the road. If he attempts to go elsewhere, I will know of it. Much as he wanted to rush in then and there, 
Blaze had to agree to the tactical sensibility of the plan, which did little to make the ensuing wait any less excruciating. Gladic sent one Andrak back into the wasteland to observe Dante from a distance, assigning the other to patrol the swamps around the canoe to make sure nothing was creeping up on them. Mid-afternoon, the first Andrak dashed out of the hills and crossed to the canoe. Gladic nodded as it passed its thoughts or memories to him, or however it was that the priest communicated with his bloodthirsty demons. Dante seems to have finished for the day, Gladic said. The time is now. Blaze's pulse doubled. Beck, can I make a request? You may, Beck said. While you're connected to him, can you also make him shit himself? The knight frowned. I don't understand. Do you think his condition has filled his bowels with poisons? I think we'll never get a chance like this again. Gladick clenched his hand in front of his chest. Before we go forth, remember what will happen if we let ourselves get killed. We will lose Beck, who may be the only knight of Odosain in the country who is able to venture outside of the spires. We will lose the Abaquen delivering it to the hands of the enemy. We will lose our own lives, and with them, Tanara Tain will lose one of its few remaining hopes. And when Dante completes his path to the silent spires, and the Aedan Rane tears down the towers, the land's last hope will fall with them. Blaze smiled hard. Do you think I don't understand the cost of failure? I fought more wars than you've started, and I'm ready for this one. Gladick nodded once. Blaze brought the canoe into the boundary of the swamp. Once the others were out, he dragged it into the grass and flipped it upside down. He got a glass jar from his pack. The bearded crab sat in the bottom resigned to its new lot in life. Perhaps he should have kept it just in case, but Blaze wasn't sure that he'd be back. And if he did return, one way or another, he wouldn't need it anymore. Besides, if he was about to die, it would be nice to have done one more act of kindness before the end, however small. He removed the perforated lid set the jar on its side and waited for the crab to scuttle out onto the bank. It vanished into the grass. Blaze stepped into the hell-painted hills. Heat baked from the black rock like a brick oven. A hot breeze blew down to the swamps. Blaze had already been sweating, but he was now dripping with it, blasted from below by the stone and above by the sun. Gladick waved his hand, shading them with a flattened circle of nether. This helped just enough. Blaze made for the road. After the toe-grabbing crags of the warped landscape, walking on the hard-packed earth felt like the difference between swimming in stormy seas and canoeing over placid waters. In the steady wind, 
some of his sweat began to cool. As they neared the crown of the first hill, Blaze motioned the others down, then crawled forward until he was just past the top. The road continued through the valley, and the next hill, so smooth and straight it looked like it had been painted there by a Norrin god. He watched the landscape for a full minute, then backed up to the other side of the hill. No sign of him yet, he told Gladick and Beck. Or of anything else. Gladick pushed up his lower lip. You know him better than anyone. Does this feel correct to you? We've fought before. I'd advise you to assume that we're not going to take him by surprise. But as long as Beck strips the nether from him, all we've got to deal with is a half-decent swordsman. He crossed the ridge line again, heading down the slope, one hand resting on the hilt of a sword. Beck whispered to himself steadily, generating a trickle of the stream, which floated along beside him. The road leveled out momentarily, leading them past a snarled twist of rocks that grasped from the ground like broken fingers. Shadows flashed from the rocks. If the Nether had been headed straight for the three of them, Gladick might have been able to deflect it in time. Instead, the darkness plunged into the soil. The dirt fell away beneath Blaze's feet, sinking downward as if it were draining into the center of the world. They fell. Seventeen. The ground dropped away faster than they fell. Another few seconds, and Dante would stop what he was doing, allowing them to complete the process of what they were doing, and splat all over the solid rock at the bottom of the hole. Warlock! Beck reached out his arm. Splinters of gold streaked upward. The ground stopped vanishing beneath them. Blaze had expected something like that, had been hoping for it anyway, and landed on his feet, tucking into a roll. The strap snapped on one of his sandals, which flew away to the other side of the dark, circular pit. They were a good twenty feet down. Gladick was breathing in quick gasps. Ether flared, wrapping around his bloody shin and ankle. Catching a glimpse of bone, Blaze was extremely glad to be momentarily blinded as the light did its work. Gladick let out a shuddering sigh of relief. The ground beneath them glowed white. He swept his hand to the left, as if he were knocking a pile of dishes from a table. Slowly, the earth retook its original shape below them, elevating them back toward the surface. A face stuck out over the edge of the hole. The long black hair looked the same as ever but the rest of what Blaze saw made his guts clench tight. Dante's face was gaunter than Gladick's, and as eggshell white as the blighted. The eyes were sunken, switched from a grayish hue to a light and vivid blue. His body somehow looked more brittle, yet much tougher. 
like the trunk of a stunted mountainside tree that would still be clinging to its crag long after everyone alive today was long buried. You shouldn't have come here. Even his voice was different. There was a brassy ring to it that made Blaze feel like he'd been whacked in the head. You should have run away. Blaze stepped into his lost sandal, giving the broken straps a hasty knot around his calf. And you should have known I'm much too dumb to act with anything approaching reason. You saw that I was watching you, Gladick said. You conserved your strength while pretending to spend it. And when the demon withdrew, you moved to ambush us. You talk like I've committed treason, Dante said. But I've acted exactly in line with my orders. This brings you joy? Serving the Aedan Rane like a trained dog? Why wouldn't I be happy to perfect the world? I do not see perfect. I see enslavement. That's because your eyes are as cloudy as your urine, you gnarled old goat. History is the soil that all fights and wars grow from. That's why we're going to erase it. What? History? Dante snorted. Are your ears as weak as your eyes? Yes, we're going to erase history, along with everything else that divides people from each other. After a while of that, we might even be able to give them their free will back. With everyone united in worship of the Aedan Rane, who will be happy to execute you from a thousand miles away if you ever undermine his law. What's there going to be to fight about? But you would bring the world to the apocalypse for this? You would destroy everything? No, we'll leave plenty of trees and animals around. Those are more or less fine. It's the people who need a reset. Aron cursed us when his mill broke, and everything's been awful ever since. As for the apocalypse, we only need one of those, after which we get eternal harmony which doesn't sound as profound as it is. So I want you to take a second to contemplate the meaning of eternal. Dante paused like the master at a university. Got it. Now compare that to the current system of non-stop bloodshed and misery that's presently scheduled to go on until the end of time. If you support that, then I'll happily suggest that you are the real monster. Something small and frightened reached for Blaze's heart. He booted it aside. Sounds great, except for the part where you murder or blight every living soul, and the part where you can't guarantee that this Glorious eternal paradise will ever come about in the first place. How do you know the White Lich is telling you the truth? Do you really suppose you can trust a fellow who intends to kill literally everyone? 
I've heard him speak. He believes. He's had hundreds of years to plan this. And in a few more weeks, he'll have the power to achieve it. Dante's eerily blue eyes moved to Beck's sword. It was sheathed, but the swamp dragon horn hilt identified it at once as Odosein. Why exactly did you come out here? To kill me? No, probably not. If you'd worked out a sound method of attacking those like us, you would have used it against the Aiden Rane, both to break the main threat and in the hope that killing him would release me and the others from what he's made of us. It wouldn't, by the way. What's done is done. So if you aren't here to kill me, you're here to rescue me, aren't you? How? Did you think you could simply talk me out of serving the man who'll save the world? We have no such illusions, Gladick said. I know that when he takes you, he takes your will as well, much in the way a father would take a knife from a toddler much too young to use it. Then you'd have to undo the taking, wouldn't you? Dante laughed ringingly. You think you can reverse the will of the Aiden Rane? We can. Blaze took half a step forward. Over the course of their talk, Gladick had used the ether to return the earth to its original state, and they were now at ground level, standing twenty feet away from Dante. There's a way to unblight people. We can do the same for you. That's not possible. Why don't we try it and find out? Stay where you are. Dante lifted one hand, then slowly lowered it. How would you do this? Simple. Sort of. The lich has taken something vital from you. All we have to do- Silence! Gladick barred his arm across Blaze's chest. You must not tell him the process. He will relay it to his master, who will work to negate it from ever working again. What's it matter? We're about to turn him. After that, he won't want to tell the lich. And if it doesn't work, then there's no secret to expose to the white lich, is there? You're lying to me, Dante said. He was the only one among them that wasn't sweating. As unhealthy as he looked, he also looked capable of sitting in the hell-painted hills for thirty years without suffering the slightest discomfort. If you have no way to undo this, then there's nothing left to talk about. He took your remnant from you, didn't he? The bit of ether that's like your trace. That's what turned you into one of his underliches. By using the Odyssean, we can transfer a new remnant into you. Not if I resist you. Even he has limits. But the Aedan Rane is the only one who can take a trace or a remnant from the unwilling. 
unless you have the Abba Quen. Don't worry, your lord will know what it is. Dante frowned. Gaunt though his face was, it had become ageless. The wrinkles of sun and age wiped smooth. He turned and paced to his right, circling them. You really can do this, can't you? You found a way. Or at least you think you did. Don't act that surprised. Now let's get this over with. You'll thank us afterwards. I can't believe you actually think you're going to win. If the Lich lets you live to serve him, you're going to be so embarrassed about this. Have you always been this arrogant? Or did I not notice because it was usually turned against someone else? We're going to bring you back to who you were. You can't stop us and you don't have a choice. Please, go willingly. I've given it a lot of thought. And I'm going to tell you to go to hell. Blaze clenched his teeth. You huge idiot. We can save you. No, Dante said. You can't. Still pacing, and without turning toward them, Dante flung out his left hand. Golden splinters cracked from his body and fell to the ground. A storm of nether shot from his palm, roiling toward Gladic. Gladic shouted in surprise, throwing himself backwards as he met the darkness with a lightning-shaped prong of ether. The two forces boomed against each other, dispersing into ghostly ash. Half hidden behind the cloud, a black blade seared toward Beck. Beck's eyes flew wide. He tried to duck, but the blade swerved to match his motion. It spun through his neck. His head twirled to the dirt road, landing with a puff of dust. Choking in shock, Gladic hammered at Dante with paired streams of darkness and light. Dante opened his hand. With a casual gesture, he threw out a barrage of nether, stopping the streams in a sizzling collision. Blaze found his swords in his hands. He couldn't remember drawing them. Nether snapped up and down the black steel. His heart was so loud, he couldn't hear Gladic, who looked to be shouting something, Blaze took a step forward. Dante lifted his hands over his head. Stop this! Gladick let the nether twist in his hand. Blaze halted, swords angled from his waist. You killed him! Gladick's voice was shaky, suddenly old. How? Oh. Dante laughed. While you were racing back and forth across the swamps like such brave heroes, I was studying the Odossein and asking the Aiden Rane for everything he knew about it. Though he was close to an answer, he was missing a few key pieces. But thanks to my training at the Spires, I was able to fill in the gaps. It was challenging practicing against myself. I wasn't sure it was going to work until the moment I freed myself from
from the night's binds. That's why Beck couldn't protect us at the bastion, Blay said. It wasn't that he screwed up. The Lich must have told the sorcerers there how to break through the Odosain. But they weren't quite good enough to stop us. Gladick opened and closed his left hand. The Odosain has protected these lands against sorcerers for centuries. If it could be broken, someone would have done so long ago. Dante nudged Beck's head with his toe, rolling it so it faced them. One of the knight's eyes was coated with dust. I think he'd argue otherwise. The knights of Odosain used the stream to block or sever your connection to the Nether. But all they're doing is blocking the connection that's obvious to you. Which means they're undone by their own game, aren't they? I can't even begin to follow that, Blay said. You don't have to. You never have. All you've ever had to do is slap together a few ridiculous ideas and occasionally stick a sword in someone. Gladick crinkled his brow. Since all Nether is connected, as long as you can access your trace, you can use that to reach out to any other shadows as well. That's one way to do it, yes. Dante let his hands hang below his hips, Nether swirling around them like a typhoon-stirred sea. Anyway, your night's dead. You can't stop me from wielding the shadows. And if you're honest with yourselves, you'll admit that I can murder you both. When the opposite was true, you told me I had no choice and had to submit to you. So don't be a couple of hypocrites. Bow down to me. You have traveled far with me, Galand. You know that I would rather die than serve the Aedan Rani. Then it's a good thing he's more open-minded than you are. He's agreed to add you to the ranks of his lieutenants. He told me to kill Blaze, but I think if I deliver the both of you to him, he'll change his mind on that. I tell you for the last time that I will never serve. Quit your bullshit grandstanding. We're offering you power like no one's ever had. The power to reshape everything. To rebuild our world according to a grand plan, rather than to watch vain idiots brutalize each other over petty resentments. And if that isn't enough for you, how about this? We'll give you immortality, an eternity to learn and study and develop your skills. You know you've always wanted that. I did, and you're ten times as much of an asshole as I ever was. I have indeed wanted that. Always. Gladick's voice came out in a croak. 
but I have fought hard these last months to regain the pieces of my being that I paid in pursuit of such powers. I would rather die than walk any further down the path you offer. Oh, come on. A hundred years from now, you will look back at this moment and laugh at yourself. Dante swiveled his icy eyes to blaze. I know you hate the idea. I'm sure you think it's immoral, and that no outcome can justify what we have to do to achieve it. Blaze rested his hand on one of his swords, which he'd sheathed to prevent it from draining his trays. Revoking the freedom of the lives of everyone currently alive? Yeah, it's a little extreme. I'll tell you this. When he converts you, all of those feelings will go away. All of your guilt, your doubt, your fears. And you will be grateful to him for his gift. Are you saying this because you believe it yourself? Or because he's making you believe it? What difference does it make? Blaze met Dante's stare. I want to know who's telling me this. The friend I've had since before we could grow beards, or the man whose mind has been stolen by a maniac who means to kill everyone you've ever known. It's me. I'm still here. Are you? Then do you remember the time Callie sent us to investigate the thefts at Lanavar? The border town. Human merchants were reporting their wares going missing. People were blaming it on the Norrin. Callie was afraid the whole town was going to erupt in violence. Not just violence. Callie suspected King Modigan was wary that the humans were getting too close to seeing the Norrins as their equals, which would be trouble for the whole hunting Norrin down and enslaving them thing. If Modigan could provoke Lanavar into tossing out its Norrin, or better yet, massacring them, it'd secure Gaskin policy in the area for another generation. We traveled to Lanavar, interviewed the human merchants, along with the Norrin trappers and artists who traded with them. Eventually, the trail took us to a fellow named Bandon. Dante chuckled tinnily. He played dumb, but there was something off about him, so we started keeping tabs on him. A few nights later, he took his dogs out for a walk. He had this entire pack of them, little yappers that couldn't have weighed more than ten pounds apiece. The most useless things you've ever seen. And brought them into the city. While he waited in the old churchyard, his dogs snuck into the merchants' shops and stole everything they could carry in their mouths. I still don't believe it. If that fool had put as much effort into honest work as he did into training his dogs, he could have bought half the town. Blaze grinned, almost lost in the memory. But the face in front of him wouldn't let him forget. There's something I've always wondered. After Lyra died, 
we went our separate ways. Lived our own lives. Five years later, I hadn't so much as sent you a letter, but you were still trying to find me. Why? Why keep searching when at that point we'd spent more time as enemies than we had as friends? Dante tipped back his head, gazing into the punishing sun. His face hardened by the process that had turned him into something less and more than a man, softened with nostalgia and regret and pride. We'd done great things together. The end of the war destroyed that, tore us apart. But I wanted to believe that wasn't the end. That any tragedy can be undone, if you can set aside your anger and pain and reach out in hope. We can do that now. Come with us to the silent spires. Era can help you. We will remove this thing from you. It didn't have to end before, and it doesn't have to end now. You don't understand, Dante said. He almost sounded sad. It ended the instant you refused to kneel to the Aiden Rani. Shadows erupted from his hands, raging toward them in black malevolence. Galadic cursed, battering at them with the ether he'd kept close all the while. No one's mouth was open, yet Blaze heard screaming in his ears. He reached for his swords. He couldn't seem to draw them. It was like they'd been welded into their sheaths. His vision blurred. He turned and ran back down the road toward the swamp. Coward! Gladick shouted. Deserter! If the words were meant to shame him, They'd have to wait in line behind the army currently sieging Blazer's conscience. He sprinted onward, knees and elbows pumping, losing himself to the unique euphoria of running as fast as you can. A fine layer of sweat developed across his body. Footsteps smacked the ground. Gladick loped down the road after him, his long legs carrying him along the smooth dirt with a speed that seemed impossible for his years. Dante ran in his wake, hunched forward like a wolf before it makes its lunge. Nether shot from his hands. Without looking back, Gladick counted it with tridents of ether, the glittering dust of their combat falling behind them as they ran on. Blaze crested the hill. The swamp filled the horizons a humid haze lingering in the air above the trees. There would be no sanctuary there either, would there? But what else was there to do but keep going in the face of hopelessness? To see if some kindly god or turn of blind chance would take pity on your miserable life? He thundered down the incline, knees jarring. Two black shapes shot past his shins. The Andrak. They bounded past Gladick, light shining through their joyous grins, and threw themselves at Dante. Dante stopped and fell back, reaching for his limited supply of ether. 
Blaze thought Gladick might turn around and join the battle, but the old priest continued toward the swamp. Ether and Nether twirled between Dante and the two little star-eaters. The demons were already looking raggedy, but by the time Dante finally put them down, Blaze had opened up a lead of a quarter mile. The air was already growing cooler, or at least less scalding, and damper. Trees crowded the edge of the living land. Blaze reached the grass, veering south toward the canoe. He beat Gladig to the boat by two hundred yards. He flipped it over and shoved it into the water. He stepped in with one foot, then turned around, sighed, and waited. Gladick arrived with a face so red it looked like all his skin had left him to seek more pleasant realms. Blaze clambered into the canoe, and the old man followed. Dante was still a thousand feet away, advancing steadily along his road. The hell-painted hills wavered as the sun baked from their naked slopes. Blaze took up the paddle, giving himself a good splash to calm down his overheated skin, and pushed off into the swamp. Why did you run? Gladick gasped the words out between breaths. To get away from there and over to here. And what has this relocation and geography solved? We could have killed him. I'm not so sure. But even if that was true, so what? We kill him, and then what do we do? Bex dead. We can't kill the lich. Killing Dante wouldn't even slow down the advance. In what way is running away a superior solution? There is no solution, you dogged shithead. We've lost. We might as well get ourselves and our loved ones as far away from here as possible and try to enjoy however long we have left. Blaze looked over his shoulder, but the trees and shrubs were already too thick to tell if Dante was still after them. And if that's inevitable, if it's only a matter of time until the White Lich claims us all, then killing Dante doesn't even make sense. I know I can't let myself be a part of the Lich's new world, but if Dante's there, maybe he'll make it slightly less dark. Gladick let out a long, slow breath. You have fallen to despair. I can see this as clearly as I can see my own hand, for I have worn its burden myself. I just lost my oldest friend, and, coincidentally, condemned everyone in the world to death or hell. Forgive me if I'm not at my bubbliest. Your reaction is natural, but it has blinded you. We have one last chance. How's that? Slip a new remnant into Dante's porridge, then all have a big laugh after he eats it? Beck is dead, but you remain alive. Last night I saw you lost in the Golden Stream. Beck told you exactly what must be done. Let us return and you will free Dante from his chains. Blaze stopped paddling, twisting around. We can't. We left the Abba Quen behind. 
You left the Abaquem behind. Others among us have more foresight. Gladick reached into his jabat and withdrew the ivory carving. The gecko was smudged with blood. Happy birthday. Blaze took up the idol. Certain he was about to fumble it into the water and never see it again. Even if this damn thing works, I don't know how to lock him out of the nether. He'll rip me to shreds, and then tear the shreds into bits. You cannot blame despair for this level of stupidity. For surely I had intended to do nothing to help you, observing from afar. However, your petulant whining has convinced me to assist you. I will counter his sorcery while you restore his remnant. That could work, but aren't we overlooking something here? Like the minor fact I don't know how to use the Odyssein? You know enough to make the connection Beck described. Do so now, and be quick about it. But I still can't reach the stream. I have seen your efforts. You are far closer than you believe. How can it be that I have more faith in you than you have in yourself? Blaze closed his eyes tight. A notion of doubts spread before him. He breathed in, relaxing every muscle, then breathed out, tensing them all. Gladick was scowling like he was working his way through a theological manuscript dense enough to brain a bull with. Blaze started the practice of forest, then broke off, heart rattling, and envisioned the cabin in the Wodens. The snows. The ice on the lake. His boys and girls pelting each other with snowballs. Golden chips spun about him. The air shimmered, as if he could part it like a pair of curtains and open a view to elsewhere in the world. He swooped toward the fragments of stream, but there was no need. They were already coming to his hand. And they would have the night before, wouldn't they? He'd been too shaken up, first by his reverie, then by the glimpse of the two sisters, to grab at the stream until it was already fading away. Before the flecks in front of him could do the same, he sent them toward Gladick. His motion was clumsy, like trying to throw a plank by the middle instead of the end. But a few of them stuck. Strands and planes of black and white energy extended from all sides of Gladick's body. Blaze maneuvered between them fluttering as awkwardly as a fat-bodied moth as he hunted for the connection that would lead him to the remnant. He slipped around a wide plane of nether, then a tangle of white cords. Behind these, a thin pillar of glowing pearl light connected the earth to the heavens. There was no mistaking the remnant. Blaze guided the stream to the pearly strand, the golden matter caught fast, binding Blaze to the light. He clapped his hands so hard they stung. I can do it. I don't know how or how much, but I can do it. Then we will return now. Right now? 
How about I take a few days to practice first? Dante and the Aedon Rane have already learned how to break the Odysseans' control over the Nether. You just told Dante exactly how the blight is removed. He and the Lich will work ceaselessly to learn how to stop this right as well. We cannot afford to give them a single day, or it might never work again. So we have to go now, huh? This thought should have been terrifying. Instead, Blaze was compelled to laugh out loud. I suppose it's like they always say. When everyone who actually knows what they're doing has been murdered, why not send in the idiots? He flipped the canoe, nose for tail, and paddled back toward the hell-painted hills, eyes darting to every movement, which in the lively swamp was non-stop. Gladick reopened a cut near the end of the stump of his right arm. They broke from the trees, entering a clear patch of water that lapped directly against the hills. Dante stood two hundred yards up the shore. He was staring off into the swamp, turned away from them at a quarter profile. It didn't seem as though he should be able to see them, but he swiveled to face them the second their canoe poked from the trees. Despite the distance, Blaze caught the blue flash of his eyes. Blaze brought the boat up to land and vaulted into the grass. Gladick exited in pain stages, as if his legs had already stiffened up following their dash from the wasteland. Blaze felt the nether flow to Gladick's call. They exchanged a nod. Blaze strolled along the bank, keeping one hand near his sword, for what little good it could do against Dante. Dante watched them come, but didn't budge from his spot. Nether spiraled around his arms. Blaze stopped twenty feet away from him. Dante was smiling. On his new face, it didn't look right. I never thought I'd see you run away. Blaze tossed his head. What are you talking about? We've run away from tight spots a thousand different times. I've gone through more shoes than most armies. But you've never run away when running meant losing. And the only way to win was to stand and fight. I'm here now. He glanced at the swamp, looking thoughtful, as he sent a part of his mind to the cabin in the Wodens. You said you and Daddy Lich figured out how to break the Odyssean together. But he's been elsewhere all this while, hasn't he? Do you two have a loon-like link between you or something? What does that matter? I want to send him a message. Which is? That he should run, Blaze said. Run far away, and never show himself again. Or else, the last thing he'll see is my sword, and the last thought he'll have is to wonder what his head is doing so far from his body. He picked up the stream he'd been generating as they spoke, and snapped it at Dante. Dante tried to blast at the golden sparks with Nether, but the shadows passed over them without leaving a mark. Showing his teeth, Dante redirected the Nether at blaze. The shadows stormed toward him in sheer fury, ready to rip his body into pieces and chum him across the waters. Heart tumbling like a boulder down a hill, Blaze held his position, 
concentrating on the golden stream as it made its ponderous way toward Dante. The nether closed on Blaze. He could duck into the shadows and let it pass by, but he thought if he did that, he'd lose control of the stream. He could probably generate more, assuming he could buy a few seconds to conjure it up without Dante converting him to skewered meat, minus the skewers. But he wasn't sure how many more times he could wield it. He was already feeling shakier than when he'd practiced it on Gladick, and that shakiness wasn't all due to nerves. The only way to come out of it alive was to trust in Gladick. The shadows screamed onward, blotting out the sun, and were met with the starry whiteness of ether. The flash dazzled Blaze, yet somehow he could still see the pieces of stream as they landed on Dante's transformed skin and sank inside him. A galaxy of nether shot from Dante's body. Blaze threw his hands in front of his face, expecting to be annihilated. But the shadows weren't moving. Rather, they were connections between Dante and the nether, exposed by the stream. A few lines of ether extended from him as well, sickly small in comparison. None of the ethereal strings looked anything like the column of pearl Blaze had seen within Gladic. He maneuvered around the outermost layers of shadow, loping inward. The darkness surrounded him completely, interrupted here and there by a spindly thread of light. He reached what he knew was the center, and ground to a halt, cold sweat popping across his skin. His remnant, Blaze choked. It isn't there. Lost in his search, he hadn't noticed that Dante and Gladick were busy wailing away at each other with everything they had. Nether and ether exploded in constellations of destruction, twinkling away into nothing, only to be replaced by another clash of magic a moment later. Such fights tended to sound like sizzling beef, but this one boomed like winter waves. Of course the remnant isn't there, you dung-brained ape, Gladick sneered. That is precisely what we are here to fix. Just testing you, Blaze said. Good news, you passed. He swung back into the surreal vision of the Odosein. Black spokes and angled walls jutted from Dante. Blaze threaded his way back to the center, where a vertical emptiness occupied Dante's core. It was like the shadow of a shadow, or perhaps more like the gap of a board missing from a fence. Even if you'd never seen the fence before, or for that matter knew what a fence was, you could still look at it and see at once that something was gone. Blaze gathered his remaining stream, which had dwindled as he'd been searching, and sent it to the place where the remnant should be. Gold shimmered up and down, as though coating a tube of glass so perfectly wrought that it couldn't be seen. A charge ran back to Blaze's body with a jolt. He pulled back from the sight of the Odossein. Gladick took two steps ahead of him, gesturing madly with his one arm, 
as he held off Dante's ceaseless assaults. Blaze had spent the last of his stream connecting himself to Dante, but he needed more to tie himself to the Abba Cohen. Feeling quite insane to be daydreaming in the midst of a pitched battle, he closed his eyes, returning to the valley in the mountains. This time, he saw that it was spring, and the children were catching frogs by the pond and making them race each other in the patch of bare dirt behind the house. Two victories later, one by a bright green frog and the other by a toad named Bumps, a ring of golden chips circled in front of Blaze. He opened the front of his jabat and withdrew the abaquen. It was slippery with sweat. The clash of sorcery slowed to a minor skirmish. Dante smiled bleakly, gaze shifting to the swamp behind them. Took them long enough. There, the heads and shoulders of the blighted emerged from the surface. The former people ignored the water streaming down their water-wrinkled faces, gnashing their teeth and splashing forward. Blaze stuffed the statue in his jabat and drew his swords. No! Gladick showered the foremost of the blighted with nether, knocking their corpses back into the water, then spun to deflect Dante's latest attack, which had come so close that the sparks of its negation bounced against Gladick's face. You must complete the task! Blaze backed away from the banks, Gladick paralleling him. Despite Gladick's frantic culling, there were already thirty blighted taking their first steps on shore, with more arising from the swamp behind them. Dante hurled another wave of shadows at Gladick. The old priest grimaced, laying into the nether with radiant spears. He pushed back the assault, but had no attention left for the coming blighted. Blaze could hold them off, probably, but it would stall his progress. The stream he'd just brought forth would vanish. There was no right answer. Yet he knew that indecision had killed more people than plague. He sheathed his swords and withdrew the abaquen. Marshalling the stream, he sent a line of it between himself and the ivory statue. The gecko's eyes glowed gold. A pin pricked Blaze's core. Dante winced, reaching for his solar plexus. Blaze lifted the abaquen, waiting for it to do its thing. It rested in his hands like the inert lump of old bone that it was. Blaze shook it. Nothing happened. His mouth went dry. Beck had made it sound like... Dante spun a column of shadows directly at Blaze's head. Still retreating from the blighted, Gladick countered with an inelegant but equally sized column of light. As soon as the ether left his hand, Gladick whirled back toward the blighted. The first of them had already launched itself at the old man. It crashed into him, knocking him down and biting at his throat, nails gouging into the side of Gladick's ribs. Gladick punched a spike of nether through the blighted skull, producing a fountain of brains that were as pale as the blighted's exteriors. Gladick staggered to his feet, de-braining four more of the things before turning to meet Dante's latest attack. The leading edge of the nether pierced Gladick's chest. He yelled out, clubbing it aside with a truncheon of raw ether. 
The Abaquen still hadn't done anything. Blaze stared at it dumbly, ready to bash his own brains out with it. Had he screwed something up? Had Beck left something out? With no other option, he sent the last of his stream into the Abaquen. This time, as the pinprick jabbed his middle, he honed in on the feeling and found that it brought him straight to the pillar of pearl that resided in his core. There, a golden tether extended from the pillar to Dante. Blaze opened his remnant. Ether poured from him and into Dante. 18. Light streamed between them. Dante watched as the ether entered his body just below his ribs. He looked up and smiled, blue eyes twinkling. This is how you said the Odosain cure the blight, isn't it? I don't feel a thing. What if your little scheme doesn't work on liches? Then you'll have to excuse us for the remainder of this battle, Blaze said, as we'll need to go register a former complaint at the Silent Spires for their sorcerous malpractice. What do you say? I think you're trying to distract me from finishing this. Dante shifted his focus to Gladick, who had seized on the momentary pause to lay waste to the closest blighted, opening a wide circle around himself. Dante lifted his hand. Nether coalesced around his fingers, undulating like black fire. Blaze's heart collided with his stomach. He'd done everything that he was supposed to. More than that, he was only supposed to have provided cover for Beck, not execute the process himself. And he'd still failed. Then again, there was something comforting in that, wasn't there? He would die knowing that he had done everything. And when he emerged from the haze of the past lands and into the mists, there would be nothing left that he'd have to make peace with. Best of all, he'd be away from the reach of the White Lich, wouldn't he? He could find Min, then. He doubted you could have children in the mists. But they could still find their mountain valley, build their cabin in it, and live together until it was time to move on. The nether sputtered from Dante's fingers. Rather than searing toward Gladick, it flapped away in confusion. Blaze felt Dante calling to the shadows, but the nether stopped a few feet from his outstretched hands, circling him as though it was wary. What? Dante said. Have you done? His face writhed as if worms crawled beneath his skin. His head snapped backward. His fingers twisted into claws, bending at impossible angles. The cord of ether running between them brightened steadily. Drool leaked from the corner of Dante's mouth. He staggered to his right, clutching at his heart. Patches of green appeared on his salt-white skin, creeping across his face and arms like living things. He straightened and faced Blaze, jaw hanging slackly, blood and spit spilling from his mouth. 
You... He convulsed, fell to his knees, and vomited. At first it was red, but the next heaves were green, and the ones after that as black as nether. Dante fell to his side. His eyes were open, and the pale blue brightness had left them. But his glassy gray eyes didn't seem to see anything at all. The vision had always been the same. The city lay beneath him like a map, its silver towers and golden domes gleaming redly as the sun broke from behind the mountain and spilled across all of creation. Snow still rested on the gardens and trees, but there was a note of warmth in the air that suggested it would soon retreat to the heights of the mountain. The people below seemed to sense this, moving about the streets with impatient readiness, smoke chuffing from bakeries and inns, the citizens yearning to return to work on the most beautiful city Dante had ever seen. Wind gushed over him, rippling his robes. He was flying. This wasn't unusual. In the clean paved streets, those who saw him dropped to their knees and lowered their heads. He banked to his right, gaining elevation, the ether shining upon him just as the sun did, while the nether flowed through him like the wind of his flight. The tower stood against the sky like an upthrust fist. If he'd wanted, the lich could have made it as tall as the mountain, but he decided to restrict it to two thousand feet, largely so that human servants and dignitaries could walk about on its terraces and roofs without freezing to death or being flung off by raging winds. Dante cleared the rooftop, pulled upward and stalled, lowering gently until his soles touched the silver-veined marble. The Aiden Rane waited impassively, watching the city react to the gift of dawn. In an earlier time, the Lich also would have been hurrying off to the day's labor, but he hadn't had to do any serious work in many years. Instead, he passed much of his time there on the roof, watching the people engage in his creation. Dante had never known if he was observing it for flaws or enjoying the clockwork precision of his work. Knowing the Lich, it was probably both. The lich didn't turn his head. Sorcerer, are you ready? Dante moved to his side. It is my honor, my master. Walk with me and receive your destiny. The portal stood twenty feet high, iron double doors inscribed with blackened runes. There was nothing on the other side. The Aiden Rane lifted his heavy hand. It glowed. Then the runes did, too. With a groan like music, the doors opened. Light of all colors poured forth. For a moment, 
Dante remembered what it had felt like to be afraid. The Aiden Rane strode into the light, and Dante followed. The light faded. The tower was gone. They stood on a staircase into the stars. They ascended. Everything was perfectly silent, except for the rasp of their feet on the treads and the low hum that came from everywhere and nowhere. With each step Dante took, a memory flashed through his mind. The taking of Tain, the Battle of the Dundons, when the sorcerers of the Northern Kingdoms made their great stand and died to the last. The union of the world that followed as the last human fell and rose again as blighted. The long reward when the blighted were given the run of the world for their service. Finally, the death of the last blighted, and the ceremony of the Second Age, when the Lich brought forth the first of his new humans. The founding of the City of Heavens, the raising of the Thirty-One Towers, the spread of the people across their new home until every land was filled. The perfect peace that knew no struggle nor war. The final quest, when the Aedan Rane and each of his underlords worked to unlock the last secret, and Dante delivered it from the beyond. The crafting of the starward gate, and, at last, its opening. The staircase seemed to go on forever. But Dante now understood that time was an illusion. A platform took shape ahead. The Aedan Rane didn't increase his pace. He didn't need to. Together they ascended the platform. There, the gods awaited. Dante lifted his eyes to them. Everything went white. That was where the vision had always ended. This time, the whiteness cleared. The platform was empty. The gods were gone. Dante turned to the Aedan Rane. The lich was already half-transparent. As he disappeared, he shook his head and turned away. Nausea spread through Dante's belly. It had been so long since he had felt any pain that the sensation paralyzed him. He retched. The convulsion sent hair-fine cracks racing across his skin. He fell to his knees. Glowing blue-white liquid dripped from the cracks in his body, spattering the platform. As the droplets landed, the light within them dimmed away to nothing. He whirled and ran toward the stairs to the portal. But as he planted his foot, his ankle snapped. He pitched forward, landing on his elbows and knees, which crunched like chalk. His once smooth skin dangled from his body in mummified strips. He reached out to the nether. It flickered, drifting toward him, then returned to its crevices, watching in judgment 
as the gift was stolen from him, and his body succumbed to the thousands of years that he'd defied nature's law. His ears roared, his sight blurred. He thought that was from the intolerable pain, but it was, in fact, the result of his eyes sinking into their sockets and dehydrating into black lumps. He reached out in agony, leaving a trail of fingers across the platform. His arm shook and fell. He needed to breathe, but he didn't have the strength to expand his chest. He knew what it was to die. And to be born. Dante! Blaze tried to run toward the prone figure, but his legs wobbled beneath him. He half sat and half fell, laughing dumbly for reasons he couldn't have explained. His head buzzed, the sound vacillating in and out, but growing steadily louder. Something white and glowy was extending from his belly, looking like some sort of celestial worm. Ah, yes, the channel between them was still open, and it was busy draining ether from himself and feeding it to Dante. He thought that he should shut it off. It seemed to him that if he lost all his remnant, he'd either turn blighted himself or maybe just die. But he didn't seem to have any idea in hell how to do that. He decided to sit there and see if any answers appeared. Ten seconds later, with the cord starting to dim, Blaze couldn't remember why he was frowning, or why he was sitting down, other than the fact that it was very comfortable. That was probably why, wasn't it, that it was so comfy. A figure swayed in front of him, pale and long-limbed. Its face and chest were slathered in blood. Blaze squinted, mouth hanging open. Was he about to get eaten by a blighted? That didn't seem like the most fun experience in the world. On the other hand, avoiding that fate would require standing up, which he didn't think he'd want to do even if he knew how. Blaze! the figure yelled. The connection remains open! You must close it! But what? The figure, who Blaze was starting to believe, might not be a blighted after all, drew back its hand and slapped him across the face. He touched his cheek. What's that for, you son of a bastard? Close the connection before you lose yourself. Sever the stream. The connection? The stream? Blaze scowled down at the statue with the lizard and bones that he clutched in his hands. He reached toward the golden thread connecting him to the Abaquen. This felt like trying to run through chest-deep water. He swore at it, thinking that might help. Either it did, or he'd been right about to get to it anyway, because his mind grasped the thread. He yanked as hard as he could. The tie snapped with only the faintest resistance. If he'd been breaking a strand in the physical world rather than within the loony sorceress one, he would have gone stumbling backwards. The buzzing faded. Blaze glanced about himself, pulse racing, soggy with fresh sweat. 
Bodies of the blighted were strewn all over the place. Most had been killed with precision strikes, but others had been knocked into gory pieces, as if they'd gotten too close, requiring Gladick to hit them with awkward sledgehammers of nether. Which explained why Gladick was such a great big bloody mess. Blaze scrabbled to his feet, gawking wild-eyed at the old priest. I was about to lose the last of it. It had me so addle-pated that I didn't even understand what was happening. I think you just saved my life. Gladick nodded and tried to say something, but coughed instead, spitting blood down the front of his jabat. Blaze rocked back a step, then ran forward just in time to catch him as he fainted. Gladick was covered in bites and gashes, and a wash in blood that Blaze had mistaken for the Blighteds. Gladick! Wake up, you idiot! Wake up and heal yourself! The old man lolled limply. Across from them, Dante lay next to his pools of multi-hued vomit. His eyes were still open. Blaze couldn't tell if he was dead. But Gladick was certainly about to be. Blaze lowered the priest to the ground and ran to Dante. He shook his shoulder, gently at first, then savagely. Just as Blaze was about to scream, Dante's eyes popped open. Can you hear me? Blaze said. Are you in there? Dante's eyes roved from side to side. I don't know. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? I don't know. Blaze covered his face with his hands. You can remember who you are later. Gladick's about to die unless you get up and heal him. Dante looked at him blankly, then at Gladick and the blood weeping from his wounds into the grass. Dante planted a palm on the ground and shoved himself to his feet. He tottered over to Gladick, shadows wrapping around his hands. As soon as they touched him, he stopped, taking a deep breath. He rolled his shoulders. He turned and smiled at Blaze. There I am. Dante crouched next to Gladick, steadying himself with one hand. Nether surged into the unconscious priest, eddying over his countless wounds. The bleeding slowed. The worst bite, a chunk taken from the side of Gladick's neck, filled in layer by layer until it was replaced with smooth skin, much pinker than the tanned parts surrounding it. One by one, the other wounds followed suit. The nether grew shakier and shakier in Dante's hands. Eventually, he flopped on his rear, back hunched. Blaze stood over Gladick. Is he alive? Yeah. Dante gazed down at himself. His jabat was smeared with vomit and blood. Am I? Yes. Sorry about that. There are more blighted coming. They'll be here any minute and I'm nearly out of nether. We have to get out of here. Blaze sighed. And I thought I'd finally be able to rest for a while. He went to the canoe and beached it directly across from Gladick, stashing the Abaquen inside. Dante tried to help Blaze carry the old man to the boat, 
but immediately dropped Gladick's feet and ran off to vomit in the grass. Blaze leveraged Gladick over the gunwale and settled him inside. This done, he gave Dante a hand getting in, then picked up the paddle and headed east-northeast, away from both the hell-painted hills and the direction Dante said the blighted were coming from. If you're gonna barf again, Blaze said, please do it over the side, would you? If you add scrub the upchuck from the bottom of a canoe to the list of things I've had to do today, I swear to the gods I'll deliver us straight to the white lich. Dante nodded weakly. He was ashen and shaky, and Blaze wasn't sure if he looked better or worse than when he'd woken up ten minutes earlier. But he was human again. That was what Blaze chose to focus on, as he conveyed them away from the hell-painted hills and into the overgrown clamor of the swamp. Dante kept glancing behind them. Either he had so little nether left at hand that he didn't want to waste it on his insect scouts, or he was too rattled to think of it. So the last couple of weeks were terrible, Blaze said, once he was reasonably sure they weren't about to be set upon by hidden foes. Rather than allowing you to simply take my word for it, I'm now going to inflict the experience on you as well. He launched into a lengthy recap of everything he, Naren, Gladick, and the late Beck had done since Dante had been taken by the White Lich, deliberately including more detail than was strictly necessary, in part to fill the time, and in part to help remind Dante that he was back among them. He spent a particularly long time on the heist of the Bastion, which had almost been fun in its way. Despite that, Dante didn't ask a single question, or so much as laugh, gazing instead out into the swamp. All for a little statue of a lizard, Lay said. You'd think they'd make a weapon like this more fearsome looking. I'd have gone with a shark swinging a battle axe. He paddled along, splashing softly. Behind him, Dante shifted his weight. Then what happened? We headed your way, Blaze said. Personally, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to finally be rid of you. But Gladick thought it wouldn't be fair if we had to fight the White Lich and you didn't. He finished up the tale of the last few days of travel between Darabode and the fight at the base of the hell-painted hills. It didn't take much longer. After that... They were both quiet. I think we've gone far enough, Dante said, once the afternoon had passed its peak heat. The blighted would take days to find us on their own. If it means I can stop paddling, I'd agree with you if you told me the sky was orange polka dots. Blaze brought them aground on the nearest island that looked large enough to offer concealment. They dragged the canoe toward the reeds. Blaze picked up Gladick while Dante grabbed their gear. The old man was still out cold, his skin mottled with the light pink patches where he'd been healed. Blaze found a grassy spot near the center of the island. Dante flapped out a blanket 
and Blaze set Gladick down. Dante crouched next to the priest, a few shadows flickering around his hand. Blaze moved a step closer. He all right? He exhausted himself in the battle. He needs sleep, that's all. Dante didn't look up. Do you still want him dead? Do I want him dead? You heard me. Should I have transferred part of my brain to you as well? I'm the one who woke you up to stop him from bleeding out. That's what's confusing me. Because when you threw him off the tower at Erisosis, I assume it wasn't to give him a dose of fresh air. Heat prickled over Blaze's skin. He'd almost convinced himself that night had been nothing more than a drunken dream. Even now he wanted to deny it. But when you lied to yourself, you only made yourself weaker. When you came face to face with something about yourself that made you feel weak or scared, you stared it down, and you walked through it. And that was how you made sure you'd never have to face it again. How did you know? You were out drinking at the docks, Dante said. Naren was only a couple of islands away, almost half a mile closer to the scene than you were. There was no way you could have heard about what happened before he did. Yet the two of you showed up together. Because you didn't need to be told. Maybe I'd had enough to drink and was on my way back to bed. Then again, I bet you already know that I beat Naren to the tower and waited for him to arrive before heading upstairs. I thought it'd look less suspicious if I didn't show up alone. Blaze plucked a tall blade of grass, tearing it apart piece by piece. He'd hurt so many people. He'd always gotten away with it. After he hurt Volo, something inside me snapped. I know why you did it. I want to know if you still want to see justice done to him. If I asked you to, you'd do it. Spike him right now. Yes. Blaze got to his feet, turning his back to them. Leave him be. Why? Because without him, you wouldn't be here. This has all been so strange, Dante said. Typically, pressures like the ones we've been under break people, warp them into awful shapes. But maybe it can squeeze you into something stronger. Blaze shook his head, then laughed. I'm too tired to guess. Not if I'm going to take first watch anyway. Dante put up a brief fight about handling the watch himself, but Blaze rejected each argument. Although there was still plenty of light, Dante fell asleep in less than a minute. Blaze waited by the camp for a while longer, then began a small circuit of the island.
His head throbbed flatly. It felt like his mind would snap if he tried to think. So he didn't. He and Dante traded watches every two to three hours. By the middle of the night, Blaze was starting to feel normal again. The next time Dante shook him awake, Gladick stirred, mumbled blearily, and opened his eyes. Told you he'd live, Dante said. There goes another ten chucks, Lay said. I knew I should have smothered him in his sleep. Gladick blinked owlishly, then chuckled in wonder. I am intact. If your definition includes being so old that you season your rocks with dirt, then sure, you are perfectly intact. And everyone else is as well. We're not old. We are young, are close enough to it to continue to pretend, and one of us has a physique that makes statues gossip jealously to each other in the back garden. I can see that you are unharmed and have possibly located a long-lost supply of bottled spirits. Dante, are you recovered? I've felt better, Dante said, including after I've been repeatedly stabbed. But I'm here again. Gladick laughed and smacked his knee with his left hand. Perhaps the gods do not hate us after all. Or perhaps they find the world a more interesting place to observe when you are free to sow chaos across it. Whatever their motives, this is a miracle. Blaze told me everything you guys had to go through. I suppose I should thank you. One might consider our motives entirely selfish, as without your presence, we would be considerably more likely to die at the hands of the Aedan Rane. Gladick sat up more fully, taking in the warm night and the stars peeping through the boughs. Life is without any logic at all, is it? Six months ago, I would have given up my right arm voluntarily if it had allowed me the chance to spit on your corpse. And now, now I see you are alive, and I appear to be happy. Blaze joined the others in laughing at that. It was still dark out, and would remain so for another two hours. But they'd been sleeping since late afternoon, longer in Gladick's case, and seemed awake enough. They ate some dried fish and bananas, which no longer seemed remotely exotic to Blaze. We don't have anything left, do we? Dante flipped an empty peel into the brush. The lich knows how to combat the Odosein now. That was the only way we had to get to the prime body without being annihilated. Blaze motioned toward the bag where he'd stashed the statue. What about the Abaquen? Can we use that to de-lich him? I spoke with the lich after you ran away. He was utterly unconcerned about the Abaquen's ability to harm him. He seemed to find the very idea funny. 
So we've lost our only way to hit back at him, and he's become stronger than ever. Well, that just means the songs they'll wind up singing about us will be even better. Before any such songs can be composed, Gladick said. What is our next move? Dante shrugged. We go back to the silent spires. To do what? Complete our education in the Odyssean? You just said that it was now worthless. Against the Lich it is. We're not going there to learn the Odyssean. We're going there to warn them, and to get Naren and Volo, if she's well. And then we're going to leave to Naratain. Silence hung between them like a dark doorway. Uh, Blay said. We are. The Drake Bane was right to leave this place. We'll follow his lead. Gladick pounded his leg with his fist. The Drake Bane was a coward and a deserter. But he knew this land was doomed. We found an avenue to victory he didn't know about, but we took our shot and we missed. Now the White Lich has taken Aerososis. That doubled his army. It likely doubled his personal power, too. It's time to pull out. You have spoken with the Aedan Rane many times. You must understand that withdrawing from Tanaritain does nothing to protect us. Once he consolidates his homeland, he will strike out for the next nation. Perhaps he will go to the south, but perhaps he will come for Alebolgia, and then Colin, then Malin, then everything. I know all of that, and more. I spent two weeks taking his orders. That's why I'm going to murder him myself. Gladig arched his left eyebrow. Then you do have a plan to defeat him. I don't have any God's damn idea how to do that. After serving under him, and listening to him talk, I'm not sure it can be done. But I know we can't fight him here any longer. Tanaritain is too wild for us, but it's his home turf, and he's about to control every corner of it. It's time to fall back to somewhere that we can defend. There is reason in this. Yet, if we cede this land, does it mean we've achieved nothing here? We bought ourselves time. Nethermancers from Narashtivik are already crossing through Malin. We can meet up with them there. And it isn't just us. We've given places like Malin and Pocket Cove more time to prepare, too. Without us hampering the Lich's every move, he would have swept through Tanara ten weeks ago, and gone on to overrun Bressel. We did more than that, Blay said. We proved that we can stand against the White Lich and walk away with our lives. We'll do it again, and the next time, we'll win. Gladick lowered his head. 
Then we will return to the silent spires, and pray that the gods will forgive us what we do next. The three of them returned to the spot where they'd arranged to meet the Odosein on their return. Dante was scouting the way ahead with his dragonflies, and hence knew before they arrived at the rendezvous that no one from the spires was waiting for them. But his scouts had also seen that the Blighted had apparently spotted their boat, and were also converging on the rendezvous. Low on options, they ditched their canoe, and hiked once again into the hell-painted hills. Blay spent most of the day's trek bitching about the heat and spitting out ideas about how to harry, slow, wound, hamper, push back, and otherwise resist the White Lich and his forces. He knew that most of his ideas weren't very good, but he lobbed them out there with the express purpose of seeing if anyone else could pick them up and do better. And was disappointed when Dante barely responded to them at all, and in fact seemed irritated that Blaze was even trying. Gladick picked up and kicked around a few of his suggestions but Blaze quit by afternoon, marching over the uneven ground and wishing for the spires to appear, even though he knew they were more than a day away. Had they accomplished anything in Tanaratane? At best, they'd learned a little about the Lich, but they hadn't actually hurt him, had they? Had it been worth it to slow down his progress? in exchange for all the lives lost along the way. Around one that afternoon, a team of Lon Harbour emerged from the hill ahead. In the heat of summer, the oversized goats stank fiercely, but Blazer's spirits lifted the instant he took the saddle. They rode hard, climbing from rock to rock, pushing past sunset, after which Gladick lit the way with floating globes of ether. Around the same time Blazer's stomach was starting to do some serious complaining, they navigated the final ridge and looked down on the green valley of the silent spires. Servants met them at the border between the dead rock and the living grass. The staff barely exchanged four words with the Lon Harbour-mounted guides, before turning around and running back to the towers. Blaze and the others came to the plaza and dismounted. Footsteps dashed across the half-lit square. Era ran forward, her robe pulling back from one of her legs. You're alive! She rushed forward, embracing Dante. She detached herself and hugged Blaze and Gladick in turn. Don't look at me like that. When the two of you left, I thought I'd never catch sight of your hides again, unless the lich used them to skin the hulls of his new kayaks. We've avoided such a fate for now, Blay said. The even better news is we've successfully reduced his army by one. Era walked a half-circle around Dante, looking him up and down. You look fine. A little gross, like you've been sick, but fine. I can see with my own eyes that it worked. So I'll skip right to the meaningful questions. 
How did it work? Did you have to do anything different because he was a lich? Blaze nodded. I had to not screw everything up, which was a challenging change of pace. Otherwise, it was the exact same de-blighting process Beck said it would be. A look of curiosity shifted to an unwanted awareness. Where is Beck? Something's happened to him, hasn't it? The White Lich and I worked out a way to break past the Odosein, Dante said. When the three of them came to free me, Beck locked me away from the Nether, but only for a moment. I let them get comfortable and believe I was no harm. And then I struck him. And you killed him. I'm sorry, Bel Era. I was under the Lich's power. You don't say. Idiot that I am, I'd completely forgotten that you were a Lich. You weren't yourself. I can still rage at the one controlling you. I know exactly how you feel. Dante curled his hand into a fist, face twisting with an anger Blaze had rarely seen on him. I will kill him for what he's done, Era. I swear it on my life. She moved a step closer, examining his face. I think... At last, you might. Where is Naren? Blaze said. And how is Volo? Naren's asleep. He's an early riser, that one. Likes to beat the sun to rise and help us in the gardens. As for the girl, she's seen no change in her condition. I'm starting to doubt she ever will. During the fighting in Erisosis, she saw into the depths of the abyss. And it destroyed her. There's something missing inside her now. A spark. A light. I don't think it can be brought back. Blaze had suspected this for some time, but hearing the words from someone else shot a pang of sorrow down his spine. What do we do then? Leave her here? We can't travel with her. Dante said. We need all the speed we can get. If anything, she'll be in more danger with us. Era nodded to the wasteland surrounding them. If she stays here much longer, she'll be afflicted with the same thing the rest of us are. She'll never be able to leave. Blaze crossed his arms. But traveling is her life. It's all she's ever done. If she gets stuck here, and comes back to her senses later, we'll do everything we can to free her, Dante said. But it might be for the best. If the White Lich defeats us, this is one of the last places he'll come to. Impressive rationalization, Eris said. How are you going to come at the Lich next, anyway? If he's discovered a way around the Order Sain, how will you get near him without getting slaughtered? I'm not sure yet. With any luck, we'll figure that out along the way. You're going to head for the Aid and Rane without any idea how you're going to attack him? 
Remind me why I ever agreed to train you? We aren't going after the lich, Dante said slowly. We're leaving to Naratain. She blinked, knocked off kilter for the first time in the conversation. What are you talking about? The lich and the monsoon are on the verge of sowing up the entire country. Another few days and it'll all be theirs. We can't operate a resistance under those conditions. Our only choice is to withdraw, regroup, and put together a force capable of meeting them in the field. And leave my country to be devoured, to be murdered and converted into his servants? How can you condemn us to this fate when you just suffered it yourself? Because it's the only way to win. No. She advanced on him, eyes locked on his. You will not leave. I forbid it. How are you going to stop us, Era? By using the Odyssean to hold me down until I agree to do your bidding? If that's what it takes. Then you'll fail, because I know how to break the Odyssean too. She flashed her teeth in rage, cheeks mottled red. Then I renounce my protection of you, and I renounce you. Be gone and be damned. She turned on her heel and strode back to her tower. Dante watched her stride away, robes streaming behind her. He was tempted to find Naren, remount the Lon Harbour, and put the entire stupid place behind him. But the anger that had been simmering within him since being released from the White Lich's thrall boiled over. Before he knew what he was doing, he was running across the plaza. Era entered her tower, slamming the door behind her. Dante was prepared to knock the door from its hinges, but it was unlocked. He crossed to the stairwell. Her sandals smacked the treads. He ascended after her, his steps as noisy as hers, but she paid them no mind. He exited the stairwell into the hallway where she kept her quarters, just as she was clapping her door shut behind her. He flung it open. She whirled about. The room was so dark her face was little more than shadows, but her eyes burned like forges. How dare you? Dante crossed to her, jabbing his finger at her face. We've done nothing but struggle for this land. And you're an utter failure, aren't you? So get out before you mess something else up. I order you. And I defy you. What are you going to do about it? Face pinched with rage. She lowered her chin. Chains of golden flecks coalesced in a halo above her head. She lashed him with them, ripping the nether away from him. He smiled and envisioned the forest that had once grown across the hell-painted hills. The vision was fleeting 
and only produced a few flecks of stream. But that was all he needed. He picked them up, seeking their connections to all of the other shadows. Her bonds shattered. Do you see what I can do? He gestured east, toward the swamps. He can do exactly the same. That's why we have to fall back. I've already heard you dribble out your stupidities. So you must be here to convince yourself of them, not me. Because I know that you promised to preserve my country, and instead you're forsaking it. I've done everything I can. I've bled for it, lost friends for it. I almost lost my soul for it, Era. We can't fight him here anymore. Have you thought through what this means? Without flinching, without grabbing at every hope you wish to be true while blinding yourself to every flaw that would hurt you? Yes, Dante said. Over the next few weeks, if not days, the last free Tenarians will be captured, conquered by the righteous monsoon, or converted into blighted by the Aden Rane. At best, the Lich will leave the monsoon to rule themselves as they've been doing, stamping out your ways and replacing them with the unquestioning conformity of their belief. At worst, the Lich will turn on them and blind them as his mindless and half-human soldiers. Either way, the Tanara Tain you know will perish. That's exactly what will happen. Her voice went husky. Most of my people will be blighted. They won't even be able to speak. Most of those who aren't blighted will be monsoon loyalists who want to destroy everything we've stood for. Only a few of the few will remember the culture we once stood for. But anyone who speaks up about it will be put to death by the monsoon. For those who remain silent, our ways will die with them. And that will be the end. Not even the outsiders will remember us, because we didn't let them know us. Even if there comes a day when you cut out the Aiden Rane's heart and burn it to ashes, that won't undo our fate. Tanara Tain is dead. You could be right, but you're forgetting something. What? That you will have known us? And can tell our story for us after we're gone? You don't know us at all, outsider. Even if you mean well, the story you tell of us will be no more than a shadow of what we were. Better to tell no story at all. I won't have to tell your story for you. Tenarians are still alive right now in Bressel. I will find the chink in the lich's armor, 
and I'll drive a knife through it with my own hand. Then your people will return to your land, and they will rebuild it. Her eyes shimmered. I want that to be true more than anything. But the more we want something to be true, the more we'll lie to ourselves to get it. Dante almost stopped himself. Instead, seized by impulses that felt like they were coming from outside himself, he took her in his arms and tipped back her head and he kissed her. Her eyes went wide, and she pushed against him. That was only the instinct of surprise. She froze, deciding, before wrapping her arms around him and pressing herself against him. In time, he wasn't sure quite how long, she drew back. She touched her mouth. Why did you do that, when you're right about to leave? Because I'm right about to leave. You know that I can't leave here. While I have to. So there's no point, is there? But I'm not sorry. I didn't say that I was. Era regarded him coolly. What are you going to do now? Against the lich? I imagine that I'll take his life. That's as specific as you can get. I don't know how. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. And he should be afraid. There's something different about you. Something more urgent. Is that better or worse? Better for leading us where we need to go, she decided. But worse, I think, for your own peace of mind. That might be accurate. What was it like? He didn't pretend to not know what she was talking about. I killed people. Lots of them. They hadn't done anything other than not hand themselves over to the monsoon or the lich. But that was crime enough for them to die. But most of them, I handed over to become blighted. That's worse than death. They've lost half their soul and most of their mind. And all that's left is hunger and anger. I thought I was tilling the field for a new crop to grow, fixing the mistakes the gods made when they first brought us to this world. You know what's worse than anything I did? That I enjoyed it. You literally weren't yourself. Only a fool would blame himself for that. I wasn't in a haze of some kind. I remember all of it, Era. What I did, and how good it felt to do it. It feels like it was me. 
He reached for a desk set against the wall, gripping it so hard he thought his hand might break. That's why I know I'll find a way to end him. It's the only way to dim the screams in my head. But there's another way, isn't there? To die fighting him. And you know that. Hera parted her lips. Come here. He did so. Sunlight cut through the open window, shining redly through his eyelids. He opened his eyes. She wasn't there. Dante rolled from the low-slung bed, picked his wrinkled jabat from the ground, and dropped it over his shoulders. He went to the balcony. Era wasn't there either, but down in the plaza. Blaze and Naren were already loading provisions onto a team of Lan Harbor. Dante found his sandals and headed down to the plaza. The morning was warming quickly, with an unsteady breeze swirling about them, as if it couldn't decide which way to go. Naren grinned, dropped the pack, and walked over to embrace Dante. You live! I knew that they would bring you back. Dante smiled. That's why you stayed behind, was it? Your raging confidence that I wouldn't kill everyone who opposed me? I'm sorry I wasn't there. I should have been. I didn't believe that I would be of any use. You have nothing to apologize for. Anyway, we could sure use you now. Have you heard our next move? Play says you intend to leave Tanaritain. Is that all? Ah, uh, so you do know the plan. Until I met the two of you, I didn't know that shameless retreat qualified as a plan of battle. Bah, Play said. The only people who badmouth it are the ones who don't have the balls to do it themselves. Dante motioned to the north. We need to warn everyone, halfway friendly, about what's happening. Lady Vita in Alabolgia, those bastards in the Colon Basin, and we might even convince the Drakebane to work with us. Or at least, not to stab us in the back. Point is, it's a lot of travel that I'd really rather not do by foot. The corners of Naren's mouth twitched. How can a man employ so many words and still not have enough of them to ask if I can get us on the sword of the South. Can you? When she chose to be, Captain Twill was a smuggler. There were many times when it was feasible that the ship might have to leave port with such haste that some of us would be left behind. She quickly developed a method to unite her ship with her estranged crew. Where do we need to go to meet it? Either end of the hills will work. A few days ago, when I spoke with Era about the matter, she suggested I travel northwest, into Alibolgia. It's no further than the swamps from here, and will be much safer. Then that's our plan. Dante clapped Naren on the shoulder, gazing up at the seven quiet towers. 
Where's Volo? I should see her before we go. Naren led them up to the second floor of Eris Tower, showed him to her room, then returned to the plaza. She lay on a thin mattress on the floor. Her eyes were open, but they didn't so much as twitch toward Dante. Volo, he moved beside the mattress. They say you can't hear us. Is that true? She didn't stir. He sent the nether to her, but it showed nothing out of sorts. But I don't know that you can't hear us, Dante continued. All we know for sure is that you can't show that you can. If you are hearing this, I want to thank you for all your help. Without it, we'd have died or been driven out a long time ago. So I'm sorry that it came to this. Wherever you are, don't give up. And I want you to know that when this is over, I'll come back and I will fix this. Part of him really thought his words would provoke a response from her. A smile, a flutter of an eyelid. But no part of her moved except for her chest as it rose and fell. Dante gave her a moment, then left the room. Era stood in the hall. He moved toward her, but she held up her hand. No need for that. Just tell me if you'll come back. If I live, I will. She smiled. Then try to live, will you? Even when we had new knights to train, it was pretty boring around here. I'm jealous. At this point, I'd love to be bored. Funny, because what I'd love most is to be able to get out into the thick of things and do my best to serve the lich a bowl of his own intestines. She looked him up and down. But I suppose I'll have to settle for you. Go on and end this, will you? We've lived in his shadow for centuries. We won't last much longer. Dante nodded. He could have said more, but he didn't, and neither did she. She walked downstairs, and he followed. Gladick had arrived in the plaza during Dante's absence, and though Dante's stomach was rumbling, everyone else looked ready to go. He supposed he could eat in the saddle. He swung up onto the back of one of the beasts. Blaze jumped up on his mount and saluted. Sorry for the abbreviated stay, but we have heroism to do. I know it might look like running away, but that's exactly what we want the lich to think. Era held up her hand. Dante waved back. They moved into the trees. Once they emerged from the woods and climbed the ridge beyond, Dante glanced back toward the plaza, but he was much too far away to tell if she was still there.
mounted on the long harbour, they struck out from the spires, heading northwest. It was dreadfully hot, obliging Dante and Gladick to shade them with nether from sunup to sundown. Dante spent most of the day of travel going over everything he and the Aedan Rane had spoken about, sifting through the words and plans for anything that might reveal a weakness in the lich. Yet nothing stuck out. After a full day of travel, with the very first hints of blight starting to creep in, they mounted a hill and stopped. Ahead, the fire-streaked black of the hell-painted hills met a brown plain dusted with green shrubs and weeds. Blaze shielded his eyes from the sun. What are we looking at here? Some kind of dry land? Where's all the muck? The fetid pools? Doubtless the work of a foul sorcerer, Gladick said. We should proceed with much caution. Dante smiled, then curled his fingers into the shaggy fur on the goat's neck. We've actually done it, haven't we? We've abandoned the swamps to him. The lucky ones will die, and the rest will serve. Do you wish to go back? What would that accomplish? Nothing. In other words, the exact same amount that it accomplishes to sit here and complain about a decision we have already come to terms with. Dante shook his head, digging for more, but nothing came. Excuse me for being concerned that we've doomed an entire country. The lich doomed it, not us. Gladick took up his reins. Now if you have finished displaying your pious compassion for those poor people, shall we proceed? Dante dug his heels into his Lan Harbour's flanks. The animals started down the final slope. Frustration swirled in Dante's mind. He had already accepted that Tanaratain would fall. For that matter, most of it was already gone to the Lich. And what was it that bothered him? The Lan Harbour stepped out of the streaked black rock and onto the dusty reaches of Alabolgia. The four foreigners dismounted, took down their packs and weapons, and thanked the guides, who nodded and rode off to find a safe place to spend the next day recovering before the journey home. Blaze led the way, skirting the hills as they moved southwest toward the coast. After the closeness of the forests and waterways of Tanaratain, the openness of the land and the width of the sky was unnerving. The only cover came from low, threadbare grass and the occasional tuft of sagebrush. It had been just as open in the hills, of course, but that had been different. Dead lands where no enemy dared to travel. Now they were vulnerable again. If something came for them, they'd have nowhere to hide. Dante jerked up his head. It wasn't the abandoning of the swamp itself that gnawed at his stomach. It was the fact they had to abandon the swamp. They'd never been beaten before, had they?
Oh, they'd lost scores of battles, but never the war. And perhaps they would still win the greater war against the Aden Rane. But they'd certainly lost the war for Tanaratain. At that very moment, the blighted were hunting their way across the swamps, binding people in ropes and carrying them back to the lich to be converted into monsters, and eating one-tenth of their catch alive. For all of their effort, they couldn't stop the cataclysm from swallowing the swamps whole. As much as Dante hated the lich and wanted him to die, needed him to die. Now that they'd lost once, he was no longer so certain that they wouldn't lose again. The morning wore on. The land ahead shifted from scrubland to low dunes of black sand, shot through with grains of red, yellow, and orange. Confused winds poured from the hills in eddies and dust devils, obliging them to wrap cloths around their noses and mouths. It was a slog and a half, and Dante was more than glad when the sands petered out that afternoon, replaced by grey dirt stubbled with sage and the thorny green spheres of tumbleweeds that would bounce across the fields in the months of late autumn. With night coming on, they found a shallow ravine and made camp. Blaze poked at the dirt with a stick. We should light a fire. We've spent all day attempting to convert our asses into sweat, Dante said. And you want to light a fire? The sparking of fire is not only about banishing the cold. Gladic paced side to side, gesturing like an orator. It is about establishing a center from which civilization may take its stand against the chaos. Precisely, Blaze said. That's and turning dead animals into tasty meat. We don't have any meat, Dante said. Maybe if we light a fire, some of it will show up in tribute. Gladic, go get the kindling, would you? Gladic winced and pressed his palm to his back. I am but an old man, infirmed by frailty. You should honor your elders by gathering the wood for yourself. But I already did the hard part and came up with the idea. You can't expect me to do everything. The labor will only build your strength, allowing you to be a more able warrior which will be of the better for everyone. Counterpoint. I don't want to. Naren glanced at Dante and raised a skeptical eyebrow. Dante shrugged. As the others argued on and on, Dante rolled his eyes and got to his feet. Stop already. I'd rather do it myself than listen to you two squabble all night. He headed down the ravine, getting out his torch stone and blowing on it to illuminate the twilit desert. There were virtually no trees, 
and he wasn't likely to find any fallen branches or the like. But he thought it was possible he'd find an old snag that had succumbed to the heat. After a few minutes, he was starting to think about uprooting some sagebrush instead. Turning toward a reasonably sized clump of it, his light snagged on a coal stick, a short and squat plant found in more arid regions that burn so steadily, Dante half suspected they'd been created by some long-dead desert nethermancer. The stalk was no bigger than his forearm. Wouldn't make for much of a cooking fire by itself. Seeing no others around, he cut it near the base with a blade of nether, then sent the shadows back into it, harvesting the stump back to full size. He repeated this four times in all, then brought his armload back to the camp. While you fools were arguing, look what I found. Blaze elbowed Gladick in the ribs. See? I told you it would work. Dante's jaw dropped. You did all that arguing to exasperate me into doing the job for you. Do you have any idea how pathetic that is? Oh, quick complaining. Unless you don't want any of our rabbit. Blaze produced two dead rabbits. Judging by the small, precise holes in their foreheads, they'd been brought down by Nether. Gladick arranged the coal sticks and lit them up with a whoomp of shadows. Naren watched as Dante and Blaze gutted and cleaned the rabbits. The labor involved in this is proof the gods intended us to eat fish, the captain declared. One cut of the knife and a scoop of the fingers, and they're ready to roast. He wandered off to trim some sticks to skewer the meat on. By the time Naren got back, the meat was trimmed and seasoned with traveling salt. They arranged it above the fire and seated themselves around it. The smells of the cooking rabbit and the smoke of the coal sticks was hypnotic, lulling the four of them into silence as they watched the fire speak the flickering language that only it understood. The last few weeks had been ones of setbacks and hardships. Their enemy was stronger than ever and the only part of the future that was certain was that it would be bleak. Since being freed, a boulder of dread had bent Dante's back. Yet all it took to shed the weight was to light a fire against the darkness with the help of those you trust. You have been listening to the Light of Life, Book Four of The Cycle of Galand. Produced by Greg Lawrence. Associate Producer, Emily Durr. Text Copyright, 2017, by Edward W. Robertson. Production Copyright, 2017, by Podium Publishing. All rights reserved. If you've enjoyed this audiobook, let us know. Take a quick moment to rate and review it on Audible, so we know we're bringing you audiobooks you'll love.
Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.